Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Medicare for all is like Woodstock. Every baby boomer claims they were at Woodstock. And now every presidential candidate claims they are on board Medicare for all. But not not all of them. Iowa voters say their number one concern is health care. So where exactly do the Democratic candidates stand on health care? For more on this, we're joined by Professor Simon F. Hader. He is an assistant professor of public policy at Penn State University. His latest piece at The Conversation is entitled Heading into Iowa, Where do the Democratic Candidates Stand on Health Care Coverage? Welcome back, Professor Hader. Thanks for having me. Got a great response to your last appearance on this show because you speak so clearly, I have a feeling the candidates don't like you as much as my listeners do, because you're revealing what they're saying through all that gobbledygook that they spout. Let's go through the candidates. Universal coverage. Tell me what universal coverage means and tell me where the candidates stand on that. Well, at the very heart, it's, it's a very simple proposition. Universal coverage basically means that we are covering every single person in the country. There's no exceptions. There's no income-based exceptions. There's no immigration status exceptions and so forth. So the foundational idea of universal coverage is that simply everyone has access to health care insu- health insurance. Um, with the ACA, we have been softening that a little bit, and we've moved to near universal coverage as a way to, you know, make that a little bit easier or more palatable on everyone. Um, but, you know, near universal is not universal. Uh, we should remen- remember that the ACA covered a lot of people. There's still a lot of people that are uninsured. And so, you know, the second round or going back to the Affordable Care Act and updating it, making it better or Move into further reforms. Um, I think most of the candidates have really moved to further improving universal coverage, getting closer. But uh, at the very end of the day, most of the candidates that are advocating for something that's not Medicare for all and, and what you know Bernie Sanders or, or Elizabeth Warren have gone for, uh, they're not quite getting to universal coverage, but not quite getting to it. So when you say ACA, that's Obamacare, and that's health care provided through or at least paid for through health insurance companies so that's yes correct right all right let's talk about the public option what is the public option and where do the candidates stand on that yeah, the public options is something where, where things get really complicated really quickly. Um, lots of people have a public option that they're talking about. Um, even, you know, if you look at the details that each of the candidates are providing here, uh, uh, you know, they're all slightly different. They mean slightly different things and that can, that can really have big implications down the road. So, you know, the people that are 
uh, in the field right now, the front runners, if you will, the top six, uh, five really are thinking about a public option. Uh, Joe Biden certainly is the most most uh, uh, adamant about including a public option that's kind of adding to you know the existing system. Uh, the mayor, Mayor Buttigieg, is, is probably certainly there as well. Uh, the only person that's really not focusing on a public option is Bernie Sanders, uh, who has not included a public option really in his plans at all. And the other sort of an exception is, is Senator Warren, who uh, does not envision having a, a, a public option long term, but has recently updated her proposals to to have a public option as a transitional feature. Right. And when you say public option, this is what was so valuable mm-hmm. from your last appearance on this show is we were able to delineate the difference between health insurance and mm-hmm. health care. When we talk about the public option, we're talking about health insurance so that the government is providing health insurance that competes with private insurance. Is that what the public option is? Yeah, I think that's very much true. I think the the, the best way to think about a public option is really uh, think of government as another health insurer, you know, depending on obviously the, the, the proposals differ slightly on the details, but basically think of it as, as government entering the insurance market and basically starting to act like an insurer. You pay premiums directly to government. Government then sets up an insurance network and, you know, fi- you file claims with government and all that kind of stuff. So very much an insurance product that's not provided by an insurance company, but directly provided by the by the federal government. And you're still paying into an insurance company. It just happens to be run by the United States. That's right. The insurer is the United States collecting premiums and co-payments and all that kind of stuff. And because I'm biased, and we'll move on, but because I'm biased towards Medicare for all, a public option is ripe for abuse by the private health insurance companies there. They would kind of seduce the better doctors and it would turn public option insurance into something resembling Medicaid, something that low income people would opt in on and it would have a patina of lower quality. I think it's, you know, th- this is is a very policy complex, weedy kind of question. Uh, and I think that's what's important to think about. Uh, you are correct, though, if, if it's not correct. You know, correctly designed. If we're not paying attention to the details, uh, this could get very problematic very quickly. And I think we should also think about that. Um, it would be subject, obviously, to influence because it's a political product. It'd be subject to influence of lobbying and all the other things that our, our political system is suffering from. And it's unlikely. Uh, I think a lot of people have argued that we could create a public option that's robust enough to really compete on equal. Footing with private insurance company, and you know, you refer to basically patient dumping, dumping sick individuals, or you know, worse off providers into that kind of system. Certainly, the the, the danger is there. Right, and, and the private health insurance companies would claim it it's unfair that the government is competing against them. They would eventually claim that. 
it just creates kind of this this challenge where you know in, in order to make a public option kind of work similar to you know the benefits we would get out of a single payer medic Medicare for all kind of system, uh, it will run head into competition from the from the insurance companies, and I think the insurance companies are concerned about this. And so, what you'll likely, given the political conflict about this, potentially end up with is is a watered down option that has a lot of the pathologies of the insurance system and, and not as as many of the benefits that you would hope for. Right. The, the, the Republicans and most of the Democrats want it both ways. They like to say that government can't be trusted to do anything efficiently. And then when they go into the same business as, say, the health insurance companies, the health insurance companies claim, and rightfully so, that they can't compete with the government because the government does things so much better and more efficiently than we do. It's not fair. So they hire lobbyists to sabotage anything that's state-run to make it look like private enterprise is more efficient when in fact it's not let's let, unless you want to respond to that we should move well, on well i think i think the, you're correct there's there's a lot of irony in this as well but i think what we've seen in the political response to these proposals is that insurance companies are gearing up you know to either uh oppose uh, post the, both Medicare for all and the public option or to shape the public option in a way that's more amenable to them. I think we've seen very high con- uh, campaign contributions specifically by the insurance lobby. And that's certainly something uh, we should be focused on and be concerned about. Yeah. One third of Americans are underbanked. They don't have access to a checking account because they don't have enough money or they don't want to pay the fees. There was a time when the post office used to do banking, but the banks said we can't compete with the post office. It's unfair. So the the post office can no longer do banking. And so one third of Americans don't have access to a bank because the banks, which claim to be more efficient than the post office, are terrified that Americans would discover how fantastic the post office is. And the Republicans have waged a 40-year campaign against the post office to destroy it by saddling them with this insane pension that has to be paid out like 60 years in advance just so they can say, look how inefficient the post office is, even though the post office is phenomenal, even with the Republicans trying to sabotage it. Let's move on to single payer. What does single payer mean? Yeah, there's there's a lot of confusion about what single payer really means. I think uh, this is one of those, you know, relatively simple concept that uh, basically you reduce the number of entities that pay for medical service services uh, down to a single one. That is, there's only one entity in each country that really, uh, you know, pays medical providers for their services. Uh, most likely, given the costs involved and the structure and everything that's required, you know, practically that would have to be government. And so single payer is usually what's associated directly with basically eliminating most or if not all private insurance and moving to government as a sole payer. Right. And so of the candidates, is there anybody who is proposing single payer? I think, you know, the most ardent defender historically and in the Korean campaign has been Bernie Sanders. Uh, There's certainly no doubt about that. I I think you can basically characterize uh, Senator Warren as a close second, uh, you know, 
Bernie Sanders probably the one that's most adamant, most immediate, most quickly transitioning into that kind of system. I think uh, Senator Warren uh, is is closely behind on that, as I mentioned. Uh, the other candidates, everyone from Senator Biden uh, down the line, um, I think keep the option open as something that's potential uh, an option down the line, uh, but they're not close in their immediate plans to go to that route. When you when you say down the line, they make it sound so easy to score a bill and have everybody vote and get it to the White House. So when they say down the line, like this trade deal, NAFTA light, everybody voted for it except Bernie. And they all say the same thing. And I can hear them saying this about whatever jerry-rigged, lousy health care plan everybody tries to get past besides Bernie, including Elizabeth Warren. I can hear them saying it's a start the way ACA was a start. And, you know, we're, it, we're, it's not Medicare for all. It's not perfect. But like that trade deal, all the Democrats who voted for it said it's a start. It's a beginning. And Bernie Sanders pointed out the last big NAFTA trade deal was in what, 93, 94, mm-hmm. we're not going to have another trade deal to vote on for another 30 years. And we're probably not going to have another health care bill to vote on after this for another 30 years. It becomes the third rail. And for people to say, well, let's transition, let's you know build on what we have, that's that's just more of the same. Well, I think you're correct. You know, getting major political change in this country is very, very hard. So once you get to that point, you know, things settle in for a while and it's really hard to move them after that. And, you know, we we had the creation of Medicare back in 1965. And then arguably, we didn't really have any any major changes to the, the healthcare system in this country until, you know, 10 years ago. And so, yeah, there's certainly the danger that you're able to mobilize all the political forces to achieve major political change. Uh, probably you're going to be stuck with what you get for a little while. Yeah. I mean, you have to fight total war. You, you can't do it incrementally. It becomes a quagmire, which Obamacare is. It, Obama, anyway, let's move on. Socialized <laughs> medicine. Define socialized medicine. And you write that not a single candidate, including Bernie, is proposing socialized medicine. So what does socialized medicine mean? Yeah, I think that's probably the most confusing term in the political debate because people are throwing it around a lot without knowing what it means. And some are purposely, I think, misrepresenting uh, the healthcare reform proposals to to argue that they include socialized medicine. Uh, I think, you know, the socialized medicine is really very different from the single payer system. They can go together. Uh, they don't have to go together. And in, in the proposals that I've seen, really, uh, they don't go together. Socialized medicine basically means that uh, medical providers, hospitals, laboratories, uh, long-term care facilities, all these entities would be owned directly and operated by the federal government. That means everybody would be on the federal government's payroll. Uh, the federal government would own the land the buildings, everything associated, every you know item in that building would be owned by the federal government. Where do we see that? We see it on a national scale, really, in the United Kingdom. But I think it's important, you know, not to forget that we have a degree of socialized medicine in this country already. Uh, we have it specifically through the Veterans Health Administration, where mm-hmm. the federal government 
employs the doctors, owns the buildings, uh, by and large, despite, you know, recent reform proposals. But we should also not forget that we have hundreds and hundreds of local, state, uh, and county hospitals in this country that are directly owned by local and state governments as well. This is why we should bring back the draft. Everybody should have to serve in the military. Then it's VA for all instead of Medicare for all. If we bring back the draft, every American citizen serves. They're entitled to VA benefits, I think, right? Uh, it depends, right? If you go back to the draft age, you know, those individuals are by and large, uh, most of them are eligible for coverage. Uh, today with, you know, no draft volunteer system, it gets a little bit more complicated. Depends how long you serve, disabilities, and all those kind of things. So it's really, really complicated, really, really fast. I see. So if you served in the military, that doesn't mean you necessarily qualify for the VA? Not anymore at this point, yeah. Okay, very interesting. What percentage, this is an unfair question, do we have any idea what percentage of our economy is comprised of the health insurance and the health care sectors? Uh, it's a it's a complicated question once more, like everything in healthcare. But we can basically think about healthcare making up a good twenty percent or one in five dollars of our gross national product. So one out of one in five, one out of twenty percent of our economy is healthcare. Basically, yeah. And so. When Bernie says he wants to wipe out and eliminate the health insurance companies, that can be spun as though Bernie's trying to eliminate 20% of our economy. Well, it, you know, it definitely can be done, but it's definitely untrue, right? Because the health insurance, you know, the healthcare sector, the 20% of our economy, that includes health insurance companies, of course, but it also includes providers and doctors and hospitals and the pharmaceutical industry and all those kind of things. Uh, I think that the it's by and far the largest industry we have in this country. It's growing faster. You know, it's it's going to make up more and more of our GDP GDP over time, uh, and it's an important you know sector of our economy. So there's not surprising that people are really fighting um, over 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 healthcare reform proposals. I think uh, one of the most important things to think about when we think about healthcare reform is that every dollar you're moving or every dollar you're cutting or saving somewhere, uh, that's someone's income. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, people want to keep their money, and that's understandable. Uh, we have to get to a point, I think, where we think more holistically about what, what's good for society and the country as a whole. And that will require, you know, some changes. People might lose their job um, in the health industry. We might want to think about, you know, creating alternatives for them and help them transition into other industries. Right. Well, that leads us to private insurance. What is the definition of private health insurance? Two candidates well, Bernie says he wants to eliminate the private health insurance companies. You claim Elizabeth Warren does, too. I beg to differ. You know more than I do. So tell me what private health insurance means and where the candidates stand on it, specifically Elizabeth Warren, because you say she is a she wants to eliminate private insurance. I don't hear the full throated contempt for Aetna and Blue Shield and WellPoint from her, the way I do from Bernie. No, that's certainly true. I think, you know, uh, similar to, you know, Medicare for all, kind of what we talked about is I think Bernie Sanders is the one that's most immediate, most radical in the way of moving towards the system and eliminating private insurance. 
uh, taking a step back. Private insurance is basically where you're contracting as an individual, as a group, as an employer uh, with a private entity that could be either for profit, a lot of them are for profit at this time, or non profit. There's argument where there's a much of a difference between for profit and non profit health insurance companies, really. Um, but you're basically contracting with them to serve an inter- as an intermediary. Uh, between you and the health and healthcare sector uh, in terms of accepting premiums and then paying uh, for your medical care. Um, I think, you know, again, most of the other candidates outside of Bernie Sanders, and we can debate, you know, to what degree Elizabeth Warren falls in that category, are really, you know, by and large focus on preserving the existing system um, within boundaries, you know, adding a, a public insurer or something of that sort. I think uh, Elizabeth Warren is not quite as clear as Bernie Sanders on the issue. I think she's more um, tempered, if you will, uh, in a way of transitioning towards well, She says we should, in three years, uh, we should vote on whether or not we want to eliminate private insurers. As I said, you know, she's somewhere in the middle and it's hard to uh, arguably hard to pin her down a little bit on this one. Uh, I think one of the big concerns, though, that, you know, technical concerns that people like I have in a system when you move to Medicare for all is, you know, the capacity in the federal government to run this kind of thing. Disinvested in the federal government in terms of expertise and hiring people and all those kind of things. So she's basically Elizabeth Warren is basically saying in the first three years of my presidency, we will have a public option. We will have people opting in, paying the United States government premiums and will be in the health insurance business. And then once the American people get a taste of how great the American health insurance system is, which we've never really had before, then we'll vote on whether or not to transition into Medicare for all, which is something completely different from mm. a health insurance, a national health insurance system. Right. And that's certainly true. I think she's uh, offering two separate things. So getting a taste of the way American, the federal government can deliver health insurance has nothing to do with a taste of what Medicare for all would be like. It's kind of disingenuous at best, I think. You know, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not an expert in normative judge, judgments here, but I can, you can certainly argue that, you know, you have a group of people that are uh, very much status quo ACA expand those kind of you know those kind of proposals. Then you have Bernie Sanders really on the other side, and you have you know Elizabeth Warren somewhere in the middle at times moving more towards Bernie Sanders, at times more moving towards the other candidates. Right. Um, and it's you know. It's, Let me ask think, you about private. I know we're short on time, and this has just been so great for for my listeners and me. Private health insurance. They always say the 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 value of private health insurance is. They, they have to be efficient because they have to answer to stockholders. But then you read about like the bill of the month. NPR does the bill of the month. Yeah. And there was this woman who got charged literally $40,000. I'm not making this up to get a throat swab on a strep test. Yes. And when you read the article, the doctor sees that the the check is being sent to the woman. He says, if you can get me this check, if you, I'll, you don't have to pay a deductible. Now, the health insurance companies, aren't they, they want to, they watch their bottom line. They're concerned about profits. Why would, 
a, a private health insurance company cut a check to a doctor for a $40,000 strep test. Uh, I think you raise, raise an important question that's, you know, maybe a, a lot more, you know, very deep about, you know, what we want out of a healthcare system. And I think we talked about universal coverage. I think that's one of the important things that we need to think about achieving, um, you know, getting everyone covered. I think there's good moral reasons to do that. There's good policy reasons to do that. And I think, you know, the second component that, um, really, we, we don't focus on enough is that we need to find a way to control the costs of our healthcare system. But and, I, I'm going to interrupt you because we're short on time, but we're sure. being told that the way to control costs is keep it in the, uh, with the private sector because they're obsessed with profit. So mm-hmm. why would a health insurance company, they're looking at the bottom line. Why? Why wouldn't they catch that? Don't they want to keep that $40,000 for themselves? Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the, the case that you're referencing and that we've talked a lot in, in the news recently, it's called, you know, surprise bills is really what it is at the heart of this matter is where uh, insurance companies uh, create networks of providers that you're allowed to see within your network. Uh, and, and then, you know, some of the doctors are not in this network. And the case you're referencing is the provider was not in the network. Um, I think, and then send a bill, the insurance company paid part of the bill, refused to pay the rest of the bill, and then sent the bill actually to to the patient, uh, and the patient kind of was left withholding holding the bill, uh, uh, and, you know, the bill was exorbitant. No, I think on this example, I, I, the, the health insurance company was going to pay the doctor something like $38,000. They were saying that the pa- the patient only was in on it for like 2000 In other words, the, the insurance company authorized the payment to the doctor. No questions asked. The reasoning in the article was it's just easier to pay the bill than to question it. You know, I would have to see the details. Um, I, I think w- what I would argue in, in general is that one of the big, and this goes back to the candidates' healthcare reform proposals, I think, is that one of the things we really need to think hard about is how much we're spending on medical care and what role providers have in this and how we can do better to pay less and achieve larger quality. Um, Medicare for all, you know, one of the advantages that it has been praised for is not only to reduce administrative expenses, but also to better bargain and hold down prices with medical providers. And I think that's one of the big advantages uh, of a single-payer Medicare for all type of system. Okay. Well, again, I don't mean to belabor this, but for another episode, I would love to look into why a for-profit health insurance company is willing to pay a hospital $700 for one single aspirin. Just makes no sense to me financially. You know. Yeah. Talk to me about premiums. What is a premium and where do the candidates stand on premiums? Yeah, so basically if you think about um trying to uh, find a way to balance your payments for sickness over a long period of time so you're not exposed to like large uh, payments in terms, you know, $100,000 or something. Uh, so what you do is you contract with an insurance company and the insurance company basically offers to reduce your financial risk, if you will, that is your exposure to large bills for a set monthly contribution. And the set monthly contribution is basically what we call a premium. Um, this premium can be 
used to be very much rated on your on your medical condition. Uh, today, after some restrictions that the Affordable Care Act imposed, uh, your premium is largely based on whether you're a smoker and how old you are. And that's the pre-existing condition. So everybody, except for smoking and your age, they can't charge you more for health insurance each month. That's right. So if you smoke, are you, I think, paying one time, one and a half times what a non-smoker pays? And there's a couple of what we call age bands, basically a uh, number of years of ages where you pay a certain you know, amount. And then as you age, it go, gets up higher. I see. And so when people go to the ACA marketplace, they're <laughs> shopping for private health insurance. And that's considered Obamacare, right? Yes. So Obamacare is, I'm not going to go to WellPoint or Aetna. I'm going to go to the Obamacare website, and they're going to point me towards some health insurance companies that could end up being WellPoint or Aetna, right? That's correct. And then going back to the public option, uh, in most of these proposals, you would add a public option basically to the ACA exchanges. I see. So... Private health insurance companies pitch their policies to the administrator of Obamacare, and it's up to the Obamacare administrator to decide whether or not this policy qualifies for Obamacare. That's right. You have to fulfill certain criteria. Uh, some uh, marketplaces, like the one in California, are a little more rigorous. Others basically accept everyone that fulfills minimum requirements. I see. So that's basically what Obamacare is. It's just it's health insurance that's cleared by the federal government. It's basically a clearinghouse. It's a website, but essentially it's a clearinghouse that allows people to shop for insurance. And what is the least amount of money people pay monthly on a health insurance premium? And what is the most they pay? No, it's, yeah, that's a very complicated story. Every state usually has what we call multiple regions that have different insurance prices. Um, so, you know, if you uh, qual if you have very low income, uh, you qualify based on fe federal poverty guidelines. You may only pay a couple of dollars a month because you get in subsidies from the federal government that will help subsidize uh, your insurance coverage. Does Obamacare? Does the website help you sign up for Medicaid? Uh, it does indeed. Uh, one of the things it does right in the front end of the service is it, it screens you whether you're eligible for Medicaid or uh, CHIP or one of the other public programs. Yes. Great. So those are premiums. Those are monthly payments to a health insurance company. That's right. And we'll, we'll sp speed through this. Everybody except Bernie and Elizabeth Warren seems to be okay with premiums since they're okay with private health insurance companies. Uh, I think that's correct. I think most of the proposals are show some concern about affordability, uh, extending some, or most of them extend the subsidies upwards, the income scale, and they try to reduce out-of-pocket payments, uh, which are, you know, some of the big concerns that we have in the current system where a lot of the policies either may be still unaffordable or access in the healthcare services might still be unaffordable because of the large out-of-pocket payments. Right. Finally, out-of-pocket expenses. What do out-of-pocket expenses mean? Yeah, so, you know, we talked about premiums and basically pur purchasing an insurance, you know, from a company. Uh, a lot of 
companies today will not pay for all the services immediately uh, uh, that you consume. Uh, you will usually have what's called a co-payment, uh, which could be like, you know, $20 when you see a primary care provider, $100 when you go to the emergency room. Uh, but there's also, you know, what's called the deductible. Uh, oftentimes the insurance will not kick in or start paying at all until you paid a certain amount of money out of your own pocket. Uh, and then there's something called co-insurance. So uh, basically uh, certain services you have to pay 10% or 20% of the bill until you reach, and this is again complicated because everything in our health system is complicated, reach what's called an out-of-pocket maximum, which is basically the maximum that you can be required in a given year to pay out of your own pocket. Right. Before you go, the individual mandate mm-hmm. Uh, Obamacare was brought before the Supreme Court and Mm -hmm. John Roberts, the chief justice, ruled that Obamacare uh, can stay. He wrote the the uh, majority opinion. He said that Medicaid expansion was unconstitutional. Yes. But that the individual mandate was constitutional. But he did the work for the Obama administration. The Solicitor General couldn't make this argument, so the Chief Justice did. He said the individual mandate is like a tax. Mm -hmm. So we still have the individual mandate in Obamacare, but that was eliminated by an act of Congress eventually? It's very complicated once more. I feel like that's what I say to all your questions. We still have technically the individual mandate required to buy insurance. What we do not have is what's called the uh, individual mandate penalty, basically the the payment or the fee that was required uh, of individuals who do not have insurance. That was eliminated under the Trump administration under tax reform. Uh, And this elimination of the penalty has basically led to uh, a significant lawsuit that's, you know, making its way through the federal court system right now that could technically undo the entirety of the Affordable Care Act 10 years into the making. Right. This is a Supreme Court case that questions how many alterations of a bill Mm -hmm. can take place until that bill is no longer viable. In other words, if you get rid of the individual mandate and Medicaid expansion, the argument is then you should just get rid of Obamacare entirely. But Bill Barr doesn't, he's saying to the Supreme Court, take your time on this ruling. Wait, wait till after the election. We would no rush, no rush on this because he's afraid of the political fallout. Well, this has been the most valuable conversation anybody, and I mean anybody is going to hear on this subject. And it's, it's so, infuriating how complicated they have made health care and health insurance in this country. And you're doing a disservice to the status quo professor by writing so simply. You're you're almost an enemy of the state. They don't want it this simple, right? They don't they, they could make it simple, but they don't gobbledygook, as Ralph Nader says, is a controlling process. The way they control us is through gobbledygook. Right. They purposely make this, you know, impossible to understand. I've been studying this for a long time and I read about it every day and I feel like I learn something new every day. Yeah. And we're talking about something that's, you know, it's a moral imperative to provide health care in this country. It's evil to make something simple, complicated so you can profit off it. It really is evil. 
I've interviewed doctors and I've asked them, what, what was harder, organic chemistry or figuring out how to get paid by Aetna? And they all say figuring out how to get paid by Aetna was far harder. And they still don't understand it. They mastered organic chemistry and got into medical school. They still can't figure out how to get paid by Aetna. I wonder why. Well, Professor Simon Hayter is back. He's the assistant professor of public policy at Pennsylvania State University. His latest piece at The Conversation is entitled Heading into Iowa, Where Do the Democratic Candidates Stand on Health Care Coverage? I'll link to this piece. It really is everything you need to know about our candidates and where they stand on health care. Thank you so much for, for the pieces and for doing doing my show. It's invaluable. Thank you so much, Professor. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. How do people follow you on Twitter? Uh, it's my first name, my middle initial, and my last name. So Simon F. and then my last name, H-A-E-D-E-R. Fantastic. Stand the line for one second, Professor. Thank you. know that the peak happiness is 82? So says our next guest, Howie Klein. He is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack. They raise money for progressive and some socialist candidates around the country. We're going to talk about, well, Bernie, the debates, the New York Times endorsing Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren, all that stuff. But how can you be happy? I, that wasn't really my quote. I was just uh, telling you what my friend Dan Levitin wrote in his new book. So, uh, so Dan is a, is a very, very successful uh, neuroscientist and musician. And uh, we're old, old friends. And he's had four New York Times bestsellers, including one number one bestseller. This is your brain on music. But he has a brand new book that just came out called Successful Aging. And that is a fascinating book. I'm just sort of getting into it now. But uh, he, he seeks to explode um, this, several things. But with this, the myth about uh, failing memory, which turns out not to be true, and old age depression, which turns out not to be tr- true. And he, he's the one that told me that the peak age of happiness is 82, which is just incredible. And how does yeah, he, he has a very holistic approach to the whole idea of aging and very positive approach to it as well. In fact, I was kind of hoping uh, that you would uh, have him on your show so we could talk about it. I would love that. I would love that. Great. Please put me in contact with him. Very quickly, I another will. person that you write about is a minister named John Pavlovitz. You have two pieces about him over Down With Tyranny, one where he talks about Martin Luther King, and then the other one is where he blames his own religious sect, the evangelicals, for everything that's wrong with the country. Who is John Pavlovitz? John is is a former, well, I shouldn't say former, he's a pastor. He was a pastor in in a North Carolina, he's no longer this, but he was a pastor in a gigantic North Carolina megachurch at one time. And he's an author and a blogger. And, uh, I've, you know, I, I think we've talked about this before, but I sort of hooked up with these guys, uh, from an organization called, um, I think, in fact, I think you may have even interviewed yeah. the, the main guy, Doug. Yeah, and, and Schaefer. Doug, Doug, well, yeah, Schaefer is the one that introduced me to all of them, mm-hmm. Frank Schaefer. But, uh, Vote Common Good is the name of the organization. And they're trying to go around the country and, 
persuade uh, uh, evangelical voters that they made a big mistake with Trump and that they should uh, elect elect a Democrat and, and elect uh, Democrats to the House and to the Senate. And these and these are basically all well not every one of, not that every one of them is a pastor, but overwhelming majority of them are evangelical pastors, hmm. including Doug, who you talk to. Um, and he's, uh, and, and Pavlovich, uh, you know, I've been in touch with him through them. That's, that's how I got to know him. And he, he's got an amazing blog, which is very w- much worth reading and which I linked in my uh, piece today. And, uh, yeah, vote common know, good while the Reverend Jerry Falwell Jr. Is Jerry Falwell Jr. a reverend or a lawyer? Is he a reverend? I don't know. Jerry I, I don't know. I think he's, I don't think he's, I don't even know that if he's a lawyer, but I don't think he's a reverend. I think he's just a, a grifter who's trying to make money off the evangelical movement. Right. And he was encouraging the march on the capital of Virginia to defend Richmond, the, Virginia. They do it every year at this, at this yeah. time. So it's not like some new thing, but, um, usually it's just like a, you know, like a hundred people show up from the pro, uh, pro gun and anti gun groups. And, uh, this time there were thousands of people and they were, you know, and they were, and I don't, I don't know if you saw any of the pictures, but they were all, look, they were heading off to war. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, they're heavily armed, uh, and, you know, kind of frightening looking. And this is who Jerry Falwell sides with. You write over it down with tyranny about vote common good and this remarkable minister, John Pavlovitz whose blog you go to, and he wrote a piece called The White Evan- the White Evangelical Church Has Failed Us All. And these are some quotes you added to your blog from him. If not for them, the white evangelical Christians, sick people aren't creating GoFundMe pages to stay alive. That's incredible. If not for them, right. white men marching with torches aren't called fine people. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, he's very, very, very uh, not into Donald Trump, and he's trying to persuade uh, people from the evangelical community that that was a mistake and that they need to own up to it and they need to face it. And he's, you know, very forthright about it. And and he's, he isn't talking to people necessarily like you and I. He's talking to evangelicals and he's talking to people who voted for Trump in 2016. This is what you quote him as saying. The irony in place is that despite all their sanctimonious sermonizing and finger wagging condemnation and sky is falling histrionics, the white evangelical church has enabled, nurtured and championed more inequity and more misery in these days than any other entity. And there is no close second. So he's blaming white evangelicals. He's, he's blaming the leaders. He isn't, he isn't necessarily blaming uh, the people who are following them. He wants to wake those people up, he, you know, and, and, and make them see uh, some kind of reality. Uh, he believes in, in the goodness in man and feels that uh, if he just get to these people and just wake them up and take, get them, you know, to stop listening to people like uh, the elite group, that, that runs the show who are all multimillionaires driving around, I mean, flying around in their own planes and ripping everybody off. They're just grifters. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to, uh, you know, wean them away from that crowd. 
the other we'll see. I mean, they they uh, vote common good helped us tremendously last time. They went around the country. They're doing the same thing now. In fact, uh, the night before last, they were in Fresno, California, and they were campaigning with. Kim Williams, one of our candidates for Congress there in Fresno, and um, the last time they helped us uh, to win Katie Porter's seat in Orange County mm-hmm. and several other seats. I mean, they, they've, you know, they they get they get their people, and the idea is that if they can just get you know five or ten percent of the evangelical vote to either vote for a Democrat or to maybe stay home. Uh, that's going to make in many uh, close races. That's going to make all the difference in the world. Right. Oh, so they're uh, they're in a bus tour right now around the country, and they're going to continue that right through November. They plan to visit all 50 states. Presumably, they will fly to at least Hawaii. But uh, you know, they've got this big giant mega bus, and they've got uh, you know people who are singing and people who speak and. Um, you know, people come on and off the bus, you know, and one month it might be John Pavlovitz, another month it might be Frank Schaefer. So they're, you know, it's, but every month it's, uh, it's Doug, who, who you, who, who you spoke with at one point. Right. Two more quotes from Down with Charity, cause you wrote about Pavlovitz's apology to Martin Luther King. And these two quotes blew me away, Howie, and you can read it over Down with Charity. This is from the minister, John Pavlovitz. I am sorry. This is his letter to Martin Luther King. I am sorry that I was such a lousy student of history, never stopping to realize that it had largely been written by people who needed to be the heroes, even as they perpetuated the villainy. And this is this gave me the chills. I'm sorry that I so often spoke in the cause of vulnerable and marginalized people instead of actually first listening to them because the former was much easier and the latter more potentially potentially uncomfortable. That's amazing. Is, uh, the thing he wrote today is, is really very, very deep. It goes beyond just uh, the, the quotes that you read and even goes beyond the quotes that I put in my post. And I really recommend that people read the whole thing because it's really talking about us, all of us. I mean, we... You know, people like us, not not evangelicals this time, but people like you and I. Yeah. And and evangelicals. I mean, all of us uh, who who aren't um, in minorities. Right. And he's his. You know, he's a very very thoughtful guy. He doesn't just write off the top of his head. He writes about things that, in some cases, he's been um, mulling over for years and years. He's a very very smart person. Yeah. I can myself lucky to have met him. The thing that though we'll move on, but uh, the thing about thinking that it's okay to speak in the cause of the vulnerable and marginalized people instead of listening to them. Harvey J.K., Professor Harvey J.K. does the show all the time, and he says the difference between Bernie and all the other Democrats is that Bernie listens to the marginalized, the vulnerable first and then speaks on their behalf, whereas the rest of the candidates Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, they're the technocrats from Harvard, and they're paternalistic. They tell the marginalized how they feel, what they're suffering suffering from, and how they're going to fix it. And that's how the Republicans get away with accusing 
Democrats are being elitists and out of touch because they are. And I noticed you didn't include Biden in there because he just tells the uh, the marginalized to just suck it up. <laughs> well, speaking of Biden, the New York Times came out with their endorsement for the Democratic nomination. They didn't give it to Joe Biden. They gave it to two women, Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. Yes, they did. Uh, I mean, the idea of giving an endorsement to two people in you only vote for one person is weird because it doesn't do any good to anybody. Right. Uh, but in any case, I mean, I don't know how many people care about what the New York times endorses anyway. I, I don't know that I ever have. I mean, maybe it sort of cheers people up, but I wonder if it actually uh, impacts the way people vote. Whereas, you know, the, if you look at, um, who's been endorsing Bernie, the kinds of organizations that have been endorsing him, as well as people like AOC and Rashida Tlaib and, uh, and Ilhan, and then this week, uh, the two heads of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Mark Pocan and Pramila Jayapal, you know, and of course you've got Ro Khanna leading the effort in Congress for Bernie. Uh, you know, I think these people will mean something to somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you, I was looking at the list of people who had endorsed uh, Biden, and, and they're all a bunch of blue dogs and new dems who are our enemies. Literally, these are not people who are our friends. These are this is the Republican wing of the Democratic Party. They, of course, all gravitate to Joe Biden because guess where he comes from mm-hmm. and where he's always been and always will be. So the New York Times, in praising Amy Klobuchar. They cited her charisma. I think they, she's kind of a comedian. I don't know if she's charismatic, but she is a comedian. She's pretty funny. I mean, she if she gets ever defeated, she can have a, a stand-up routine that she can do. But I, I don't think her, her, from everything that we've all read, I don't think her um, staff has find, found her to be funny or charismatic at all. No. She's a vicious <laughs> I hate to use that word. I apologize. And but well, she, you know, she yeah. throws things at, at staffers. She uh, she's very very cruel to them, uh, and she's kind of a. Uh, everything I've read about her, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure I'm going to get killed for this. But <laughs> man, did this the stuff that she does? He would be he would be he would be out immediately. Right. Uh, you Eating know, she, an egg you salad know, sandwich with her comb. Well, that's lovely. Yes, I, I did read that. <laughs> but, you know, the idea of like, being violent towards people who work for you, who can't defend themselves, is a pretty disgusting thing. And you kind of more expect that from a man to do, and you don't expect that from a woman. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, she, uh, you know, she's notorious for it. And, every, you know, people don't want to work for her on Capitol Hill because it's a very, very unpleasant working situation. And that means something. That's who she is. That's who right. Amy Klobuchar is. Did the, I didn't read that Times endorsement. I, I had enough to do without having to. Uh, I didn't need comedy. And, uh, but did they mention um, anything about, you know, what a horrible bore she is? Uh, no. But when they praised Elizabeth Warren, they specifically cited her storytelling ability. And I was wondering if that was her Native American heritage 
or her statement or her statement that she's for Medicare for all or that Bernie once told her that a woman could never get elected president. Which I wonder which story that they're thinking of most when they praise her storytelling ability. Let's talk about Elizabeth Warren, because you made headlines last week when you finally, finally turned on Elizabeth Warren. Are you angrier now at Elizabeth Warren than you were last week, or have you softened? I'm back to her again. You're what? <laughs> I'm back to liking her again. Really? Okay. No. No, no. I, 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 the anger is dissipated, uh, you know, and, and I'm back to like kind of hoping that Bernie will pick her to be VP. But um, now there's but a fly in that ointment. Really- there, I, I'm hoping you're right, there, but there's a fly I there. Her, I, I won't, I'll probably never trust her again. The problem with Bernie picking Elizabeth Warren as his vice president is the Democrats lose two more seats in the Senate, and we have Republican governors picking their replacements. So that would add, if Bernie and Elizabeth get elected on a ticket, we lose two Democrats in the Senate. I'm not sure. I don't know how it works in um, in Vermont. I have a feeling that it's not the same as Massachusetts because it's a Republican governor in Vermont. Yeah, I know, but I don't. But you know, it, it, I, it, I think there's an election right away rather than uh, putting somebody in. But I could be wrong. I'm not sure. I know how it works in in uh, Massachusetts, and it's not good. Right. But I'm not sure how it works in Vermont. But yeah, I I, I get what you're saying. All right, forget Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> uh, I would. I, I quote you. Yeah, as, I asked the Bernie people today uh, or yesterday if um, if he would consider her, and and he didn't. The guy who I asked didn't really know, but he said no. Aren't they floating an idea of her being both Secretary of the Treasury and Vice President? That rumor went around, but uh, it, but it was carefully not uh, connected to Bernie himself. Like you don't, you didn't even get the idea that he even knew about it. Here's how I quote Howie Klein this week: I say he's furious at Elizabeth Warren. He's never going to. Any- but he still believes she would be the best president of his lifetime. Well. Well, okay. I mean, but Bernie would be a much, much, much better president. Mm-hmm. But she would be. Would she be better than uh, uh, Nixon and Reagan and uh, Carter and Obama and uh, all the, and the, the various Bushes? Yeah, she'd be better than them. So she'd be better. Than, yeah, I think she'd be the best, better than anyone else who was president since I was born. And I don't. I mean, I'm a little bit. I'm not furious anymore, but I'm still. Thinking like, you know, she made up a bunch of stuff about Bernie and that's not good. It's not good when people lie. So that's really sort of scares me about her now. You know, I'm, I'm you know, I, I don't want to, uh, just be angry. Uh, you know, it's, I don't think she's going to, she's going to win the nomination anyway. And, but if she does win the nomination, we're going to have to all sort of gather around her. I, not everyone will, but I, I, I know I will. Okay. What do you see happening in Iowa? Because it's less than two weeks away. What do I see? I see a, a nice big victory for Bernie. I don't believe the boomlets that the media uh, manufactures uh, for Mayo Pete or for uh, 
or for uh, status quo Joe. I just don't see I don't see that happening. I mean, you know, people a lot of people just don't understand that a caucus is different from a um, uh, from a, a primary. They're very very different. You walk into a room with your neighbors and you sit around and you talk. And, uh, then you, and then you vote and any candidate who didn't get 15% is gone. And then you keep talking and you keep talking until somebody gets over 50%. And, um, the people who, who are, you know, ha- have people who want to vote for them, but they don't care that much and they're not, you know, they're not that committed. That, that's the Joe Biden uh, contingent, and that's the Mayo Pete contingent. Though they're not commit, their followers aren't that committed. Whereas the Bernie people are, you know, they ain't walking out of that room until they've wrung every vote they can out of uh, everybody. They're, they're they're not giving up. There's no one. I shouldn't say no one, but you know, generally speaking, the Bernie people are very, very, very committed to Bernie. Oh, so in the caucuses, they're going to wear everybody down. Uh, or they're going to enlighten them. That's a better way to put it. Okay. So the Iowa caucuses, that's a hard one to win. That's harder to win than New Hampshire. You have to have a ground game. You have to mobilize your supporters. And it would be dispositive. If if Bernie wins big in Iowa, then it's dispositive of the case that he can then lead a revolution. So let me give you the nightmare scenario. If Bernie does kind of like how he did in 2016, which is... Well, he he was a tie in 2016. Right, right. And then it's, you know, he has to be a grinder in New Hampshire. He's not winning by a landslide. And then it's down to South Carolina. And No, it's, it's Nevada first. And Nevada. So what if in a month, Super Tuesday's in March. So what, what, what... Is it March? Right? Super Tuesday is in March. Third, yes. Okay. Right in the beginning. So what if we're looking... While the Iowa caucuses are going on, people in many of the Super Tuesday states, like California, for example, are already voting by mail. They're already voting. So what happens after Super Tuesday? I'm I'm asking you. I'm not asking... This is just your opinion. What happens if Bernie's in the lead after Super Tuesday, but not by much? Wouldn't that suggest that, you know, maybe he can beat Trump, but it's not going to be the revolution that he needs to push his policy forward? He has to win by landslides, doesn't he? And if he's not winning by landslides, then the question is, what can he achieve? Two different things. We're talking about a, a uh, election against Donald Trump, a general election against Donald Trump, as opposed to this, you know, insane primary with all these candidates. You know, presumably, you know, there are people who feel strongly about Elizabeth Warren and they want her to win. And they're going to vote for her. And if she doesn't win, then and Bernie does, then we'll get behind Bernie. So it's really, you know, two very different situations. And I, I wouldn't worry about the political revolution not being viable if, Ber- if Bernie is, you know, doesn't win by a landslide in, uh, in, in some of the states. Okay. Let's uh, very quickly, I want to get to Elijah Cummings' seat. He passed away, the yes. chairman of the House Oversight Committee. Uh, and he was a, he was a uh, you know a real fighter for the people in his district for a very very long time. Uh, Baltimore and the northern and western suburbs of Baltimore. He he was uh, 
someone who who really put his heart and soul into trying to make life better for these folks. And uh, he passed away, as everybody knows. And uh, we have a an interesting race with, I don't know, 20 people running. Right. But there's one that you, are you endorsing her or is Blue America uh the Blue America Pack. Well, Blue, Amer- Blue America is endorsing her, which which means I am as well. Okay. And uh, Marianne Williamson also endorsed her. They're she, they're friends, the two of them. Uh, in fact, um, uh, we're talking about a state senator named uh, uh, Jill. Uh, what's Jill's name? Uh, you remember Jill's Jill's second name? I can't believe it. Oh, Jill Carter. Sorry. Right. Yeah. So, so Jill Carter is a, used to be a state. Uh, she used to be a delegate in the House of Delegates, and then she uh, she took a job doing civil rights. Uh, this, she became the civil the head of the civil rights department for Baltimore, and then she won a state senate seat, and now she's running. She's still a state senator, and she's running for uh, for Congress for a larger coming seat. And she's uh, she's an interesting woman. And, you know, one, uh, one of the things that fascinated me about her, she had been a Bernie Sanders delegate in 2016. So she, she went to the Democratic National Convention and voted for Bernie. And this year she endorsed Marianne Williamson. Mm-hmm. And I asked her why. I was fascinated to know why. And she's, you know, she has very, very, very strong, positive feelings about Bernie. But uh, she explained it to me, and I, it's in my piece, so I don't want to give it away. People should go in and uh, and read it because her 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 thinking on that was extremely interesting to me because uh, this is a woman who cares very, very strongly about her constituents. And, you know, she was extremely impressed with uh, the way Marianne Williamson approached that, including, of course, reparations. Which, you know, I don't know, do you hear any other candidates talking about reparations? They talk Michael about Bloomberg, form, uh, reparations? forming a committee to look into it. That's Yeah, that's, that's always been the case. Yeah. But you're not, I don't think you're going to get uh, reparations coming out of uh, Joe Biden or Michael Bloomberg or Mayo Pete, that's for sure. Yeah. Marion Williamson is a friend of yours. I was kind of surprised to read over it down with tyranny that she met with, a lot of Congress people when she was traveling around the country. So how how much of a some of these people she's been meeting with since the nineties. It's not like some brand new thing. I mean, she didn't. She wasn't even running for president, nor had J D. Scholten decided if he was going to run for Congress when, again when she was in Iowa doing a fundraiser for his property organization. He he ran a nonprofit property organization. She was in Iowa working with him on that, raising money for that. She was in Maine working with Betsy Sweet on Betsy Sweet's initiative. To have, um, uh, you know, to, to to open up voting for for more people and make it and make it a more equitable situation in Maine. She was doing that in the '90s with her. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Marianne is. You know, people don't understand that. They think she's, uh, you know, just a, a guru or something. They don't understand that she's been involved with politics her whole life in a very very serious way. She was very badly treated uh, by the media. Uh, and, and, and when I talked to her about it, I don't know if this is supposed to be public or not, uh, but, you know, she's very, very bitter towards, um, the DNC. I mean, she said this is just, uh, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, 2.0, and she does not feel good about Tom Perez at all. 
not at all. She felt that once she had that incredible night at, at I think it was the second debate, right. where you know she had more people looking her up on uh, Twitter and uh, following her on Twitter and looking her up on Wikipedia than anyone else, and uh, that she she said that she felt at that moment that uh, Perez and his cabal felt that they had to get rid of her. And they had to, you know, uh, plant all this stuff about her uh, and and demean her and belittle her and twist her her positions around and make her seem like she was an insane person. And they were very successful at it. They did really well. And she spent a lot of the rest of the campaign having to combat this crazy stuff instead of talking about all the positive aspects of her amazing uh, platform. Uh, she was, you know, talking with people about uh, complete nonsense and nothing to do with her. So it's a shame. Okay, we're we're almost out of time. Nancy Pelosi became Speaker of the House, what fifty four weeks ago? Within fifty four weeks, with what am I talking about? Within forty eight weeks, they impeached Donald Trump, and less than. I'm sorry. Became Speaker a second time. She had already been Speaker once before. Right, and and she, in less than a year, impeached Donald Trump. Alan Grayson, Alan, Congressman Alan Grayson, who, because of you, we have him on the show. He says, I love Nancy Pelosi. He does. Yes. So Nancy Pelosi. He sees her weaknesses as well, by the way. So it's not like he's just some dumbbell who loves Nancy Pelosi, period. He's someone who sees everything that's wrong with her. He understands all the stuff that's wrong with her. And he still has really strong feelings about her okay. positively. Here's my concern, and I mentioned this before Trump did, but I don't know. Maybe, you know, she, she pulls the strings. It, the impeachment trial starts today, and Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, and Amy Klobuchar are stuck in DC while, while Mayo Pete and Joe Biden can campaign. And my, don't forget Michael Bennett. Oh, of course. Oh my God! The thought of Michael yeah, Bennett. Not else has, so you might as well not. I'm sorry, but is is Bernie going to be hurt by not being able to shake hands and tell babies to shut up in Iowa? You know, I have tape of Bernie telling a baby to stop crying. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't help, uh, but he has a he has the best bunch of. Um, uh, surrogates that exist anywhere who are, I mean, just, uh, last night we had, uh, Pramila Jayapal in Des Moines endorsing him. And, you know, he's got great people who are out on the road for him. Is it the same thing as him being there? No, but he has no choice in the matter. He cannot be there. You, you, you can't fudge that. You, he has to be in the Senate. And certainly from what, well, everything I've read, Joe Biden and uh, Mayo Pete have every intention of taking advantage of that. But I don't know how, how, how much good that's going to do. You, you, you know, you look at one of these Bernie rallies in, 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 a, in a relatively small community in Iowa, and you see a couple of thousand people. You look at a, at a, a Biden rally or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, he's got John Kerry and he's got like some silly Congress person from, uh, from Iowa. And there's seven people in the room. Seven. Seven, not 77. Now, Mitch McConnell, so, you know, Merrick Garland, he just, we're not gonna, we're not gonna even vote on Merrick Garland. We're not gonna hold hearings on Merrick Garland in 2016. Isn't he capable 
of saying, you want an impeachment trial, Democrats? You got one. And he drags it on until the convention. And then well, they get Trump who they want, want, Biden. They get, they manipulate it. I'm talking about the Republicans. No, 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 no. Trump doesn't want that. Trump wants it over with quick. And, uh, they, they, you know, they, they are, they are going to bring up, um, uh, what is it called? I can't remember what it is. A dismi- like a dismissal on the first day. They're going to try, but they don't have the votes to do it. There aren't enough Republicans who are going to go along with that. It's too dangerous for them. So it'll, it, but it won't be a long, a long one. Trump says it has to be over. He's told Mitch McConnell it has to be over by the, uh, time he does his State of the Union. So, no. Okay. Be interesting. All right. To be continued. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive and some socialist candidates around the country and follow him on Twitter. The handle is down with tyranny. Thank you, sir. Can you stay on the line for one quick second? Sure, you bet. Okay, great. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. You sad, pathetic hump. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Monday outlined rules for the impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump, which begun in earnest or began in earnest this week. Well, it began in the Senate in earnest this week. All indication is that Mitch McConnell is trying to honor Trump's request for a speedy trial that will be over in time for Trump's February 4th State of the Union address. But Democrats insist they want evidence and new witnesses entered into the proceedings, and that could slow things down considerably. For more on this, we are joined by Mark Savasco. He is the chief of staff for Congressman Ted Lieu, who represents California's 33rd district, 33rd congressional district, Los Angeles. All opinions expressed by Mark Savasco reflect the views of The David Feldman Show, but not necessarily those of Congressman Ted Lieu. Welcome back, Mark Savasco. Glad to do it. Good to be with you, David. It's good to have you here once again. And this is, uh, you know, we, we need to do this more often when, you know, schedules permit. But you offer up a great civics lesson in how Congress works or some would say doesn't work. When the idea of impeachment was floated seriously last year, Democrats like me insisted that we can chew gum and walk at the same time. But now we're finding that we can't run for president and sit as a juror at the same time. Bernie, Warren, Klobuchar, Michael Bennett, they all have to remain in Washington, D.C. during the trial. They can't go to Iowa or New Hampshire. So. What's going on in the House of Representatives? How big a role does the House play right now in the impeachment trial? Is it just the House Judiciary Committee aiding the the impeachment managers in the Senate while the rest of the House goes back to work? Or is everyone just going to be glued to their TV watching the the proceedings? I should mention that Ted Lieu, Congressman Ted Lieu, serves on the House Judiciary Committee. So does he have to work on the impeachment, even though he's not one of the managers? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. The answer is the 
managers, the seven managers uh, who are chosen by the speaker, uh, they are going to be insanely busy. This is going to be sort of all-consuming for them. Think of them as the prosecutors uh, in this case. So, um, so they will they will have their hands full for as long as the trial continues. Uh, the House Judiciary Committee staff are essentially, you know, those staff attorneys and um, and the other uh, the other folks on on the oversight staff. They are the primary staff for the managers, uh, so they will also be insanely busy. Um, and including obviously the, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, who's one of the um, one of the managers. So, so our committee will have you know an important role and, and will be somewhat consumed by this. But the rest of the House side, anyway, um, it, you know, should move forward like you know as business as usual. We, we've we've got a number of other pressing um, you know pressing legislative priorities that our committees are going to be working on. You know, so um, just because impeachment's going on doesn't mean that. Uh, House Energy and Commerce Committee stops its activities, or the House Science and Technology Committee doesn't hold hearings on important topics. So they're going to be, you know, we're going to be moving forward to the House. There will be things on the floor. Uh, I've been told to expect an infrastructure package um, at some point, could even be this week while the House is in recess, um, you know, just to be introduced anyway, so that we have something of a discussion draft. But, um, but yeah, the House will, will sort of move on. Okay, the House moves on, and we learned last time you were on the show that there is a budget. Right. The 2020 budget is signed, sealed, delivered. And we're thinking about the 2021 budget. The fiscal year ends in September. So we have to start working on the 2021 budget. But 2020 is paid for. Right. That's right. Yep. Okay. No continuing resolutions. No debt ceiling to look forward to. Nothing. Um, No government shutdowns. Should be no government shutdown anytime soon. Uh, I don't know what the latest estimate is on on debt ceiling, but I think that was kicked well into 2020. Um, might be April or May. I'm not I'm not 100 percent on that, but yeah. But but no, so no looming crisis, uh, which is usually how how uh, Congress governs these days. Uh, there is no looming crisis at this point, at least not fiscally. Okay, and we should mention that you're an expert on budgetary matters, right? Don't you have a background? Expert is, is maybe a loose term. I, I worked for about eight years for a member of the House Appropriations Committee, so that that was my my legislative background. Um, uh, but it's an insanely complicated topic, so I, I don't know that there are too many people who can claim to be true experts. But um, but I have a, certainly a, a passing uh, knowledge of it. And not to pry into your personal life, but kitchen table issues. You're married. You have children. Who runs the family budget? I would love to be Mark Savasco and and go over the cable bill with my kids and explain to them but what what is the similarity and I'm being serious between a family budget and a federal budget because that's how the republicans pitch austerity they say you know anybody who's ever sat at the kitchen table with his wife or husband or whatever knows you can't spend more than you're taking in are our yeah. are family yeah. budgets in any way like a federal budget? Um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, no, not really. I think right. it would be the right would be the right answer. Uh, I think Republicans usually make that argument to try to you know suggest that we you know are spending too much. You shouldn't shouldn't spend more than you have. What they forget though is that most American families actually do assume a great deal of debt when it comes to 
making investments in their future, right? So lots of Americans, for example, go into debt to go to college. Lots of Americans, if not all Americans for the most part, um, the vast, vast majority, go into debt when they buy a home. And they uh, go into debt people. on infrastructure. They look at that's the mold, right. they, they add to the house, they're willing to go into debt on that because it's good debt. There's such a thing as good debt. Well, it's an investment, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, we should approach that as the, the same way. I mean, look, most, I think, Republicans, especially business-minded ones, understand investment. Um, we can also invest in things like the education of our populace and mm-hmm. the infrastructure of our nation so that we are strong. I mean, look, if, if Eisenhower doesn't do the uh, the interstate highway system uh, and all of the economic activity that that, um, that, that generates in the decades to follow... Uh, there's a good case to be made that, that, that America's, you know, economy isn't, isn't anything close to what it is today. So, you know, these are, and I, and I don't know that they really foresaw that at the time. It was mostly done as a defense, um, you know, during sort of the Cold War scare, right? We need to have these giant highways from sea to shining sea so we can roll our tanks down them. But what it ends up doing is allowing, you know, tons of commerce and, and, and trade mm-hmm. between the states and, and everywhere else. So, uh, these kinds of investments are important, and, and families do it, and, and so should our country. Families do it, but it's different from the federal government because families don't have an Uncle Tanoose in the basement with a printing press who can <laughs> right. make more money. And the government does. The government has plenty of money, and debt is not that bad a thing. That's one of the things we have to stop. Well, and actually, the Republicans aren't worried about debt when they're in charge. It's only when the Democrats want to spend money on the the well being of the American people. Well let's Right. This was gonna that was gonna be the point I was and then we can move on, but that was gonna be the point I was gonna make, which is the debt is only important if you're a Republican when there's a Democrat in office. I mean I, I served through the Obama years. Um, I remember when the debt and deficit was the only thing that, that Republicans wanted to talk about, they seem to have forgotten all of it. And that's what the whole Tea Party, you know, uh, a movement was supposedly all about. Haven't seen one Tea Party protest on Capitol Hill since Donald Trump uh, just got our deficit over a trillion dollars again. So it's um, almost as though you know, the Tea Party was astroturf and manufactured by the Koch brothers and wasn't real. It's a possibility. The mistake Democrats keep making, though, is that we, for some reason, keep taking these arguments as good faith arguments and trying to to negotiate them down as, as the Obama administration did. Um, that's a mistake. We shouldn't do that in the future. We should ignore their hysterics when they get all upset about uh, the debt and the deficit, and we should focus on, on like I said before, investing in, in priorities for the future. Yeah. Is it inflation? Is that what drives the Republicans, their fear of fiscal policy? I mean, there, there is almost no fiscal policy. This infrastructure bill that you're proposing in the House. Well, let me ask you, is it going to get passed? And is the infrastructure bill... Uh, a fiscal stimulant? I think so. Now, to be clear, we don't have a draft yet. At least none that I have seen yet. So that's that's what would be coming, I think, maybe this week or the following week. Um, It's it's what the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee has been hard at work on since we began the Congress. Um, Do I think it will pass? Uh, Again, I'd have to sort of, you know, you have to see the bill, but I, I would think that any proposal... Um, that's going to make its way through, you know, a Democratic uh, a committee, uh, the Transportation Committee, uh, would have sort of broad for, uh, broad support in our caucus. And I would hope that there would be a bill 
that we would send over uh, to Mitch McConnell, and um, it could sit there with the other 300 that we that we passed already that that he's refusing to move on. But at least then, in, in November of 2020, um, we will have a contrast for the American people to show them what our priorities are, what we've worked on, what we passed as the as the House of Representatives, and what the Senate refused uh, to take up. So a, let's say, I don't know, a $1 trillion infrastructure plan. Do the Republicans fear that not because of the debt, but because of inflation? Are they afraid of the 70s? Or are they afraid that when the government pumps a trillion dollars into the economy, it cheapens, it weakens the dollar, and Republicans tend to want a strong dollar, and they're, they're more afraid of uh, high inflation rates than they are of high unemployment rates. Is that what it gets down to, just fear of inflation? Uh, you know, I, I, that could certainly be part of it. I, I, I wouldn't, I'm not going to pretend to know what drives, um, you know, Republican legislators, but I, I think it, I think it's any number of things. I mean, look, I think there are true, um, you know, true believers on the debt stuff up, up on Capitol Hill. I don't think that they, on the Republican side, and, and look, on, on our side too, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, you know, it's just sort of, spend willy-nilly and don't care at all about the debt deficit. As a matter of fact, Democratic policies, at least, again, going back over the last uh, 25, 30 years through the, through the Clinton years, have been pretty fiscally sound, right? We haven't spent more than we've taken in. When when Clinton left office, we were running a budget surplus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barack Obama's administration took us way back from the, the, the cliff of the financial crash under Bush uh, to a place where we were we were on a, on a pretty solid path to get back to a, a budget surplus. Um, but it's not, it's really not that complicated. They try to make it complicated. There's a lot of, you know, uh, there's a lot of interesting mathematics <laughs> that, that, get, that get tossed around, but it, it's pretty much simple subtraction. If you cut taxes, if you cut the revenue the government is taking in and you don't change the spending, the deficit will go up. That's a, it's a pretty set formula. That's exactly what we did with these Trump tax cuts. Um, but which, by the but way, Trump just gave a but Trump that. just gave a presidential medal to Arthur Laffer, who says when you cut taxes, it increases revenue. Well, that, that's a that's a good point. I I would invite Arthur Laffer to take a look at uh, what has happened since we passed the Trump tax cuts. I, yeah, what happened? What happened to the budget deficit? The budget, the budget deficit has exploded under Trump. It's over a trillion dollars a year now. That's again, it's just subtraction. It's not a, it's not a complicated mathematic formula. And you know, we don't need to hypothesize. There's lots of public policy that is a bit of a gray area, and where we're not exactly sure what the results will be. We don't have to do that here. We we have plenty of case studies of what happens when you cut taxes the way that the Republicans did um, at the end of uh, a couple of years ago, and and and. We are where we are. We're going to have these massive deficits. And you better believe if a Democratic president gets in in 2020, this will be the, the main message of, of Republicans in the 2022 midterms. It'll be about how our, our debt and deficit are out of control. And what we have to do as a country and what Democrats have to be committed to doing is telling them to shut up and sit down. They were the ones who drove the deficit to where it is. And now it's time to let, you know, let responsible legislators take over and, and come up with policy solutions for the future. What happened to inflation? We were trained to believe, at least my generation was trained to believe, that when there's a massive budget deficit, like you just said, a trillion dollars, 
double-digit inflation must follow. So where's the inflation? Uh, n- now you're testing the bounds of my um, <laughs> my, my my economic uh, uh, expertise. I, I, you know, I'm, just I'm make not, stuff I'm up. Sure. It's economics. You can just, just you can just I make just, stuff up. Yeah, I, I, Arthur I, Laffer I, I, just I, got I, a presidential I, Medal of Freedom. <laughs> just make stuff up. I think, uh, yeah, I, uh, the answer is quantitative easing. Put that out there. <laughs> well, I'm not sure how, but that's the answer, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, and now everybody's eyes glaze over because they don't understand, and they think, I better listen to him. I better just listen to this guy. Well, if we can run deficits and there are no consequences, why not run them to actually invest in our future, like infrastructure or forgiving student debt, a jubilee on debt. That, that would be the argument I would make, David. I think um, it's one thing to go into a trillion-dollar deficit in order to give huge corporate tax cuts and, and, and 80% of tax cuts going to the, the top, you know, one-half of 1%. It's another thing to invest in college education for, you know, for every American, which would arguably, not arguably, which would substantially make our country better in the future or to build, you know, to, to um, uh, maintain the roads and bridges and rail lines, the things that we have now to try to move us into the 21st century when it comes to high speed rail, uh, you know, renewable energy. These, these are the things that will make us and our, our kids and our grandkids generation continue to be, you know, world leaders as opposed to, um, you know, a country where there's a huge divide between the haves and the have nots. Uh, but where the quality of living for most people continues to go down. So is it conceivable that lobbyists are pushing for things that are not in their best interests, that they have this dogma? It's almost like a religious dogma that we can't run deficits specifically for infrastructure because it would be bad for the dollar. What happens if you're a lobbyist and you're actually lobbying against something that would benefit your clients, but they're too stupid to know that. It's inertia. They just keep lobbying for it anyway, right? Well, I, let me, well, I want to be careful here because, one, there's lots of different lobbyists, and they're lobbying for different things, but I rarely get a lobbyist to come into the office who's urging fiscal constraint, right? In, in, in other words, who's telling us not to spend as much. But right? Usually there's a lobbyist who's coming in for their priorities, right? Whether it's a defense lobbyist, a healthcare lobbyist, um, you know, a, a, you know, lobbyist for, you know, a particular disease that we want more research into, whatever it is, there's, there's usually an ask. And what they're trying to do is make the argument that this should be a priority. The, the job, in my mind, of, of, of legislators, of Congress, is to determine what those priorities are. There's lots of good causes out there, right? We, we could be investing our our public capital in many, many, many different things. It's up to Congress to find that balance. What's the appropriate balance between how much, you know, national security funding, how much funding for the, you know, for, for veterans, how much funding for, um, you know, Department of Homeland Security, how much for NIH, and and to and to and that is a statement of priorities for for the, for the country. And so um, I would argue that that has gotten a bit. Um, out of whack, uh, or maybe has been for a long time, but I don't get too many lobbyists who are coming in and saying, don't, you know, don't spend money, uh, you know, um, at all, you know, or, or reduce, you know, reduce the deficit, reduce the, uh, that, that's usually a, that's usually a member driven thing, mostly on the other side. Um, 
Oh, well, again, during the Tea Party, you did have, you had constituents calling and coming in and, and, and urging that. But uh, rarely do I have a lobbyist approach me and say, cut the deficit. Okay. You know, they don't really care about the deficit. I want to get back to impeachment in a second. We're talking with Mark Savasco. He is Congressman Ted Lieu's chief of staff. Congressman Ted Lieu represents California. California's 33rd congressional district in Los Angeles, in and around Los Angeles. All the opinions expressed by Mark Savasco reflect those views of the David Feldman show, but not necessarily Congressman Ted Lou's. I, I want to throw you a, a curveball here. I was reading a speech given by Kristalny Georgieva. She is managing director of the International Monetary Fund, the evil International Monetary Fund, right? They're, they're kind of loan sharks to the third world. Not necessarily good people. I don't think my listeners would be fans of the IMF or the World Bank, but the managing director of the IMF is warning about two things this year. She's warning about climate change, and she's also warning about inequality, income inequality throughout the world. And she talks about something called financial deepening. That's the size of the financial sector of our economy relative to the country's entire economy. And she says that when financial deepening starts, it's good for any country because it gives anybody, everybody access to capital. But as it grows, as the financial sector grows and grows and becomes deeply entrenched in the economy, it creates income inequality because only rich people have access to the lobbyists and understand complicated financial instruments. Income inequality grows from financial deepening. And she said in her speech Friday, she said that by 2006, uh, 25 percent of the S&P 500 was generating almost half of all profits. And that made the financial sector the single largest sector of our economy, or at least our corporate economy. And then what followed was gross income inequality and and a collapse. She says that if you look at history, when financial deepening gets so severe, the income inequality starts and then the entire the entire the entire economy collapse collapses. And then, as we saw in 2008, we literally had a bailout capitalism. So how how do how do the Democrats, you know, Bernie will demonize the health insurance companies. How do you demonize the entire financial sector without coming across as a Trotskyite? How can you say to the American people what the IMF and the World Bank knows that when the financial sector gets too big, they destroy the economy. How do you say that without sounding like Lenin? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a. I, I, Let's I, just talk I, about you, impeachment. I just thought I'd. You put your. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, look, I, I think you've tapped into it. You're right. It's, that's a difficult. Uh, Look, the way I talk about it in simple terms, and then we can move on to people. Yeah. I know you want to, you want to get there. More, more, more interesting stuff probably to listeners. But, um, what I, what I would sort of argue is, especially to people that are skeptical of maybe, um, and look, I, I, I don't, I don't know exactly, 
you know, how, how, uh, you know, Senator Sanders, Senator, uh, Senator Warren would sort of define themselves. I've heard Warren talk a little bit about, you know, being a capitalist, but, but, but wanting to have sort of these, um, you know, these sort of rules of the road, these sort of safeguards. I think Bernie speaks in, in, in some of the same language. I, I think that's important for people, even if it's, even if you have revolutionary ideas, I do think it's important to put it in terms that, um, and you do want to change the world for the better, and that's great. I think you do have to put it in terms that make people feel comfortable, uh, the, the majority of people feel comfortable. I know that can be frustrating for those that may be at least sort of like emotionally and, and intellectually, uh, you know, ahead of the game where we're all, they're ready to move to the, you know, mm-hmm. third, fourth, and fifth step. Uh, you know, a lot of this country was, you know, uh, grew up thinking that, you know, communism and socialism were the enemy. Right. Um, and it's, it's really hard to change those deeply held beliefs unless you're showing people step by step how this improves their lives and how it makes them better. So rather than talk about the big, heady, you know, sort of like political ideological fight, I prefer to get down into the, the micro, you know, uh, the micro policy issue that, that you're talking about, right? Should we, should we extend public education system to include a, at least a two-year degree, um, you know, in a community college or a four-year uh, bachelor's degree. Uh, does that make sense? We already do it through secondary education. Doesn't it make sense that in the 21st century, where people are going to need to be more educated, going to have need more specialized skills, that, that we should do something like that, right? I think that's something people can understand. It's tangible. Child care, you know, for example. I know Elizabeth Warren talked about this on the trail a lot. Um, you know, providing a universal pre-K for American kids. Uh, that, that's you know, that's something that every young couple can understand um, and, and, and relate to, and, and they know that it would make a measurable impact in their lives. Uh, you know, uh, student debt, another one, of course, that, that millions and millions of Americans, uh, uh, you know, can experience firsthand. So, yes. anyway, my, my two cents on that. Yes, and that two cents is now worth one cent because of deflation. <laughs> Because of quantitative easing. Because of quantitative easing, yes. <laughs> Trump is accusing, let's go back to impeachment. Trump is accusing the Democrats of a rush to impeachment. Now, the Democrats felt they had to rush the impeachment trial because of something that's pressing. What is, what is so pressing that the Dems couldn't drag out the hearings in the House? That they're, they're concerned about something very specific about our elections. It, it, they're afraid that the that the Russians and Donald Trump are working together to steal another election, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was before you said it, that was to be my answer, which is that what we're essentially accusing him of, the main thing, is that he's trying to cheat in the election. And you can't, you know, this would be, somebody made this analogy, I think, on Twitter or somewhere, I thought. Um, and it's like saying, we're going to determine... The, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with what happened with the Astros in, in, in Major League Baseball, right? They're, they're uh, sign manager stealing. and sign yeah. stealing. Right? Yeah, sign stealing. They got in some big trouble. It would be like us saying, we're gonna, we're gonna let the, let, uh, we're gonna base the punishment of the Astros on next year's World Series title and we'll see who wins. Well, if they're, if they're, if they're, if they're cheating in the game now, we, we can't let the outcome of the World Series determine what their what their punishment will be. This is sort of the same idea here. We'll just let the election decide. He's cheating in the election. So at the very least, I think we have the responsibility to let the American people know that, right, and to do this publicly and out in the open and make sure people are aware of it. But, but ideally, we have the responsibility to do our very best 
to remove a president who we consider to be a threat to democracy. Uh, you know, I, yeah, it was funny, the, um, not funny, but it was, I thought it was, uh, the best sort of saying I've seen on this, which was, um, the house, uh, the house managers responded to the White House response. There's a lot of paperwork now going back and forth. And um, they called it the trifecta of constitutional misconduct. Wow. So it was abuse, abuse of power for personal gain, betrayer of the national interest through foreign entanglements, and the corruption of our elections. Those are the three things that the fa- framers were you know, worried about. And Donald Trump kicked every single box. And he didn't do it to for some greater policy goal. He right. didn't do it because he was trying to fulfill a promise, you know, campaign promise. He did it to try to cheat in the next election. And right. then when he got caught, he hid the evidence. He continues to obstruct the evidence. And he's blocking us from, from learning more about what he actually did. So this is the crux of it. And this is why he couldn't wait. It's not the kind of thing that you can just let, let, uh, let go until until December. And I think it was November. pretty. I thought it was pretty smart on Pelosi's part to just have two articles of impeachment because everything has gotten so cloudy, so confusing. The simplicity: two articles, obstruction of Congress, and uh, abuse of power. An abuse of power. Is there any concern? from Mitch McConnell about Russian interference in the 2020 elections. I just read that Burisma, the the gas company that Hunter Biden worked for, the Ukrainian gas company, has been hacked by Russia, I would assume, to manipulate records or find evidence or create evidence against the Bidens. Has the House passed any bills to protect our elections and is Mitch McConnell willing to take any of them up? The House has passed several bills um, uh, to try to deal with um, uh, to try to deal with election meddling from, from far, uh, foreign uh, uh, nations. One called the Shield Act, um, and Mitch McConnell hasn't taken up any of those. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, you ask how how worried is Mitch McConnell about uh, you know about Russian interference in our election? I, my sort of take on it, and this is just an educated guess based on his actions, is that as long as he believes that the Russians are trying to help Donald Trump, I don't think he cares. Right. Which tells you tells you all you need to know about Mitch McConnell. Yep. Yep. Well, before you go, this is great. We're, we've been talking with Mark Savasco. He's Congressman Ted Lieu's chief of staff. And uh I love having him on. Let's talk about Devin Nunes, the ranking member of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. He used to be the chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And when he was chairman, he was always running up to the White House, meeting mysteriously with the president's aides. Nobody knows what kind of information he was giving. Well, I don't want to get sued by Devin Nunes. He tends to be litigious. You know, he's a Republican and he says we live in, you know, trial lawyers have to be put out of business and there are too many lawsuits. But it's probably because of Devin Nunes. He's he threatened to sue Congressman Ted Lieu when your boss suggested last month that Devin Nunes was working with Lev Parnas to assist Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump. What did Congressman Ted Lieu say in December? What was he suggesting? And this is just public information. You're not talking out of school. 
That's right. Yeah, this is. Uh, I'll just stick to uh, to what's sort of been publicly released since there's potential litigation <laughs> to follow from this uh, this incident. But so actually, it's based on the the the, the letter that we received um, on December 31st from uh, from an attorney claiming to represent Devin Nunes. Uh, was that um, was was based on actually a fundraising email of all things that that, that Congressman Liu had sent out. So it wasn't, it wasn't anything official. It wasn't anything he said on the floor. Uh, although he has said things like this, you know, in other in other venues, they, they based it on a on a fundraising email, which was basically just, uh, hey, how terrible is Devin Nunez? You know, go here to you know to donate to my campaign so we can you know keep the house. Um, it's for our, our leadership pack, which um, you know, which actually we used to to contribute to. Uh, protect a lot of incumbents. And, um, you know, essentially we, we stated that Nunez worked with Lev Parnas and conspired to undermine our government. Um, I think there's a lot more evidence now of that than there was maybe at the time that we sent the email. Um, but it was really rather shocking to get this, to get this letter, uh, on the last day of the year from this attorney based out of Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, uh, saying essentially they wanted a, a retraction and apology, and um, uh, otherwise uh, we could expect uh, we could expect legal action. So, um, Congressman uh, responded uh, uh, this past week. Um, what was his measured? Said, re- he had a measured response. Yeah, fairly measured response. I said to Ted after we sent it. I said, you know, um, you used to be this nice guy from Southern, really laid back from Southern California, and and five years with the New Jersey uh, chief of staff from New Jersey. <laughs> And uh, all of a sudden, <laughs> you're telling people to go screw. Uh, no, he he he, uh, he he wrote back and said, "I I I look forward to uh, to taking discovery from Congressman Nunez." Uh, uh, basically, put up or shut up. Um, I don't and, think uh, it was. I, I thought it was even more. I thought. Uh, uh, do, you, do you want me to read you the last? The last I can read the last line. Yes, I think I have it right here. It says. Uh, I welcome any lawsuit from your client and look forward to taking discovery of Congressman Nunez, or you can take your letter and shove it. Sincerely, Ted W. Liu, member of Congress. Ah, shove it. So that was the that was the response. Um, yeah, it, that's a legal it's a legal term. I'm not sure. If you're familiar with it, uh, <laughs> I'm a lawyer, but um, you know. yeah, I, I don't. They're not really certain. It was the letter. The the charge was from a fundraising letter and nobody's really certain whether or not you can sue a fellow congressperson you can't sue him for something he said on the floor but you that's true that's true it's called the speech and debate clause we're protected uh they're protected members of congress are protected with uh, what they say officially on the floor this is a little bit different you know look he'd be claiming that this is slander i guess right that we're somehow you know lying and that there's some uh, you know, that there's some quantifiable harm to his, you know, his character. Mm-hmm. Um, look, look, nothing Ted Lewis says in a, in a fundraising email is going to change, I think, what people think about Devin Nunez and his, and his character. But, uh, again, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of leave it there because I don't want to get too deep into it in case this actually ends up going to, to trial. But uh, again, I, yeah, I, uh, to reiterate what the congressman said in his letter, I would look forward to that discovery. Yeah. Uh, because, because truth is a defense. And so, truth is a what? Actually, is a what? Tr- truth is a de- is a defense in in a, right. in a libel suit. Right. So, if if Congressman Lewis telling the truth in his fundraising email, which is that he did conspire with Lev, with Nunes did conspire with Lev Parnas to undermine our own government, well, we would have the right to discovery and the right to prove that in the court of law. And I'm not so sure that Devin Nunes wants to go down that road. But oh, yeah. So uh, I have one last question. I have one last sure. question about this. 
and you don't have to respond to how I see the story. I'm going to just tell you how I see the story, and then I'll ask you a question because I can't. I don't want to get you to speak on this specific thing. But for my listeners, Lev Parnas, uh, this Soviet-born operative who was working with Rudy Giuliani, and he was arrested for trying to influence uh, Sessions out of Texas, and that's a whole other thing. But Lev Parnas gave an interview with Anderson Cooper and Rachel Maddow last week saying that he was working with Devin Nunes's office to pressure the Ukrainian government to find dirt on the Bidens. And there was going into the Christmas holidays, there was evidence that Lev Parnas and Devin Nunes exchanged a few texts, but it was hard to prove. And then the the doors blew open when Lev Parnas revealed that he had been working with Derek Harvey, a retired U.S. Army colonel who currently serves on the staff of Congressman Devin Nunes. And it, in my opinion, it almost is in, it's pretty hard to deny that there was a lot of correspondence going on back and forth between Derek Harvey from Devin Nunes's office and Lev Parnas trying to find dirt on the Bidens, trying to get U- Ukraine to find dirt on the Bidens. So Devin Nunes is going to probably claim plausible deniability. You're Ted Lou's chief of staff. Here's my question. Hypothetically speaking, what are the chances in your office that a retired colonel now working in your office could make contact with Lev Parnas, exchange texts to dig up dirt on the Bidens without you as chief of staff or Congressman Ted Lieu knowing about it? Hmm. Uh, well, I don't want to. I would think how big is a congre- office- how big is a how big is a congressional staff? How so, many people do you have working over there? My staff is sixteen. That's eight in Los Angeles and and uh, eight here. Uh, so there's seventeen of us total. If you're um, chairman now, of the House Intelligence Committee, as Devin Nunes right. was, does that increase the size of your staff? It does. Yeah, right. So that was the point I was going to make. Is I, yeah, I'm guessing this is a committee staff. He's probably got at least a dozen. Um, committee staffers, maybe more, um, uh, and the minority. Yeah, it's probably, yeah, it's probably about a dozen, maybe eight to a dozen. Um, look, I think in a well-run office, there's a, approximately zero percent chance that the chief of staff or the staff director of the wouldn't know about it. And, you know, maybe slightly less that, that the member wouldn't know. I mean, it isn't completely implausible that you would protect the member from something like that and not, um, you know, and not want to read them into all of the, the details, especially if you think you're doing something a little shady. Um, uh, I, I, I don't have a ton of experience in that because we, we don't really do anything like that. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not really, not really sure how one would go about doing that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I would just say something comparable to that. If it was something that was a major thing that was important to the congressman and there were, ex, you know, pretty major external stakeholders involved. Yeah, I would, as the chief of staff, want to have readouts on that. And, and I imagine. I would be briefing the boss on that, you know, pretty regularly. Yeah. I I think Republicans tend to put not too bright people in office so things can go on without their saying it. That's my impression that Republicans 
find useful idiots to run for office. Well, we've been joined by Mark Savasco. He is the chief of staff for Congressman Ted Lieu, who represents California's 33rd congressional district, some parts of Los Angeles. All opinions expressed by Mark Savasco reflect those of the David Feldman show, but not necessarily Congressman Ted Lieu's. Thank you for taking time to do this. It's a great civics lesson, and we're all very grateful. How do people follow you and Congressman Ted Lieu on Twitter? It's my pleasure, David. Uh, the Congressman, you can follow him at, at Rep Ted Lieu or at Ted Lieu. And I am at M. Sabasco. Can you stay on the line? I was going to say shove it, but can you stay, can you stay on the line? That <laughs> That's how I was going to close. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Stay, stay on the line for yeah. one second. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. The Iowa caucuses are fewer than two weeks away. A new poll shows Joe Biden may be benefiting from that split between the Warren and Sanders camp. The New York Times endorses both Senators Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. And the impeachment trial of Donald Trump starts today in the Senate, which means Warren, Klobuchar and Bernie Sanders are stuck in Washington, D.C., while Biden and Buttigieg are free to campaign in Iowa. The Government Accountability Office, a nonpartisan agency, says the White House's Office of Management and Budget acted illegally when it failed to deliver $400 million in congressionally mandated aid to Ukraine, thereby poking holes in Donald Trump's legal defense that you can't impeach if a crime has not been committed, the GAO saying a crime has been committed. Meanwhile, the Washington Post reports that Donald Trump has told 16,241 lies since taking office, and that the rate of those lies is increasing exponentially, with nearly half those lies told last year. White nationalists celebrated the birthday of Martin Luther King by marching on Virginia's state capital in support of the right to bear arms. Martin Luther King was struck down by an assassin's bullet Christina Georgieva, the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, said in a speech on Friday that the next financial disaster will be caused by climate change and income inequality. For more on this, we're joined by Alan Minsky, the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. He is also the producer of the Nation magazine's podcast, Start Making Sense with John Wiener and... He is, most importantly, executive producer of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, heard nationwide (laughs) on Pacifica. Welcome back, Alan Minsky. Let's do some horse race stuff. Normally, I don't like to do horse race stuff, but the starting gun has been fired in Iowa. We're fewer than two weeks away. How do you see this shaking out in Iowa? Well, before I get that, I do want to alert the listeners of the David Feldman show to know that right before you do an interview with David, 
he, the final thing he says to you is, don't be nervous. And I have to say that I am actually more nervous, of course, appearing on the David Feldman show than I would be if I am up on that Iowa debate stage, you know, on a podium right next to Mayor Pete. That Maybe. would be a piece of cake. This, I know it's practically like, you know, my testimony before God. Well, it's, so, um, it's David, interesting. We, we're run by McKinsey consultants. All these questions <laughs> I'm going to ask you have been focus group. But go ahead. <laughs> sure. So I hope people forgive my nerves. Um, <laughs> the horse race in Iowa. Um, <laughs> you know, I want to maybe start going into jokes about it being like a muddy track and who's a mother. But that doesn't sound right. Even. <laughs> no, uh, you know, <laughs> the track was muddy this past week. Yes. I, I do think um, um, I think we did at least discover that Elizabeth Warren is doing everything she can or thinks she should do to try to win. Um, and, of course, the Bernie Warren kerfuffle. And by the way, as we speak, the, the two of them were just down in South Carolina and as part of the uh, events around uh, Dr. King's birthday being celebrated, they, the two of them, an array of presidential candidates were walking down the street, but Elizabeth and Bernie actually locked arms together. So, Maybe the the period of bad feeling between them personally is over. We, we certainly hope the friends are reunited. I, I can't help but say, though, that I think in terms of the horse race in Iowa, um, what did transpire between Warren and Sanders uh, has polluted my thinking about where I felt things were going, um, because I did feel before that event that Bernie Sanders had tremendous momentum. And I can't tell you whether uh, that episode may have stalled that momentum um, as we speak. And, uh, you know, one of the great things about Sanders is that when you talk to people about, um, you know, do you support, who do you support, Sanders, Biden, Buttigieg, Warren, whoever, Bloomberg, uh, the level of uh, support that each person is feeling, like are you certain to vote for this candidate and maybe waver away from it, was much more solid, solidly was there the support behind Bernie Sanders was strong than any other candidate. And that's been that way for a while, even when he wasn't doing that well in the polls. But it remained high as he was climbing up the polls to the front of the polls, as he did uh, towards the end of 2019 into early January. Um, again, we'll just have to see how it plays what out. What are you saying? Is, it, did he peak too early? And is Biden? Biden seems well, I have, to. I just don't I don't I don't know what what to make of what transpired in terms of the horse race. I, I wish I had a crystal ball. Of course, I always would. But um, I did feel that Bernie had tremendous momentum going into the debate. I did feel that the establishment media, the pundocracy was going to go after Bernie like they never had before. I didn't anticipate it would come directly from um, his longtime ally, Senator Warren. And it wasn't and on policy. It wasn't on policy. Mm -hmm. Right. That's also somewhat surprising. I mean, there were efforts uh, by the CNN moderators to try to take him down on policy. And, of course, I, I felt the beneficiary was Joe Biden um, because of all of that, because, you know, if you do look or try to assess the appeal of Joe Biden, a lot was written earlier about Warren as a unity candidate. I'm not sure how much people felt that after that episode in terms of Warren and the person who is up there. You know, just not being unkind in his demeanor throughout um, as the ostensible front runner in the polls is kindly bumbling Joe Biden. Yeah. And um, and, you know, I, I don't think that that look is necessarily one that 
by definition, is not going to is not going to triumph. Um, George W. Bush was arguably elected twice to be the president of the United States um, with a whole slew of verbal gaffes, mm-hmm. et cetera. And of course, his, his attitude was his, his people felt that he was the guy who wanted to have a beer with. He was amiable, et cetera. I think something of that dynamic is transpiring with Biden. So I, I think, uh, and Buttigieg is there, you know, also I think benefited by the the thing that transpired between Warren and Sanders just because uh, he was out of the firing line. And, you know, if you want somebody with Biden's politics who is a uh, more impressive contemporary order, there's Mayor Pete. So who knows? Yeah, Rick um, Santorum, caucus, Rick Santorum won Iowa in 2012. He didn't know right, he had won. Ted, yeah, Ted Cruz won last time. It wasn't Donald Trump. So and Bernie, of course, all but tied. I do think that Bernie's um, campaign infrastructure, the solidity of his support, um, the incredible amount of money that he has, uh, I think is going to keep him going forward in the campaign for a while. Um, obviously, given the proximity of New Hampshire to both Vermont and Massachusetts, I do think that unless they really end up very close to each other in both the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary, I think Warren or Sanders, one of them will be in pretty deep trouble right. um, after New Hampshire. There's also the prospect of them taking one and two in both of them, which would you say it, go yeah. forward. Is it safe to say that unless Judge wins in Iowa, Iowa means nothing? Maybe if Elizabeth Warren wins Iowa, it has some significance. But if Biden wins Iowa or Bernie wins Iowa, it signifies absolutely nothing. No, I disagree. I think if Biden wins Iowa, um, only Bernie or Elizabeth will be viewed as uh, by the by the political class was again outside of an incredible comeback by one or the other mm-hmm. as being pretty wounded. Uh, the one that takes second would have a better hand. I mean, Bernie's in a tough position in terms of Iowa. If he doesn't win Iowa, um, uh, you know, I think the gambit now and the hope was to have Sanders win Iowa. I think he has a decent shot of winning Iowa still, in spite of last week. Again, he has the most passionate level of support. This is important when it comes to getting turnout for a caucus. And, you know, people look at Iowa, if you look at the details, you see that not that many people participate. And it's almost sort of this point of incredulity. How can the whole country be focused on this one extremely white state, by the way, uh, that has this oversized role, much more now than, than New Hampshire as well, um, in, in our, um, in our uh, choosing of the process by which we choose a president. And then the percent of people who participate is very low. And, and people need to understand two things about that this time. One is actually taking place the day after Super Bowl Sunday, which is rather ridiculous since that's, you know, all but a secular holiday in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And secondly, that it takes place in about a two hour window across the entire state. There's no capacity to, to register your caucus support before the caucus is convened. Uh, and again, in a rather uh, uh, archaic process. And the number of people who participate isn't that great. So the fact that Sanders has such strong base of support, you know, that you look at the poll numbers and then um, how certain are you going to vote for the candidate that you support? Sanders has been head and shoulders above every other candidate in that regard. Um, And, of course, in the final week, even though he may be stuck inside a Senate trial, the apparatus of the campaign is very strong. Now, the Senate trial, of course, is a mitigating factor. Yeah, let me ask you about the Senate trial in a second. But the Iowa caucuses Mm -hmm. for Bernie is a testing ground in 
his ability to mobilize his troops, not just to win Iowa, but it's a, an indicator of what he can do when he becomes president. How how good is he at orchestrating a revolution to give us Medicare for all, to tax the rich? So if he can't do it in Iowa, he's had four years to Look, show I, us what I a revolution looks like. If he can't pull it off in Iowa, well... Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think we're in a very, very difficult situation politically in the country and in the world. And I do very much believe that Sanders has come up with a template for remaking American politics that directly addresses the needs of the moment. And uh, but he is, is promising a revolution. He has to do it. He's promising that he's promising a revolution because he's he well, all he's really promising, David, is that a mechanism gets set into motion by which the public policy preferences of the broad public are achieved through the political process. Because if you look at the various positions that he has staked out. And then particularly highlighted there, there are one or two that are probably off the charts to the left in terms of where the public sentiment is coming to mind, obviously, is the idea that, you know, murderers should have the right to vote. That right. may not have majority support. But when you look at the, big you know, they pretty I, much have already voted if they kill somebody. I mean, how much more voting do you uh, need? You, I think mean, no, you made your point. I'm sorry. Um, go ahead. Well, I, um, <laughs> thank you for that. But the um, the um, um uh, on the major ticket items that he's best known for, um, which, you know, to, to work out a redistributive economics, uh, Medicare for all, uh, a now, of course, a, a, a frontal assault on the climate emergency um, and, uh, you know, some pretty, pretty healthy set of uh, government programs to uh, reset things like education across the society. Are, these are very popular. And the reason that none of them are the policy of the government, the federal government, or really many local and state governments, is because of the power of, you know, what I call the lobbying industrial complex, which is the mechanism through which big money controls our political outcomes. All right. So let me ask you, you're the, you're the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. You are progressive. Mm -hmm. That's not leftist. You're, I would assume when you say progressive, that's more Elizabeth than Bernie. No, no, I don't. I don't necessarily agree with that. Uh, the way that I mean, obviously, progressive is a very loaded term. But I would argue simply that the term was reborn uh, coming out of the 70s and 80s into the 90s and the noughts. Uh, probably the, the signature care figure in this before Bernie Sanders was Senator Paul Wellstone from Minnesota. And progressive, yes, came to mean the left wing of the Democratic Party. So but you're willing. You're not. Policy. You're not talking about overthrowing capitalism you're not questioning the premise of capitalism so much as you are speed limits guardrails and a lot of I, i'm not sure officers. that bernie sanders it's in, in all due respect to his his declaration of himself as a socialist he's a democratic socialist he is seems to be a constitutional republican socialist in that he's operating inside the parameters of the U.S. Constitution. Right. System. I agree with you. And, and I'm, I'm all in. A, he's not a revolutionary socialist. Yeah. Right. So and I'm, a, I'm all in on Bernie. Yeah. I, I think Bernie is right. a miracle of democracy. And if he can become president, it'll 
it'll be much better. Actually, I think the sad thing about Bernie Sanders is he may prove to be um, a uh, miracle of um, political insight and a miracle organizer, but a tragedy of democracy or what passes for democracy in our society, because I really do think his policy template is what's really needed by this country in the world right. as a way both to, to, to for the issues they address and also to revive democracy. And I don't think that obviously our system and its entrenched interests sort of exists to crush Bernie Sanders. So, so at what point? Weather. OK, so, you know, most of my listeners seem to be Bernie or bust. And right now I'm Bernie or bust. But the progressive Democrats of America, you have to pick a candidate. You have to be pragmatic and realistic. We've endorsed Bernie Sanders. You've endorsed Bernie Sanders. So let me ask you, what happens if, God forbid, Bernie doesn't have this groundswell of mass support what if it's a, a ground game and it's a game of inches and we're going past Super Tuesday and it's Bernie fighting it out between Biden and Elizabeth Warren and Mayor Pete? I don't believe it's ever going to be a brokered convention. But let's just say we're, you know, it's March and it's a tight race. Doesn't that hurt Bernie? And it hurts me to say this. If Bernie isn't winning the Democratic Party by a landslide then it suggests that the political will isn't there for his ambitious platform. I mean, he well, has to he has to take over the Democratic Party the way Trump took over the Republican Party. Otherwise, I don't think he can win on a, win on a ground game. Um, I actually think that, um, um, first of all, the scenario you described did sound like we'd be headed into a broker convention. If you're past Super Tuesday with, uh, oh, I'm very close to halfway, the halfway number of delegates having already been determined, and let's say the top four candidates are all four relatively close to each other, it seems almost certain like a broker convention, unless one candidate soon thereafter drops out and explicitly and fully is able to move their, their delegates over. And to a broker convention will always... Go with the status quo. Not, Hubert Humphrey. Yeah, very unlikely that 68 yeah, se will. Yeah, 76 yeah. was a brokered convention and it went to Ford, not Reagan. You, you, this. Um, yeah, and of course, this, this happened somewhat with McGovern, who was way ahead, but there had to be negotiation as to how uh, the, the, the votes would play out at the convention all the way you know, going into the convention. Um, and um, so, yeah, but those those years back then, certainly as of 72, it didn't have the as much democracy involved in the determination of the actual voting and, and delegates being chosen through primaries and caucuses directly uh, the way they do now. But that's that's history. And in the situation we're in now, I think largely what you're saying is probably correct. Um, but again, we'll see how it plays out. Um, if Bernie gets to um, the. A convention with a strong plurality of support. I think the issue is um, how much alienation of the Sanders um, base uh, does the Democratic establishment think will transpire. And in that scenario, you could see Sanders still getting the nomination. Okay, we're we're you short know, on I'm sure time. Some, some I'm sure some deal making would have to take place. That kind of thing. Right, we're short on time. I mean, this is, but I do want to throw that in. I think it's important to, to when you when you think forward about this. 
there is this hanging reality that the Sanders base will feel further alienated from a party if Bernie comes close but doesn't win. And that is something that will weigh on the conscience of the Democratic establishment. Yes. Well, we're, we're short on time. Over at PDAamerica.org, you have a great piece written by Dr. Bill Honigman. He's a progressive Democrat, and he's he talks about how Medicare for all will beat Trump and will be cheaper than the status quo. I, I really recommend that everybody go over to PDAamerica.org. It's a great organization. Your portfolio... Alan Minsky includes a vast array of expertise, one of which is economics. Uh, last Friday, inherited. The, it's inherited. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about your whether or not it's nature versus nurture, your expertise on economics. <laughs> I, I think it I, I think it might be uh, nurture. So the managing director of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, Kristalny G. Jorvi. Gervi, I don't know. Well, let's just say the managing director of the IMF spoke Friday. She said, the good news is the world is witnessing the first decline, decline in global inequality since the Industrial Revolution. But then she warns about climate change. She says the World Bank. OK, this is the IMF and the World Bank warning about climate change. The World Bank estimates that unless we alter the current climate path, an additional 100 million people will be living in extreme poverty by 2030. She added, this is the head of the, the, the head of the IMF says the economically vulnerable bear the brunt of climate change. So can a first world nation like the United States, can a first world party like the Democratic Party, can they debate climate change? Can we have a discussion in America about climate change? The IMF, the World Bank. I mean, if you talk about the demons of international finance, it's the IMF and the World Bank. They say climate change, man-made climate change is an existential threat that we have to address immediately. And it threatens the economically vulnerable. If the IMF and the World Bank can say this, why can't the Democratic Party debate, even hold a debate on climate change? Well, I, my, I was at the DNC meeting in San Francisco where the Sunrise Movement uh, put pressure on DNC chair Tom Perez and the DNC writ large to hold a climate debate. And, uh, you know, the line of the, you know, the DNC is we will not have any debates on single issues. And, um, and, you know, the whole thing played out the way it played out and it was pretty disgraceful. Was that to protect Biden? Is that, is that to protect Biden? Um, well, you know, the DNC protecting Biden, the Democratic political establishment protecting Biden. I, I, I'm guessing Joe Biden probably hasn't felt very protected by them. And there was a lot of sense and sentiment that, you know, for a while that Kamala Harris was the anointed candidate of the Democratic establishment or this other person might be. Uh, so, you know, this hasn't all really been like it was with Hillary Clinton, with Joe Biden stepping into the Hillary Clinton role from 2016 as the establishment's clear anointed candidate. Um, but... Um, the way I look at it actually extends beyond Biden. I think you have to look at it in terms of not 
the fact that the fossil fuel industries, of course, hedge their endorsements uh, in that, you know, roughly one quarter to one third of their money will go to the Democrats. Um, I don't know that the fear of the Democrats is the loss of that money per se. I mean, we all know, for instance, we were a call from a few months ago that, you know, Beto O'Rourke, congressperson from El Paso, had previously, as a congressperson, received slews of money from the fossil fuel industry. Money goes to Democratic candidates, particularly when um, they're incumbents and they want a war chest uh, and it's a very blue district. What are the, what's the fossil fuel industry going to do? Is it going to give money to throw money away to Republicans? Understanding that a Democrat is going to win the way political uh, parties operate in our country? No, they give to the Democrats. They give to the Democratic incumbents who then, you know, have a, uh, at best, as far as we're concerned, a hedged relationship with the fossil fuel companies. Usually they're more or less in their pocket as well, right? So, but I actually think the fear is not so much the loss of that money as the avalanche of money that can go against the Democrats if they break fully with the interests of the fossil fuel industry. And the way money in politics is currently, the fossil fuel industry right now could pour more, so much money into supporting Republican candidates that it would make the money that's been contributed by Robert Mercer or the Koch brothers look like petty change. So my sense is that's part of the um, logic of the Democratic establishment. Of course, I feel nonetheless as strongly as ever that they should completely break in every way they possibly can with the fossil fuel industry because the break has to happen for the sake of humanity. Okay, so that goes right to the heart of your question. And uh, maybe people can read the tea leaves of my response as to whether they think the contemporary Democratic Party um, can have the debate that you're asking them to have, given how how dependent they are locked into um, this um, symbiotic relationship with the fossil fuel industry, even as they primarily support the Republican Party. Yeah. Yeah. Noam Chomsky gave an interview saying that the Republican Party is a bigger threat to the planet than the Nazis because of their position on climate change. He, he just said that about the Republican Party. Uh, one, one could extrapolate that America may be a bigger threat to the planet than Hitler. If we don't move on climate change, and it looks like we can't, well, anyway... On that. Well, we'll move off of we'll move off of Trump's position if we have any Democrat elected. So we'll go back to the absolutely uh, worst case scenario. We'd go back to these absolutely weak, need, uh, inadequate things like the Paris Climate Accords. Um, you know, the Obama administration, while acknowledging climate change, signing on to climate change, and this goes towards Chomsky's point because he sees the difference between the two parties. Uh, but nonetheless, he cannot uh, debate at this point that the Paris Climate Accord, while superior to Trump's policy, was an inadequate response to climate change. I mean, right. The fact that it was non-binding just right there it was just sort of makes it a bit of a joke, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, nuclear proliferation treaties are not non-binding. Why is something like that stricter logic not applied to fossil fuel development? Yeah. Um, now, of course, the reason it isn't is because industrial technological society in our time is reliant upon the burning of fossil fuels. Uh, you know, JetBlue just made some headlines by saying they're going to be carbon neutral, not by having a massive, not by eliminating the fact that they have a massive carbon footprint by the fact that they're burning fossil fuels high up in our atmosphere as they propel their jets, but by, you know, doing offsets and purchasing the planting of trees. And, um, 
you know, basically industrial technological society as of yet cannot operate um, without uh, fossil fuels. So either that's going to change the way this, the broad society operates and just how integral, for instance, airplane travel is to contemporary society you know, cannot be overstated, especially from the perspective of the business class, right? They would acknowledge that it's absolutely essential, both in terms of transporting of goods and all the flying around that business people do, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But what country in the world, I think this really goes to the heart of it, what country in the world is best positioned to lead the technological revolution? In China. Um, China. China has, of course, the, the power of not having to deal with checks and balances in their government discrimination. However, in that you're you're uh, the Santa Anas are blown. Oh, there we go. Uh, right at the key moment, I was saying that the um, that the uh, university system uh, and therefore the scientific international scientific research community is centered in the United States of America, and the university research system in the United States, when it comes to um, doing research on issues which the market will in no way pursue because there's no promise of a rate of return for the type of research that takes place, that can only happen through government funding, uh, which, of course, has produced the government funding through the American University Research uh, System has produced so many of the technological advances that we all benefit from and probably many which we don't. Uh, well, what about the Resnicks who own Fiji Water? They just gave the biggest grant in the history of California to the university system to tackle to, climate change. To Caltech or was it? Yeah, Caltech. I think it's Caltech. Um, they're, they're good right, people, but, the owners of Fiji Water. They, they're good stewards right, but of again, the land. But, right, but again, uh, just a consistent federally funded program to develop. I was being sarcastic. Uh, I was being sarcastic. Well, we certainly can't rely upon anything other than uh, public policy and using democratic institutions to force that. Right. And for what it's worth, again, I think the two campaigns that have a good eye on that, not just Sanders in this case, but also Warren. Warren is a uh, um, the, the very important uh, economist, Mariana Mazzucato, I think has the has had Elizabeth Warren's ear for quite a while, and she is really the sort of theorist of the need for uh, government expenditure in order to propel uh, technological um, advancement. And um, so I do think both of those campaigns have that in their playbook, and they're necessary, absolutely necessary. In that sense, I think the United States can lead in a unique way. I mean, when you look at even the collective um, university research capacity of the European Union, it pales in comparison to the American university system. So, okay. yeah. So the polar ice caps are melting, glaciers are disappearing, and Joe Biden's climate change policy is a rising tide lifts all boats. Alan Minsky <laughs> is the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. He is also the producer of the Nation magazine's podcast, Start Making Sense. And most importantly, he's executive producer of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, heard nationwide on Pacifica. Can you stay on the line, sir? Oh, and, and PDAamerica.org. People should go there. And, and yeah, people can feel free to contact me as well as at Alan, A-L-A-N, at PDAmerica.org. What's your Twitter handle? We're on Twitter as, P, as Progressive Democrats of America, so look us up that way. Fantastic. Thank you. Stand in line for one quick second. Have you called in your backup e now, see if we can get some more brain power in this We thing? got one here. Roger. Fly it in, Co. 
Go ahead and call. Uh, he's, never mind, he's straightening up a little bit. Okay, okay, now let's everybody keep cool. We got the uh, limb still attached, the limb spacecraft's good, so if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. This is my favorite part of the show where I get to talk to one of the greatest comedy writers who ever worked in television. Jim Earl is a Peabody, an Emmy Award winning comedy writer, as well as an author and a musician. Let's go to Kennebunk, Maine where Jim Earl is standing by. Jim, so good to talk with you. A lot to go over. David Feldman, this is the distinguished Senator Susan Collins of Maine. Oh, hello, Senator. I, You know, they said it wouldn't last, but you and Jim Earl still shacking up, living in sin. How are you, Senator? Well, I'm fine, David, but there's been a lot of idle speculation regarding my last appearance on your skit show that I might have been slightly inebriated on Jack Daniels. Well, you were slurring your speech. Well, let me say this, and let me be clear. Nothing could be further from the truth. I believe you. I was completely shit-faced on sacramental wine, or as Mainers call it, leg opener. (laughs) Did you know, David, that the church hands that stuff out for free? (laughs) Yeah, just like the mouthwash at the Caribou Country Club. Oh, I do have a bad cold. I have to blow my nose. (laughs) David, I owe everything to my Catholic faith. Oh, I didn't know you. I didn't know you were a Catholic, Senator Susan Collins. Of course I am, David. You'll never know the true power of Jesus until you've woken up on the altar, hung over with two candles, stuck up your joy trail. (laughs) But I know my limits. I know my limits, David. This year, I made a vow to never have a hangover again. Oh, that's good. By staying drunk. (laughs) (laughs) 
Excuse me, David. Mama's gonna go pour her, herself another glass of thunder chicken. <laughs> thunder chicken? Hmm. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's dagotastic. Excuse me? What did you, you just say? Me. What did it's, you just say? It's dagotastic. That doesn't sound proper. David, don't lecture me. I'm well aware of the ill effects of Carlo Rossi Asti Spumante. <laughs> I myself am a victim of fecal alcohol syndrome. I think you're. I think you mean fetal. No, fetal alcohol. David, I said fecal alcohol syndrome. No, I'm pretty sure, with all due respect, Senator Susan Collins, it's fetal. Fecal. Fecal. Fetal. Fecal alcohol syndrome. You see, David, on the night of my conception, my father, completely wasted on Shardles and James, <laughs> crapped into my mother's awaiting mouth. <laughs> That's right, David, you laugh. Go ahead. He unloaded a log. Bigger than Paul Bunyan's prostate. <laughs> and let me say this. Who could blame him? <laughs> Back in those days, that was the only way you could legally consummate a marriage in May. <laughs> Now, not being a Mainer, no. David, I bet you're asking, how in the world could your father do something like that to your mother? <laughs> yes. Well, for one thing, he was really good at crouching. <laughs> also, he had plenty of time to position himself. Well, she was asleep. So so stop with the value judgments already. <laughs> uh, I... Yes, David, marriage traditions are very important. Mm. But Maine had to get rid of that marriage consummation requirement. Too many wives were trying to skirt the law by substituting rabbit pellets. <laughs> I guess those days are long over, David. Yeah. Nowadays, you consummate a marriage in Maine just like Americans do all over the country. With perhaps a romantic meal at your favorite dining spot, mm -hmm. some dancing at a local ballroom, and a trip back to the honeymoon cottage for a massive crap on your bride's chest. <laughs> Do 
Yeah, I... Coincidentally, David, crapping on your wife's chest is still how you become a Republican. (laughs) I guess I'm a registered Republican. I didn't know that. David, did you know what my favorite drink is? The next one! All right. It's a little early in the morning, Senator, and you are running for reelection. You're going to be a, a juror in this impeachment of our president. Uh, well, OK. All right. David, have you ever been so drunk that you crapped in the main state house jacuzzi? <laughs> Just asking. No, I've never had the pleasure of being invited to sit in the main state house jacuzzi, but. I bet you didn't even know that Maine State House had a jacuzzi. I didn't. Well, it did after my friend was through with it, if you know what I mean. No, I don't know what you mean. It means I created my own jacuzzi with explosive diarrhea. Like a true moderate Republican. Yes. I certainly did, Mm. and I'm very proud. Thank you for your service. Yes, David. You know, my husband, Tom, is very (laughs) concerned about my drinking and has pleaded with me never to touch the sweet nectar of Dionysus again. Ah, Dionysus, the... The god of wine and pleasure and song and cardinal delight. No, get your mind out of the gutter, David. I'm talking about my husband's gay lover, not (laughs) booze. Your husband, Tom, has a gay lover named Dionysus? Yes, of course he does, David. Did you know? I'm originally from Caribou. The city of Caribou. Yes, Caribou, Maine. So naturally, I love alcohol. Alcohol. Is anybody out there? Yeah, no, I I get it. I get it. That's a good joke. I see the Jim Earl, Peabody, and Emmy Award winning comedy writer. While Tom is off making love to Dionysus, he's writing jokes for for your speeches. That's a good joke. Oh, thank you, David. Have you ever been to Bangor? Bangor, Maine. Yes. That's where... Bangarians have our 31-foot-tall statue of Paul Bunyan. Oh. Trying to tell a Mainer there's no such person as Paul Bunyan. It's like trying to tell them there's no such thing as an anal orgasm. (laughs) Just don't waste your time on that. They believe in Paul Bunyan and move on. That's what a pragmatist and a moderate does. I'm a moderate pragmatist. Yes. But, David, did you know? Do you know what's the difference between a Maine woman and a moose? No, I do not. 50 pounds and a flannel from L.L. Bean.
Jamie. there some mean some mean who some mean drug telling you a fucking knock knock joke (laughs) i have to go now too i'm sorry what did you say i have to go now too did you just call jimmy jimmy come quickly mama needs another bottle of hobo stank (laughs) I think we're out of that. I'll have to get you something else. I am the distinguished United States Senator Susan Collins of Maine. And and my pussy smells like Captain Morgan. <laughs> Jimmy. Jim? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, hi, Dave. Jim, you gotta, you got I call to, you gotta take care of this senator. Uh, I, I, I can't do anything about it. Her handlers to handle that stuff. I need some rice cubes. Good luck with the impeachment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she can't hear you right now. Sorry, Jim. We'll, we'll talk later in the show if that's okay with yeah. you. Okay. Jimmy. Thank you. Yeah. Jimmy. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. You sad, pathetic hump. Oh, boy, we caught that on tape. Let's go to Madberry. I don't know where my glasses are. Let's go. I'm like freaking, what's that chick's name from Scooby-Doo who can't find her glasses? Hey. God, it's the worst thing. You're in Madbury, New Hampshire, Bacon. There's nothing to see. You're lucky, Mr. McGee. <laughs> you, you, oh, my God. You know that? You know what? It's so clear outside. You can see the stars. It's, it's, I mean, it's no, uh, it's no Montana, but, you know, freaking hey, it's not bad okay. for a new All right. Do you mind? Do you, I, I know you want to take over the show, and I know you're sabotaging. No, I'm trying to make glasses. Oh, Mr. Innocent. Oh, I'm handicapped. I can't see. Next thing I know, I don't have a show anymore because of David Bacon. David Citizen Bacon travels around New Hampshire interviewing the candidates. What do you have for us today? Can I just say, like, you know, happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day, the day after thing? Yes. And, you know, rather than say anything about that, go listen to Democracy Now! because you'll actually hear tape of him for an hour talking. And yes. there's nothing better than that. Democracy Now!, Andy Goodman, the best. Right. And so, we, okay. And, and they play his speech on Vietnam. That he delivered. Yeah, and it's amazing. Yeah, he delivered at Riverside Church a year before he died. And he was talking about how America 
makes things bad for the poor, not just in the United States, but in Vietnam and around the world. Stop breathing into the microphone, Bacon. It's it's just a phone. It's not a microphone. It's just the second part of what you call it. Your breathing annoys me. I have to breathe. How do you stop breathing? Okay. By holding your breath. Okay. that's, that's obvious. Uh, so I understand that you have Naomi Klein, the author of The Shock Doctrine. I have, I, I, uh, yes, I have. She came out, her and uh, Cus- John Cusack came out to uh, Stump, I guess it's called, for Bernie. Um, and Naomi Klein came to the Women's March in uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and then so did Bernie. And then Cusack joined them in the next two uh, events in New Hampshire. I only saw them at the the, 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 the one in Exeter. I didn't see them then uh, later in uh, Manchester. Okay. Um, so, yes, I got to talk with uh, Naomi Klein very briefly, but I was kind of invading her space, you know, so I just could just compliment her and stuff. But I didn't get to interview her or anything like that, really. So okay. we'll just get a little clip of her, and then someone will talk all about her, and then we'll hear her. And then we'll hear Cusack uh, introducing Bernie, and it's all good stuff. Okay, here we go. Why is this not playing? What is- because you're hitting the wrong button. And there's like a thousand people at this event. But why is this not playing? Hang on. Again, that's not, I don't know. Yeah, because you're sabotaging the show. Here we go. Here we go. You're awesome, Naomi. Wow. I, I, I didn't even know you were going to be here. I'm David Bingham with the David Feldman Show, but uh, your books, everything you've done is just so good. Yeah. It, it makes so much sense that you're supporting Bernie. I mean, why? Who else could you support? Yeah. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that we've got here. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Are you going to go to Exeter with him today? Uh, yep. Yeah, awesome. We camping all weekend. Oh, awesome. So I'll get to see you again then. Thank you so much. I know. I know. You're, you're amazing. Thanks again. <laughs> yeah, this is David Bacon from the David Feldman Show. I'm talking with a gentleman who has a great front row seat, and I don't know why he has some special privilege to be able to see Bernie when he talks, but oh my gosh. And there's going to be a couple other people early uh, before him, uh, John Cusack apparently, and then also Naomi Klein. And uh, I think this gentleman here, if you want to say your name, you can, knows something about Naomi Klein. Yeah, so I'm Jeff Ackley. I'm the executive director of the Eco-Enlightened Charitable Organization. Oh. And a big fan of Naomi Klein. She uh, is Canadian. She started, uh, she's an author. She wrote a book called uh, uh, Noble Label, which is about sweat straps. That was the first one. She wrote another... uh, uh, book, if you ever heard or read about it, called uh, Shock Doctrine, Shock Doctrine wrote, right? yeah. which was a brilliant, brilliant book. Uh, and then uh, she wrote, uh, I forget her last book, but in between she wrote a book called This Changes Everything, which is about the about climate crisis and the fact that, that solving it means we got to change everything that we do. Right. Uh, how we live, how we work, how we play. Right, right. Um, great, great book, great read, and um, she's she's brilliant. She's right. really good. So are you, are you you're excited to see her? I probably, maybe almost as much as Bernie, just uh, Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So she's she's been influential in what I do, and, and I'm focused on getting people to think differently about the climate crisis. Right. And the problem being that people just don't want to think about it because right. it's too big and scary, and uh, we don't face it every day. Right. So the goal is to get people to imagine what the world what the world might look like if we were to solve it. Right. So we call it the eco enlightened age. Right. And when they do, they get a little more positive and more interested in doing it. So right. Well, things to see she has to say. Awesome. Well, I think they're going to start. Thank you so much for your time. Now listen. Um, as you know, we have a reality show star as a president. 
And a big part of that is because we have corporate media in this country that likes the ratings and the clicks that reality show style politics delivers. They like the brawls, they like the betrayals, they like the manufactured dramas. And in 2015 and 2016, Trump delivered all of that to them on a silver platter, and they could not stop covering it because they got addicted to the highest ratings any of them had ever had. And lo and behold, Trump won the nomination and then the presidency. And now, the same media is trying to trump up the same sort of thing, even without Trump. And it's not going to work. We are here. We are part of this beautiful movement because we know that even if a game show clown happens to be the president, this is no game. And we are here saying, not me, us. Because we know that even if the White House has turned into the set of some twisted, never-ending, nuclear-armed reality TV show, this is in fact not a show. This is reality. And we need a real human being in the White House who gets this, the stakes, the unfathomable stakes of the moment we are living, who gets it in their bones. And that person is Senator Bernie Sanders. And then a congressman named Bernie Sanders came onto the scene. And you could immediately see this was a guy who had the future in his eyes. This is a guy who um, had remarkable courage. And this is a person who had a, a, a deep and a powerful connection to the truth. He spoke about the absolute need for justice and equality and dignity for all people. And it, it was a singular voice and unrelentingly powerful in its moral clarity. He offered a principled, visionary critique of American empire. He publicly, loudly, and boldly rejected the hideous lie that unchecked greed and predatory capitalism in all of its cruelty was good, that it was in fact the planet's only means of survival, that we must all bow allegiance to this ruling orthodoxy of Earth. He kept telling us there was another, better way, and he kept telling the truth. But he told us what we needed to hear, not what we wanted to hear, because he respects us. When a person respects you, they tell you the fucking truth. But when a person respects you, they tell you the truth. Now, sometimes the truth is not always a pleasant thing. Sometimes illusions can be very seductive. But he was unrelentingly honest. And as it is with truth-tellers, he was often speaking his truth alone, sometimes famously and literally, literally a lone man in an empty chamber house bearing witness for the victims of another war built and sold on lies. This was a special man. This was a man of vision. This is a man who, in my tradition, they'd say it has the Holy Spirit in him. And this is a fighter that has less quit in it than anybody I've ever seen. And over the years, he spoke, he worked, he organized. He wouldn't go away. 
He had made himself the most troublesome man for those in power. He was not obedient. He did not bow down to the almighty dollar. He never took that road more traveled, the easier, softer way. That's not who he is. And over the coming 40 years, it became clear to us, a lot of us anyway, that he was one of the true inheritors of the mantle of the great American voices for justice. He stands shoulder to shoulder with those in history who have been the moral conscience of our time. And like Dr. King, Bernie Sanders voiced the forbidden connections between capitalism, imperialism, racism, sexism, global warming in the 80s, look it up on YouTube, and the era of endless wars that he saw coming, and of course the endless war economies Eisenhower warned about. And for 40 years, we've endured this neoliberal class war from above. And for 40 years, Bernie Sanders has been there fighting back. You know what? For four decades, Bernie was right. Again, we have never, ever, ever in our lifetime Great job, John Cusack. Great job. Okay, let's move on. Uh, clip... Letter one. Yes. So this is just, this is going to be Bernie. Uh, this is going to be the conclusion of his speech at Exeter. Um, and then just right before it, I'm just going to, uh, let's see, uh, the, 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 it is right before the questions, you know, to the audience and stuff. And then I talk with him just briefly out, out on the street. And so I just like, he, and he comments to me, but, um, you talk you know, to I Bernie just, just for a second, just for a second. Wow. Um, but, um, you know, I would play the whole speech if we could and blow off all this other crap, you know, because he is amazing and okay. it's the best. But, is... you know, we'll play just a, just a nice little clip of, of the conclusion to his speech. Okay. Good luck, Bernie. I know you're going to win. I know you're going to do it. Hey, thanks very much. You're the best. I can't wait to hear in the Oval Office. Did you get grabbed by Secret Wait, Service? And no, 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 no. They're all good. Difficult moment in American history. We have a president who is not only, and it gives me no pleasure to say this, who is not only a pathological liar, but who is running one of the most corrupt administrations in the history of our country. We are facing an existential threat in terms of climate change. We have more income and wealth inequality today than at any time since the 1920s. We have a political system which allows billionaires to buy elections, while at the same time, half of the people in this country are living paycheck to paycheck, wondering how they're going to be able to put food on the table, go to the doctor, or get their car repaired if it breaks down. This is the moment in American history where we need to stand up to the corporate elite, who, by the way, and the 1%, who over the last 30 years have seen a $21 trillion increase in their wealth, while the bottom half of Americans have actually seen a decline in their wealth. This is the moment when the 99% have got to come together we have got to reject Trump's desire to divide us up based on the color of our skin or where we were born. We have got to stand together 
around an agenda that works for all of us, not just the people on top. And let me say to you something that I think no other candidate for president will tell you or maybe ever has told you. And that is, here's the truth. You know, John Cusack said, tell the truth, let me tell you the truth. Here's the truth. No president, not Bernie Sanders or anybody else, can do it alone. Because we are taking on the extraordinary power of Wall Street, insurance companies, drug companies, fossil fuel industries, military industrial complex, prison industrial complex, 1%, people who own the media. They have incredible power. And what this campaign is about is not just beating Trump, as important as that is. It is transforming this country. And the only way we do it, the only way that real change in America has ever taken place, think about history, think about the labor movement of workers coming together to fight for justice. Think about the women's movement, women and their male allies coming together to say women will not be second-class citizens in America. Think about the civil rights movement and the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., whose birthday we celebrate on Monday. And what King understood, one of the great leaders in American history, is that you can't just do it from the top. He was an organizer, millions of people standing up for racial justice. Think about the gay movement and the gay community standing up, fighting back with their straight allies. Think about the environmental movement, young people all over this planet standing up and fighting back. So what this campaign is about, it's about beating Trump, yeah, but it's about more than that. It is about understanding that when we stand up by the millions and demand economic justice, social justice, racial justice, environmental justice, and when we stand together by the millions, there is nothing that can stop us. That's great. Okay. Isn't he amazing? Yeah. No, you, you did, you, you're doing good. You're doing good. Okay. So, and remember, Martin Luther King was a Democratic Socialist. Uh, well, he started off as a Republican. But he ended as a Democratic Socialist. Okay. So what do we have now? Is it number two? Bennett? Number two. Yes. Number two is going to be, so this is going to be Bennett. And this is, I'm going to ask him a health question in the gaggle, but it's just I just I just edit the thing out, and then I'm going to throw in the woman's question that he references. He makes it all about work, but the question that she asks is really about health care. I believe okay. you can be the judge. So you you interviewed Bernie, and well, now you... I, <laughs> well, I talked to Bernie for a second. <laughs> okay. No, I didn't interview Bernie yet, but we're working on that. What was more exciting, so, talking to Bernie or Tulsi? Well, every interaction I've had with Bernie is very similar. Okay. He, you know. All right. So this is David Bacon talking with uh, Senator Michael Bennett. Here we go. Yes. 
Hey, one of the things you talked about, hey, and nice to see you again. Nice I wanted you. to say this was a great crowd. It, it was you know, a wonderful crowd. Yeah, it's nice to see you finally getting the size crowds that you deserve, <laughs> you know, because you have a good message I to be out there. It. So you talked about how the women got the right to vote and how it was not really the, se- the, the legislative people that got it, but like the American people itself. Right. And then you've also mentioned that you don't think that uh, health, Medicare for all is for us because you don't think that stuff will get done in the legislative right. branch, I think. Right. Thus, are you then telling the American people if they want health care for all, they have to take it to the streets like the people did to get the women the right to vote? Uh, I think any big, important structural change requires that. Uh, I, I think that you've got to be strategic about how you're going to build a political movement. I think when, you, when the person at the end asked the very last question, which was, haven't we made it awfully hard in this country for people right, to work? work? So I had to say to them, well, guess what? I, you know, I, I'm not interested unless you have health insurance because I need it. And I can't afford to pay for it on my own. So I actually investigated the exchange after I lost Medicaid. And, you know, the deductibles are like $6,000. I mean, I don't even have $6,000 in the bank. So, I'm, so my question is, how would you propose to fill these gaps in coverage? And how does your, how does your health care plan solve that issue and I think the whole thing with cutting people off with their just a, a couple of dollars sure. over the limit Terrible. that doesn't encourage people to go back to work uh, to me that's a fundamentally at the core of all of it and I think that if we can be focused on that um, we can win elections we can build political momentum and we can build a progressive agenda that runs the gamut from immigration to climate to reforming the way our government works that's what I think and I don't think there are shortcuts I do believe in the specific case of Medicare for all because of the way Bernie designed that plan and the the others that have endorsed it have accepted the design what you're asking of the American people is that you replace our existing Healthcare system with a with it with with his system, which requires the elimination of all private insurance except cosmetic surgery and taxes. You know, at least on the order of thirty-one trillion dollars. I do not believe there is a broad constituency for that today in America. If you believe that's where we ought to head, then you you ought to lead a fight for that. Right, you right, don't right. vote for Bernie. Right. Go to California and say, you know what, we've learned in, about California's, it's got as many people as Canada has. Maybe there we could build one Start market, you know, right. and say this, we can prove it out. And b- by the way, as president, I would do everything to enable the states that wanted to go to a single-payer system to do that if they want to, right. you know, to not be interfered with by HHS or or the bureaucracy. It's not, I don't, you know, I'm not here to carry a brief for private insurance or keeping things the same. I right. think the current system doesn't work well. Because all of her issues were regarding health care and how that's connected to the job. And if we did have that Medicare for all, then that would be That is definitely that the way she sees it. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's the way she sees it. I think, you know, when I think about the kids in Denver, you know, who are largely on CHIP and whose parents are largely on Medicaid and who don't really see a reason to have that disturbed by Medicare mm-hmm. for all or anything else, what they want to know is that when they're working, they can actually have some hope of getting their kids out of poverty. And Medicare for all, I don't think, answers that. It's truly just disgusting the way a a knowledge of how the system works compromises your morality and your vision. It's just, he's a disgusting, repulsive human being, Michael Bennett. Okay, let's move on. So let's go to clip. I, I guess this is the immigration clip. 
Okay, so we're going to skip three. We're going to move to four. And let me just say that four and five are both going to be, they're going to be questions to Tulsi, and, and, and I'm going to interview the people who ask the questions. And they're going to be real questions. One's going to be about immigration, and then the next one's going to be about cashmere, and she's going to answer them, and then the people are going to respond to how she answers. And then at the end of five, and I'm just going to, even though we're not doing that one yet, at the end of five, there was a guy at the at, in Manchester who, like, challenged her to push-ups. Okay. And, right. and I don't know if you've seen that, but that became, like, a little meme, and, and you can see that everywhere. But the real news is these co- other questions not the push-up thing. Okay, and when you anyway. say Tulsi Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii. Yeah, we know who Tulsi is. Some of us aren't as smart as David Bacon. Here we go. All of you are as smart as me. This is David Bacon at, for the David Feldman Show. I'm here again at the Tulsi Gabbard event in Manchester, New Hampshire, and it's January 16th. And I'm going to ask, uh, there was a young lady who asked a question about immigration to Tulsi tonight. So um, what is your interest in uh, the immigration issue? Why is that important that you asked her that question? I grew up in Texas, and immigration has always been a very important issue for me. I'm actually studying in college at um, Holy Cross. Oh, wow. And my You're is- studying immigration? Yeah. And- what, is that like a... What, major would that be under or something? Um, I actually self-designed a minor called Migration Studies. and I, Oh, good for you. Yeah, I'm very interested in, I want to be an immigration lawyer one day. So, so okay, what is your major then? Uh, political science. Oh, right perfect. Now. And you want to yeah. be a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. yeah good yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah. So I want to... Um, Law school's I, fun. I hope so. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I, I asked her um, as a member of Congress why nothing has happened in my entire lifetime to deal with immigration on a congressional level. Right. Um, so that was sort of where I was coming from and what I wanted her to answer. Why has nothing been done in my entire lifetime to combat the problems that our immigration system has with all of the roadblocks and all of the complex realities or complex um, issues? And also, what are you? What would you do with the president to stop putting children in cages like we are now on the border? Um, Thank you. Thank you. This is a really important question. Immediately as president, I would undo the damage, the policies that President Trump has put in place that has resulted in children being in cages, that has resulted in families being torn apart. Period. That is something that can be done and must be done immediately. It should be done before we even get into these elections. Comprehensive immigration reform is necessary. Why hasn't it happened during your lifetime? It's been brought up. Election after election, you see different bills being brought forward. Ultimately, it's the partisan politics that's getting in the way. People playing politics with other people's lives. Not thinking about the devastating impact that it's having on so many families across the country. Even the negative impact that it's having on our economy. Uh, Through my time in Congress, we've looked at introducing legislation of regards to trying to fix some of these elements of our broken immigration system. And many times have been told, no, we're not going to take up any immigration bills unless it's a part of a comprehensive immigration bill. So no piecemeal solutions. There has to be one massive bill that's got everything wrapped up in it, otherwise we're not going to consider it. Which is a problem. It's a problem because that bill has never come around. There was never a comprehensive immigration bill brought to the floor or real, a, a real interest in passing one. 
There are so many different elements of our immigration system that has to be fixed. It requires leaders from both parties coming together and voters demanding this action, whether it's, it's providing the kind of certainty of a future for dreamers, one of whom works on my congressional staff in my office in Hawaii, who consistently has to look to what are the courts saying, what am I allowed to do, am I gonna face eviction from the only home that I have known, or the whole host of many other issues that we have in our immigration system that has to be addressed. Leaders need to come together and voters need to demand action across party lines. And once again, this is another issue that I have found that uh, whether speaking to Democrats, Republicans, Independents, or Libertarians, there is far more in common that we have that has to be done with regards to immigration than we often realize. But unless we're willing to talk to each other, we will never see that kind of action taken. This is why I started the conversation tonight in the way that I did, which is why as president I feel it's so critical to begin to provide, to, to begin to build those bridges with Democrat and Republican leaders and with people across our country to actually solve problems, not just talk about it, not just more of the politics, same as usual, but actually solve these problems. So that if you have the kids, okay. So if you have kids in the future, that they won't then have to come to a presidential town hall and say, "Not in my lifetime or my mom's lifetime has that action been taken." We've got to fix this problem now. And what did you think of her answer? I think she kind of dodged the question a little bit. Yeah, I think she yeah. did that a lot tonight. Yeah, you know? she did. She's not trying to rock any boats, it seems like. Yeah, she she did recognize that the president and the and Congress are co-equal branches, but then wouldn't accept responsibility as a member of Congress for right. her part in the issue of immigration. Right. Right. Saying that it's partisan politics is kind of a backup to the question because, you know, she's also on in Congress and she's also, you know, trying to get a party nomination. So you can't say it's party politics fault if you're running for a party like this. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What would you have liked to have her say? Or is there something, what would have made you happy? Um, I would like her to express some sort of empathy or understanding of the complex immigration issue is, and to admit fault. I think Pete Buttigieg is a great, is a great example of a candidate who has admitted fault recently for some of the failures he's had as a leader. Uh -huh. um, and I think that she, as a member of Congress for as long as she's been in Congress, is partially responsible for this and has, I didn't hear a single thing about immigration until I brought it up. Right. I think it's a right. real issue and I, I really wish she had spoken a little bit more to the experience of her dealings with immigration but also sort of presented a plan for the future because she doesn't have one as far as I can tell. Right. I probably, Mayor Pete, though, has uh, like tested every response he's made I'm with sure groups has. so he knows yeah. exactly what to say because it's like Medicare for anyone who wants it Bull yeah. crap where you still have to buy in. You don't buy into Medicare. Medicare is a free thing to, yeah. you know, for people. But anyway, yeah. that's that's a different person. Yeah. Um, so have you seen other candidates? I have. Yeah, I've actually seen all of them Good in for the you. area right. that I can in the past three weeks. Right, right, right. Um, I've, I haven't found one that I fully agreed with on everything, but I don't think we're going to. Right, I right. think we need candidates that are going to put forward real policy issues, and I don't think she really did tonight. Right. So. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time. I don't know if you said your name or not. If you, uh, it's you Joanna. It. Yeah, I probably did. Okay, awesome. Thanks again, and have a great night. You too, yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. So that would be clipping letter five. Let's move on to clipping. That was four. We're moving to five. 
We're moving on to five now. Five is Cat. Is it? Is it going to be another question to Tulsi? It's going to be about Kashmir. I'm, then I'm going to talk to him, and he's going to give his response. And then we're going to cut. I'm going to see the uh, the push-up dude the next day at the Pete event, and then I'm just going to ask him about the, vet, the what he did and if he thinks it's news or not. Okay. Clip letter five. So what was your name, and what was your question that you asked her tonight? My name is Jonah, and I said... If or when you become president, uh, what would you do about the illegal occupation of Kashmir? Hello, Tulsi. Hi. Uh, if or when you become president, what would you do about the illegal occupation of Kashmir? Thank you very much. Wow. This is a complicated situation that is ongoing in um, the dispute between India and Pakistan. It is not something that is new. Uh, and it is a conflict that must be resolved by the leaders of those countries. If as president, I can play a role in helping to mediate those discussions and those negotiations, uh, I would be happy to do so. But ultimately, as we're seeing, unfortunately, in some conflicts in other parts of the world that have been going on for a very long time over land disputes and who controls what land where, it is only those people who live in these countries who can ultimately negotiate a solution that they and the, their constituents in their countries will have to live with. The problem with putting forward the idea that the United States of America can go in and tell either one of these countries, here, what, here is what you must do, that's not a sustainable outcome. It's not. Just like we wouldn't want any one of those countries coming in and telling us how we should form certain policies in our country. Maybe. Got to put ourselves in their shoes and realize that if we try to do the same thing to them, even with the best of intentions. I wouldn't mind another country dictating some policy here. And what did you think of her answer? Uh, it was an anodyne statement void of any plan of action. Right. And so what, what is your interest in, in, in Kashmir and that sort of stuff? I assume you must know a lot more about it than I do off the top of my I head. I wouldn't go as far as to say that. I'm sure both of us are ineptly educated in the topic. Let me answer, of course. Sure. Uh, merely that I know that she is closely linked with um, India's BJP party. Yep. I would consider that a proto-fascist or fascist party. Right. And I wanted to see how she could react to a question that's, that is linked to the ties of what I would consider um, reactionary politics. Yeah. She's an excellent politician. She spoke well. When I asked her the question, she did give an answer that was, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, about her fundamentals, you know. America not being involved, of course, that is correct. America shouldn't be involved in foreign policy right, of other right, nations, right. but that's not the truth. We do, you know. Right. I asked her about Kashmir, not Palestine. Right. How much are we involved in that, you know? So I expected her to say something that's like, yeah, we shouldn't be involved, but she couldn't really admit, take a political stance as well. So right. I really think that, uh, like I said, it was an anodyne statement. She's a politician. She's going to work around it. Yeah, it seems like a bunch of her answers tonight. I mean, the, the, the person who asked about the guns and yeah. her answer was pretty much like, oh, uh, there's a commission. The person yeah. who asked about reparations, it was, oh, there's a commission. Like, yeah. there's a lot of things. Because she's trying to, I think, sort of play both sides of the coin, try to get some people from the right, try to get some people from the left, yeah. it seemed like she didn't want to make a sort of statement either way, mm-hmm. so that she's hedging her bet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hedging her bets is definitely a good way to describe it. She definitely, I would say, isn't going to be assertive towards the gears of power. Mm-hmm. And if she was to say things that were 
if she was to speak truth to that guy that asked about guns, she would be like, yeah, America shouldn't kill each other all the time. This shouldn't be the norm, and it's dystopian. But if she does that, that's going to be awkward to that Trump supporter. Yeah. And if she said to me that, like, BJP can do what they want and subjugate the Kashmiri people, and she said some Islamophobic shit, not that she would ever do that, not that I would expect that, but right. if she was blunt and assertive right. about those types of things, she would be off-putting. And obviously right. she's charismatic and... She's not going to be off-putting. She's not going to be right. assertive in her policy. Right, right, so. right. Well, I mean, I've seen her a few times, and she's dealt with gun questions and a bunch of the stuff. And you, she's certainly gotten better at answering the question, even though maybe there wasn't a lot of substance to it. Yeah. But, you know. It's not easy. I, I, yeah. I just Snapchatted this to some friends of mine, and I Snapchatted to a friend of mine that I know is a uh, Trump supporter. He's a, he's a young Trump supporter, which I obviously disagree with. And he's like, she's okay, but she is. Uh, uh, she likes gun control. Uh-huh. When that question was asked, I'm like, oh, dude, like, a Trump supporter just asked a question right. about gun control. Right. And I'm like, he's like, eh, we don't need gun control. And I'm like, we obviously do. We shouldn't murder each other. That's not right. normal yeah, yeah, for right. society. Right. Exactly. And, and the universal background check is a good start. Right. But, like, buybacks are better. You can go further. Right. Right. And right. obviously right. she's not going to be right. that right. antagonistic. Yeah, again, I think that, that, that almost so many of the politicians are all sort of agreeing to, like, the background check. Because yeah. it's so easy to say that, like, as if that's the only thing you need and to on, do. And honestly, who knows if it'll pass? Right, exactly. You know? Exactly. Okay. Oh, is she doing the... Uh, I don't know if she was... I thought maybe she was actually going to do some push-ups, which would be hilarious, because there's the push-up guy or something. I missed that. Oh, well. Yeah. Seeing a gentleman who I recognized from last night at a Tulsi Gabbard event down in Manchester, and I think first you were challenging. You, I mean, what did you do with her? Well, I had a uh, push-up competition with her because of uh, what the former uh, vice president was claiming, like uh, to members of the crowd. He said he could, like, when he had an uncomfortable question, he would, like, you know, challenge people to push-up competitions. So I just kind of, you know, asked Tulsi what her thoughts were on that, and you know, it just kind of happened that way. Right, and you because you asked the question from the audience, and then when you went up to actually get the like photo and all that then you actually went down and the two of you actually did push-ups correct correct i didn't see i was interviewing someone else at the time how did the competition go or uh, she destroyed me she's uh you know incredibly you were looking like you were in good form when i watched the little video hey, like, you know you know she's a former service woman right, she's right, right. incredibly in shape right, she right, killed right. me she's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so okay now this is going to be silly coming from me because i'm actually interviewing you yeah i like the question and it was fun you're getting coverage people have interviewed you there's video of that up is it news is it news? Um, I guess. <laughs> I mean, if something's going viral today, you know, it just seems like thing, like when something goes viral, it becomes news. Um, and I was just bringing light to that issue by kind of, you know, jo jokingly doing that. And uh, right. I think I think it speaks to like where, where like uh, the, just everything is today and like how a lot of the time it's about gaffes, not necessarily what you do right, but what you do wrong. And I wanted to make a gaffe that was positive as opposed to negative. Nice. I like your answer. Thank yeah. you for your time. No what, you want to say your name? Uh, Richard Bannock of uh, Montgomery County, Maryland. Awesome. Nice yeah. job, man. Nice. Have a good day. Great job, Bacon. Great job. On Kashmir, I think people need to understand that Pakistan and India are fighting over Kashmir, which seems an overreaction. I mean, yes, it's Led Zeppelin's greatest album, but still, I don't think we need to go to war over it. No. Uh, very quickly, Kashmir... I'm sorry? Didn't you the outdoor? Their last album, with uh, the one before yeah. Bonham died, John Bonham, and then they broke up. Yeah, in, in his own vomit in the bathtub. Yeah, which is, uh, hoping you end up the same way. So, anyway, uh, Kashmir sits between 
China, Pakistan, and India. It borders northern Pakistan, northern India, and southern China. It's primarily a Muslim territory. When Lord Mountbatten divided India into India and Pakistan, this is true. He moved or try to move all the Muslims into Pakistan and keep India as right. a primarily Hindu India. state. This is, right. you know, just social engineering at its worst, Lord Mountbatten. Winnie, by the way, was having, his wife was having an affair with, I believe, Nehru. I believe she was sleeping with Nehru oh. at the time. Anyway. Um. So Pakistan and India are fighting wars ever since because India... Both nuclear powers, I believe. Yes. India is primarily Hindu, even though I think it has the largest Muslim population outside of Pakistan in the region. And then Pakistan is... Indonesia has to have a huge Muslim population, I would. Yeah. So Pakistan and... Uh, India are fighting over Kashmir, even though Kashmir is primarily, primarily Muslim. But India wants it because it's a buffer between the two nations. And uh, so and that's been going on for quite a while. So let's go to clipping letter six. And this will be the last one for today. Great job, Bacon, as always. Okay, so. Thank I, you. So this is, yeah, yeah. This is you're, con- you're really annoying me. I just want you to know that. Okay, so this it is would really contra- help me. It would really help me if your marriage would fall apart. If you liked me, if you were oh. gra- if you're grateful for my giving you all this airtime, you could return the favor by ending up at a cozy eight motel off Route ninety. <laughs> okay, if you, I was just saying, if you wanted to thank me, if you wanted to thank me, David L. Feldman, you, you, your show is the best, and we're gonna get Bernie on here, man. Yeah, I know, but I, I really need happen. you to start, just you know, what declining. Doing more? I need your declining. personal life to go into a massive nosedive. No, 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 I don't have to copy you. See, it's those kind of comments, Bacon, that really make me root against you. Okay, what do you have? It starts with you, and then I just rebuttal. Okay. It's called a rebuttal. All right, great anyway. work this week. So, okay, thank you. So, okay, so clip four and five was was people, and, and, and you know, I just picked two people who asked questions, and okay. then neither of them were happy. So clip six is going to be someone who asks Bernie a question, and then she happens to be standing right next to me, and then she is happy with his answer. Okay, so you got to be really close to Bernie. Oh, I could, I could, I, I was, yes, of course, I was, I was right next, I have shots of him, like, I have a video of him. Did He's you like, smell the acid reflux? Mm, yeah, okay. right. We didn't have a, well, I did see him in the, I did see him in the, in the, in the coffee house uh, bagel shop, uh, but he was working, not eating. Okay. And most of his crew were eating, though, but he was working. Okay, here we go. great to see. He was working on speech, actually, because I okay. saw the same paper. Okay, here we go. And there's a young lady here, and you got to ask Bernie a question. What was your question? Um, I asked him. Hello. Uh, thank you. Right now, I'm currently a nursing student. I was just wondering how a single-player single player hand would 
no statue. The there's no statues to the incrementalists. Exactly. It's the people with the big ideas. Exactly. It's, I'm not going to get dental care right. because of some small incremental change. I'm going to get dental care because somebody's going to go out there and they're going to fight for my dental right. care. And that's who Bernie Sanders is. I'm What I care about is what people have done. I care about where they've been on the issues their entire lives. And Bernie has always been on the yeah. issues. Yeah. I've been a fan of Bernie since I was in middle school. Because my dad is heavily into politics. And he made the rest of us be heavily into politics. Right. Right. So I've seen him argue for things like for climate change, for looking at the issues that are out and around us, in front of our faces. Right. Right. And he actually wants to do something. Exactly. Exactly. That's and we have to do our part, too. Exactly. Yes. It's not just him. We have to. We're the movement, too. Right. Right. We're the right. roots. Right. We have to go out there and we have to change other people's minds. Right. We have to let them know that there's another way that we can live our lives. Right. It doesn't just have to be this commodified life that we're living right now. Right. There's there's change coming. Well, join the campaign and uh, you know yeah. tell your friends and get everyone doing their stuff. Hey, thanks. Nice. To, do you want to say your name? Sean Murphy. Nice to talk to you. Bye bye. David Citizen Bacon is covering the New Hampshire primaries for the David Feldman Show. How do people reach you via email? Um, it's uh, David Citizen Bacon at gmail dot com. And you know, let me know if you like that format of you know getting the people who ask a question Fantastic. and then their response. I think it's good. This but, is you the know, best. I, this is, I loved here. it. I loved it. I loved good. it. Excellent. This is the best Thank segment you. you've done. Great job. You wanted me to edit. I edited. So Great there job. you go. Great job. I hate more you. Work. I hate you. Yeah, it's and more work, Dave. It's I, more I work. You make me work more. I hate it's you. more work. I hate you. It's more work for free for you. So yeah. why would you hate me? That makes I, no because, sense. Because you're coming after I'm doing after more for you. you for free. Yeah, yeah. I'm not but coming after you. You're, you're no. lowballing yeah. the competitors. Uh, That's what you're uh, doing. You're so lowballing work. all your competitors, worming your way into the show like a, like a parasite, and then you're sucking all the marrow. No. Out of me until there's nothing left, and suddenly it's the David Bacon I'm show. I'm just giving and giving and giving. Yeah. I'm sucking nothing. If I'm you were my and friend, giving giving. if you were my friend, you'd ruin your marriage and be all alone in a cozy hotel. <laughs> but you're not <laughs> no. my friend. <laughs> I'm closer than you think. But anyway, right. let's move on. I demand loyalty from from my staff. Okay, and yes. a true yes. sign of loyalty okay. is for you to go on a bender. Do something really wrong and have your wife throw you out of the house and you're never allowed to see your kids. But you're not dedicated to the David Feldman show the way yeah, those things, others yeah. are. My, uh, kid, my kid, my kid, you know, yeah. Okay. I'll talk to you next time. I'll talk to you next time. Stay on the line for one second. I hate okay, you. I you. hate you. It's time for our comedy virus. Let's all welcome Dave Cyrus. Let's go to Hollywood, where Dave Cyrus is standing by comedy writer, roast battle champion, movie screenplay person. Hello there, Dave Cyrus. What are you doing in Hollywood? I think the first and the third were the same thing, but thank you. Hi. I'm just so starstruck that we have somebody from Hollywood phoning in. Well, I mean, I lived in Hollywood for, for a long time, ironically, before I had any success whatsoever. And now you're writing movies with Keith Richards, and who, who's the, the kid you write the movies with? Pete Davidson? Oh, Is Pete Davidson. I always can, yeah, I was thinking of Keith Richards. Well, they're both wiry. 
Yeah. Um, and immensely yes. successful. It's generous that you're using the word movies plural. So thank you for that. Well, you're you're a screenwriter. You have a big movie coming out with Judd Apatow. And I'm sure this will be the last time I get you on my show because, you know, in a couple of months, you're the kind of person who is not only not going to return my calls, but relish the not returning of my calls. I can't imagine any level of success where I wouldn't want to continue doing your show. I mean, really, the more successful I have, uh, the more success I have, the more I imagine I'll enjoy our interactions. The same you way know, Michael the, Jordan still enjoys a pickup game. Exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah. The, yeah. the more of a discrepancy between us, the more of a thrill I'll get from these conversations. The chasm between you and me mm -hmm. is so immense. It's bigger than the Grand Canyon. Yes. I may even start individually doing all your old jobs just to have the, the, the experience. I may, I may work for Bill Maher just for a few weeks just to know so I can say I did that too. Yeah, the gap I may, between I may you and me. For Dennis Miller to get back on the air just to write for him. They, are, so we actually, we did that. they are actually beginning to sell mule rides down the chasm between you and me the success that you've had while I sit and watch on the other end. Bye, Dave. They call them, they Bye. Call them mules. They're actually just donkeys. Are they donkeys? Yeah. Uh, but Bye, no, Dave. Had, you've had tremendous success as well. But not the kind you've had, Dave Cyrus. We don't really know that yet, do we? You're, oh, uh, I mean, you just have to go to the mailbox. But I'm not a household name like you. That's true. But People it, don't... Is People don't Thrush, know my face is like Thrush really a household name? Thrush? Uh, you mean the, the thing where you have white on your tongue from HIV? Well, it's not HIV. That wasn't an HIV reference. Well, it is a... It is something that mostly people get because they have, they're either infants or they have HIV. I had a friend who had thrush recently and for like a, a just a, a disease. And I told him the doctor is going to tell you, you probably have HIV. And I, and he thought I was joking and I was right. Oh, that's a so funny felt, story. That's a hard one. I, I, I felt very vindicated. I mean, I, I knew he didn't because he has like this immune deficiency, but it was really funny. I was like, you are going to have a condescending doctor be like, so how many People have you had unprotected sex with? Wait, do, does the guy have HIV? No. Oh, no, oh, I thought you said that. You... No, he's a married father who had thrush because he has this uh, this immune problem. And I told him, I was like, I bet you anything the doctor is going to condescendingly be like, you probably have HIV. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Thrush would make uh, a good band name. There was Rush. I am. I, I would be very surprised if there has never been a, a Rush cover band called Thrush. <laughs> they stink. Specifically before HIV became a big disease. Everything that comes out of their mouth stinks. I can't listen to them. Rush? Thrush. Oh, Thrush. Is oh, Rush any right, good? Because it causes halitosis. I think I get it. Yeah. Uh, Rush, I mean, they're you know, a very beloved band. I'm not really into them myself, but you know, I got no problem with Rush. And what, what do you, you know, by the way, I've discovered Spotify. Oh, Yeah. I love it. Oh, good, good. You enjoying uh, learning about new bands and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Have you heard of the Beach Boys? Uh, Great harmonics. Yes. yes, I'm glad you're getting into modern music. Mm -hmm. And uh, By the way, speaking of, I do have to say, Rush, uh, one of the best drummers of all time, of course, Neil yeah. Peart, recently passed away. God bless him. Uh, 
So well, I, apparently that's not. Up, if that's why you brought up Rush. Well, but God didn't bless him. Apparently. Well, I mean, you know, he, uh, you know, he did his best. He was a, you know, he, he died, you know, an older man and a very accomplished man. So, you know, why not? Let's uh, show our respect. Yes, you're absolutely right. Well, I want to ask you about the Oscars. In a yeah, second, the in Oscar a second, nominations are out. We're going to get the inside track on the Oscars because Dave Cyrus is talking to us from Hollywood. And he goes to parties with these people. I, I have been to parties with people who are technically movie actors. Yeah, I mean, I'm members of the Academy. They would agree that I was at the party, but I know I was, but I know they were there. Yeah, but these are members of the Academy, and soon you'll be a member of the Academy. Uh, I guess, yeah, I thought I was. Oh, yeah, okay, it's going to be next year? Okay, I'm not 100% sure how that works. And you'll get to vote on the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And I, I mean, I was... I was disturbed by the Oscar nominations this year. No female directors. Adam Sandler didn't get anything for Uncut Gems. Nothing. Adam, Eddie Uncut Murphy. Gems does not get acknowledged. Dolomite. Uh, nothing. Yeah, J-Lo. Uh, nothing. Well, that I agree with. Uh, well, J-Lo was very good, but I, th- I didn't think Hustlers was a movie that should be you know, nominated for an Oscar unless it was. Greta Gerwig. Nothing. No, that was that was surprising, yeah, because Little Women was very celebrated. Oh, it was, it has a Best Picture nomination. You would have thought that you would have gotten Best Director, but it's it's I really weird. I can't stop how, talking about Little Women. In the I cannot, mean, I, haven't seen it. I haven't either, uh, but I cannot. Yeah, stop talking uh, about it because otherwise people will criticize me for you. You have to love Little Women, so it's fantastic. It, it really this year seemed like the Oscar didn't you love Little Women? Were, didn't you hang on for a second? Didn't you love Little Women? I haven't caught up yet. I haven't seen it yet. I but you love it, it, right? I assume so. I've heard very good things. But you love it. You don't have to. See, you're like me. You don't have to see Little Women. You know you love it. I'll reserve my judgment and not say I loved it till after I see it. But you cannot not love. You can't. You you're not allowed to not Who, like it. I don't know that. Maybe well, I'll hate it. I no. don't want to. I'm not going to jump out in front of anything. Well, I assume I'll like it. I'm going to see it soon. I got this. As soon as I get back home, I got the screener at home. I'm going to check it out. You don't but, have the women I do in my life. You're not allowed. I don't have a family like you. I'm oh, not. If I so like much you. as it's too late ra- for me. If I raise an eyebrow suggesting that maybe little women, I don't know, could have been a little the beneficiary. Maybe you pro- that- I'm assuming you needle your daughter constantly by nagging little women. I no, I love little women. I do. Yeah, I. I was I was honestly there was a lot of things about the Oscar nominations I was mad about. Yeah. Uh no women directors again. Uh like I said, I thought Hustlers was not a good movie. Uh but I did think Jayla was good. I would I would have no problem with her getting a nomination for best supporting. I thought that was, you know, mm-hmm. if there was anything that, that that movie could be legitimately uh nominated for, it's that. Uh that's that's the one I would agree with. Um but like it was best costumes and best makeup that I was truly mortified by. You know what didn't get nominated for best makeup? Avengers Endgame, Spider-Man, Star Wars, pretty much any movie where the makeup was an industry. Any movie where they had to put a lot of money, where a lot of people who worked as professionals in makeup had to be part of this. Avengers Endgame maybe didn't like the movie. It was a very good movie. It had hundreds of people in prosthetics. And and a, a village of people were hired to use their expertise to make makeup for this movie. You know what did get nominated for Best Makeup? 1917, Joker, 
one uh, uh, Irishman, which you know had a lot of CGI. CGI, uh, yeah. That no, I mean the Irishman makes sense. 1917 is a great movie, but the makeup on it is mostly just people with dirt on their faces. Yeah. yeah. And a few, you know, knife wounds. Joker, I would love anyone to explain to me, no matter how much you love the Joker, I'm not talking about whether it's a good movie or not. I want someone to explain how that movie gets a best a best makeup nomination. Well, don't the makeup Be- people isn't vote? Isn't it a great... Yes. In other words, yeah, you everyone- don't get a nomination unless it's cleared by the makeup people. Yeah, but this isn't... Best makeup in an Oscar nomination is not your favorite movie in which someone wore makeup. It's supposed to be what movie had the best makeup. But maybe people so, in the makeup business understand something about makeup that a novice like you, because I've seen the way you wear makeup. Always too much burnt smoke. Always. Well, that's because you are from a generation that doesn't understand contouring. Okay. Uh but no, I literally and like, your mascara like runs. Were, so, who are you to talk about makeup? It just seemed like it was such an fu to the the movies that actually use professionals to do high level makeup, and instead just gave the nominations to whoever they thought you win best picture. But maybe these professionals from the Avengers, maybe it's like a factory process that isn't respected. I don't, I don't buy that. I mean, we're also about same thing with costumes, costumes, Irishman. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood get nominated for Best Costumes. Now, those are both good movies. Those are both great movies. But everyone in it just wears a goddamn suit. Not, whereas these other movies had hundreds of professionals putting together these costumes. Costumes that never existed before. Like, it, 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 that is not what these nominations are supposed to be. It's not just the five movies you liked get nominated for every single thing. Well, it maybe you're, no it's like comparing McDonald's to the French Laundry. I guess. I don't know. I just I I do not understand. I would love for someone to explain to me what exactly in the in, for example, Joker made it an achievement for makeup. You could say it's an achievement for directing, acting, writing, all those things. But the fact that the character wears makeup that is supposed to Star Wars, even if it doesn't matter which is a better movie. What had more of an achievement in makeup? OK, let's say and I don't have the. Timeline in front of me, but let's say airline or what was it? Airport. Not what was what was the the Zucker Brothers film? Airplane. Airplane. Thank you. Let's say airplane was what nineteen eighty, something like that. It sounds right. Okay, so Woody Allen probably came out with Stardust Memories in nineteen eighty. Now, okay. what had what's a better film? I haven't seen Stardust Memories. I've seen a lot of Woody Allen. I haven't seen that one. Well, but Airplane like, Airplane may be a better film, but the point I'm making is I could see Stardust Memories getting the nod over Airplane because the Zucker brothers, who are Republican, mass produce these comedies, and they're moving a lot of but jokes, but they time. may not be quality was, jokes it, the way Stardust Memories, which really wasn't a comedy, but still it was funny. I could see way, no. voting for Stardust is, Memories over Airplane. This No, this is like... And that's comparing, and that's why I think you're comparing the Avengers and Star Wars to something that's a little more simple and perhaps has more humanity about, to it. We're not talking about Best Picture. We're not, I'm talking, you're, about, I'm you're, talking you're, about the the makeup and the costumes. Yeah. When, when, when they're done on a small movie, you can see the work of the makeup 
artist. As did you see? The, did you see Joker? Not yet. Okay, see Joker, and then talk to me about what it did in terms of achievements and makeup. We're not talking about writing and directing and best picture. Those are the prestige awards. Just because you're a better picture than something else doesn't mean you have better makeup. It's like saying that Schindler's List deserved best special effects just because you loved it so much. It's like saying that, uh, that you know, Anchorman, your favorite comedy ever, and just saying it deserves best everything, best makeup, best costumes, best special effects, uh, best directing, best best editing. It's like, can't you just say you like the movie? doesn't mean okay. – you know, you know, no, no host at the Oscars. You know what got nominated for Best Makeup? Bombshell. Because they literally had to turn John Lithgow into Roger Ailes. They had to turn uh, actresses into news people, and, and they transformed them. That's what deserves a Best Makeup nomination, not someone applying clown makeup to themselves as part of a horror movie. Okay. Well, let's turn to something that's far less important, and that is gun laws in Virginia. In Virginia, you can carry a concealed handgun with a permit when you make it to the age of 21, which is getting harder and harder to do with these concealed carry laws. You can openly wear a handgun without a permit in Virginia. Now, if you remember, in November of 2019, Virginia won both state houses. They had the governor already. They passed three gun control bills. They're prohibiting the purchase of more than one handgun per month. Local governments in Virginia can ban guns in parks and public buildings. And they're requiring background checks on all firearm purchases. Seems pretty reasonable, right? Uh, apparently not. Apparently, that's uh, Nazi Germany to them, which ironically, you know, a lot of people were big fans of Nazi Germany. Not, I'm not saying the majority of people do the gun laws. I'm just making the reference to the four Nazis who were arrested before this rally. But yeah, so uh, there. So it's Martin Luther not King's, birth, it's Martin not King's birthday whether, was yesterday. Yes. And one of the way the day. white nationalists celebrate his birthday is by marching for gun rights in Virginia. Well, in Virginia, Martin Luther King's birthday was traditionally a day of marches. And they're saying that, well, they don't see anything ironic about them marching for their gun rights using mm -hmm. that day. And the thing is, it's not about what the laws are. There are no laws that they would find reasonable because we're not talking about a reasoned argument. We're talking about an emotional argument, which is that any laws that don't exist now are bad. Mm -hmm. Of course, they think any laws that exist anywhere are bad. Uh, what, what, I mean, this is uh, about fear. It's about people crying out that their guns make them feel safe. And when you have a law about whether or not they can have one, that makes them even more afraid. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, people who make their lives about gun advocacy, it's a monument to being afraid and to feeling that your gun makes you less afraid of this, you know, makes you not gripped with this panicked, nonspecific fear of others. Uh, gun laws aren't bad to them because they're unfair laws. They're bad because all gun laws are, you know, you know, are bad because it's not about reality. It's about people who fetishize the ability to kill someone from, you know, several feet away and feel that that makes them physically safer. Because if these people really cared about, you know, safety, they would agree with these gun laws. The one that they're talking about is the red flag law. The idea that the government can take your gun away if you show that you are a, a danger to yourself or others. That is the one that apparently everyone in this march thinks they're going to have their gun taken away over. 
Well, they are a threat to society. Did they pass the red flag law in Virginia? Do we know? I mean, that's that's what's happening now. That's what the legislature is passing. And, uh, you know, since they're a Democratic legislature, they were elected and they're doing mm-hmm. what they were elected to do. And what this is, is another example we've seen many times before of right wing people saying when democracy doesn't do what they want, use Second Amendment remedies to change it. We've heard that right. term before. Republicans have many times referred to using Second Amendment remedies as a very wishy-washy way of saying we're going to shoot cops if we don't like what they're telling us. Right. And when you say we will not comply or have a sign that says try and take my gun, that is a direct threat. We're going to murder police officers if you try to enforce the laws of the United States of America on us. Hmm. Yeah. Not everyone there wants to kill cops. Not everyone there is planning to do it. But they certainly want us to be afraid they will. Because that's what you do when you say we will not comply. Try to take my gun. The person trying to take their gun is not an Antifa member. It's going to be a police officer. And the the reason they try to take it is, I don't know, maybe because they're saying they're going to kill cops if you try to take their gun. Right. And you would think cops. In reality, that's not what they're going to take it for. They're going to take it for specific evidence of being a danger. And that's too much for them. You can't just be a law-abiding citizen and have a gun. You have to also be a dangerous person to be allowed to have a gun. It's basically the argument they're making here. Right. You know, I know a lot of liberals who want to legalize weed. I've never seen one threaten to shoot a cop and tries to take it away. Right. You would think the cops would be for gun control. You would. Jay, Jay Leno driving by in one of his uh, Yeah, you would think that. But they belong to the Oath Keepers. You know, this guy, Stuart Rhodes, he formed the Oath Keepers in 2009. It's one of the nation's largest anti-government organizations. They uh, have police officers as members. Well, that's because a lot of police officers happen to side with authoritarianism. And they see the people who are advocating for gun for, for, for having their guns and not having gun control, they don't associate them with the people that they are personally afraid of, which yeah. may or may not be fair. Uh, but that it, apparently they don't see them as the ones that they're worried about having guns, the people at these rallies. You, um, but you would think because there was a time when uh, Bill Clinton signed the assault weapons ban. I think it was in 94. He had police chiefs standing behind him. Where are the police speaking out? against these insane gun laws. Every time a cop pulls somebody over, the first thing that cop is thinking, am I going to get shot? So why aren't the police speaking up? Why don't why do poor people vote to give rich people tax breaks? It's a game. It's about tribalism and about teaching people that you have to agree with these things that don't make sense because otherwise your kids are going to be transgender. And you're going to have to go to gay and you're going to have to get gay married and you're going to have to. And the presidents will never be white again. This is just about, you know, stoking fear and, and telling them this is about sides and not rationality. I mean, how many people are supporting Trump but know that he is doing has done things that if a Democratic president had done, they would be they would be losing their minds saying he should be impeached. It's because they're we've been taught more and more that objectivity doesn't exist. And this is just about sides. This is just tribalism. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, the uh, so you know that there were four Nazis arrested, one of which with a very Arab name, which I, which a lot of people found 
hard to believe. And that's because they uh, don't really know much about the history of terrorism. So I saw you saw a lot of people. You saw that one of them was had a name that was they haven't shown his picture, but he clearly identified him as not a white person's name. Uh, was you know what I'm talking about? No, I, I know that they arrested some guys in Florida. They arrested some guys in the Northeast. Uh, yeah, let me. So yeah, they they arrested four guys um, right before the rally because they were uh, suspected of being neo Nazis who were planning to commit a series of murders uh, at this rally. Specifically, they had planned to murder two uh, members that they said were a married couple who were members of Antifa. Right. Now that let's just jump right off the jump, jump right off with that. That is, and I, I don't mean to, uh, uh, you know, downplay the seriousness of this is goddamn adorable that these people thought that the way they're going to fight this is to find Antifa members and kill them, mm-hmm. which means they believe that Antifa has power. And I honestly, I, I, I'm, I really mean this. I guarantee you, the people who were talking about killing these were so delusional that it started with someone not being able to access their Wi-Fi and saying that was proof Antifa is hacking into their phones. Right. Like, what could they possibly think two less Antifa members would accomplish for their cause? Like, I almost like I'm kidding about this, but I almost wish they had they had succeeded in killing them just so the next day they could be like, oh, my God, I'm still not getting any Tinder matches. We killed the wrong ones. Right. Like, right. These are crazy people. They are. They're calling this the boogaloo, the the race war that's inevitable. This is what these people from the base, which by the that was what Al Qaeda meant, the base. I mean, we gave Al Qaeda their name. Yeah, and these are these guys are members of the uh, I guess a neo Nazi group called the base, which is the one of the ones that were openly uh, I've I've read uh, attacking synagogues, vandalizing them, planning to kill people. And so one of the members. But it's a loose affiliation. There's really no central hub. Right. Yeah. Well, no, they're they're just they're just domestic terrorists. That's all they are. They're they're not they're not that organized. But we're talking about there's no office. They go online. They join chat forums. They think they're members of the base, but they're not paying children. But they're children, they're like 19, yeah. 20 year old losers who just are looking for something to live. I mean, I don't know if you saw the pictures of these guys, but good God, they 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 look like they, they look like the guys who play Fortnite in their basements all day. Like these were yeah. not what you picture as Nazis. They yeah. these looked like guys who worked in feminist bookstores. I'm so confused <laughs> by some of the look on these guys that this is what Nazis look like now. It's like they're just so soft looking but the part that was so crazy was so that one of the guys that uh was part of this um organization was named yusuf omar barazne hmm yusuf yes yusuf omar barazne now that's a white nationalist yes now you might ask yourself how would someone who seems to be of either of middle eastern or muslim relation uh be a white nationalist and I would remind those people, don't forget that when, you know, the IRA was in their last days, they were working, some of them were working with, uh, with, with Islamic terrorists, uh, with Islamists, uh, you know, terrorists that, you know, they, that it doesn't, there's nothing hard to believe about the idea of neo-Nazis siding with people who may be even, you know, from the Al-Qaeda ISIS side of terrorism, just because they have a common enemy, the United States of America. Hitler sided with the Mufti. Exactly. Palestine, right? So there's nothing hard to imagine that this guy was like, oh, if this is how I can hurt Americans by joining Nazis, why not? And that they were like, hey, whoever's going to help us kill people. 
The enemy of my friend is my enemy. So neo-Nazis would hate Jews. They would hate black people, right? But not so much Muslims. Well, they hate Jews and Americans. I'm not Muslims. I'm saying uh, terrorists that are coming from that side of the world. Yeah. Right. If that's what they're they're reaching out to anyone who just wants to destroy America, why not side with, you know, with with anyone? And why not? What role does Donald Trump play in all this? He tweeted out support he, for these white nationalists marching. Right. Yeah. He, he tweeted out support because that's what he does. He wants to inflame. I'm sure he's a little disappointed. There was no violence. But, you know, we don't really know that. But uh I'm saying that he he wants – but we, what we know about Trump is that he wants people to be upset. He wants people to be afraid. He wants chaos. He wants the same thing Putin wants, which is to simply in, inflame everyone. And so you know, he just – everything's good to him if there's anger between people. All he wants is to see people hating each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so how much encouraging of the... of people fighting for their gun, their gun rights by intimidating you know, legislatures into saying you know, basically the same thing Trump has said. Trump has many times, along with Bannon, uh, Roger Stone, uh, made fairly direct references that if you try to take our power, it might become violent. I've got the cops, the military, the bikers. Mm -hmm. You know, why would you bring up the bikers if you're talking Putin, about laws? Putin had bikers. Yeah. Before you that. go, before you go, talk to me about the impeachment. Are you going to watch the trial today how much of it are you gonna expose I, yourself to you know uh i don't always watch it i usually end up just reading uh later because some of it is you know i i it's sometimes difficult to watch people lying to you it's mm -hmm. sometimes difficult to just watch this because the plan After all is your make, years as a screenwriter yeah you can't handle people lying many. to you no, no, I'll be I'll be watching. I'll be paying attention as much as I have time to, and then I'll be reading up on it. Um, look, this is uh, this is important, and uh, a new poll showing that more than half of Americans believe he should be removed from office, but half of Americans disapprove of the way the Democrats are handling the impeachment. The funny thing about that is, only someone who only like only someone like Trump would be so dishonest as to say that means fifty percent of those people disagree with the impeachment. A lot of those people think that it's not – it's just not going hard enough, that it's not doing it's, – it's the same thing with like Obamacare. You know, when half the people who are, don't like Obamacare think it didn't – it wasn't liberal enough, that doesn't mean those people agree with the Republicans to repeal it. Right, right. So I think – it's funny. Everyone I know seems to act like nothing matters. The world sucks. Trump's going to be elected. He'll have a third term. The impeachment is, is meaningless. But Trump himself is the person who seems to be the most uh, confident that's, that it's not going to – that that it's bad for him. It seems like Trump is, is the only person I can think of who's actually acting like he's screwed because he seems panicked. New data from the Pew Research Center. They polled the world. They polled 32 countries to find which leaders are popular, which leaders are unpopular – among Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, the Chinese president Xi Jinping, and Donald Trump, according to the Pew Research Center, worldwide, who is the least popular of those three? I don't know, but the problem is the word popular, because at least in America... Well, negativity those rating, are, positivity. Those are some of the only people Americans have ever heard of. Americans That's, can only name two or three leaders. Right, but this was a poll of 32 countries, so... So where, what was it? Donald Trump, 
leads the pack in negativity. He is the most unpopular world leader. Right. He's, but, he's more unpopular than Putin. I mean, that's right, pretty But you amazing. have to remember, Trump voters in America, same with Bush voters years ago, would normally say they want to be hated by everyone who they are not close with. They prefer if the rest of the world hates them because they have so much hatred of those people. They assume, well, if they hate us, then we must be doing something right. Now, let it's me ask you, we'll, we'll wrap this up. lashing out. Okay. The world loved Barack Obama. Much of it, yes. Yeah, there was talk of, I'm being serious, of Bill Clinton running for president of Israel as a ceremonial head of state. Beloved, the world hates the United States. Can you blame yeah. them? Can you blame them? Well... It depends on what I'd say. It's more of an individual thing. Like I've heard people. Well, pulling out of the Paris I've, climate accords, pulling out of the treaty with Iran. But they didn't start hating us then, did they? They hated us before that. I think that the anger towards America right now is very fair. And and they should be looking at us as what what is fair to say is that there's a chance that Donald Trump's leadership in the United States is could be the reason why in the future human beings don't li aren't don't exist. It's not it's not an insane thing to believe when you have someone who's so anti-science and such a pivotal point in our our climate and other and, and, and just the it could be other reasons. It could be just the ramping up of tensions till there's nuclear war, because that's what he thinks is necessary for him to stay in office. And he would do that. Um, I think that people hated America before, but sometimes it was rational. Sometimes it wasn't. People hated America. Sometimes it was emotional and it was bullshit. But. There was a lot of things to be angry with, and America always sort of had this uh, this sort of emotional argument that you know if we did it, it's not as bad because right. we have great. In it's like the one that one great quote that Bush had not that long ago uh, that we expect everyone else to judge us by our best intentions while we judge them by their worst examples. Right. We have to wrap it up. I want to end on Martin Luther King. Yesterday was Martin Luther King Day. And Republicans and Democrats cherry pick what they choose to remember about Martin Luther King. What they mm -hmm. choose to remember is passive resistance. They choose to yeah, remember that he if was. If you specify it, I, I, it does seem really weird when a white person celebrates Martin Luther King specifically for the nonviolence. Yeah. It's yeah. all it's it's kind of a screw you to the people that he was actually trying to represent when the only thing you talk about is, is the don't, you know, stay in line. It, it's because what they're really saying is, Hey, if you really want to make change, stay in line. Don't, don't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be violent. So I want to read you an excerpt from his speech beyond Vietnam. It was delivered at New York city's Riverside church on April 4th, 1967, almost a year to the date when he was assassinated a year later. He would be assassinated. So what Republicans and Democrats like to remember about Martin Luther King is that he preached nonviolence, but he also preached nonviolence for the United States writ large. He was opposed vehemently against the Vietnam War. In fact, my father, who was a World War II veteran, was on the fence when it came to Vietnam because he trusted Kennedy and he didn't start protesting the war in Vietnam until Martin Luther King said this war is immoral. We choose not to remember this 
part of Martin Luther King. This this speech. Let me read you what he wrote. Sure. You can respond. At this point, I should make it clear that while I have tried in these last few minutes to give a voice to the voiceless in Vietnam, he was talking about what we were doing to the North Vietnamese, wiping out villages and how immoral it was and why we should bring the troops home in 1967. I am as deeply concerned about our own troops in Vietnam as anything else. For it occurs to me that what we are submitting our troops to in Vietnam is not simply the brutalizing process that goes on in any war where armies face each other and seek to destroy. We are adding cynicism to the process of death for these troops, for these American troops. For our American troops must know, after the short period there in Vietnam, that none of the things we claim to be fighting for are really involved. Before long, our troops must know that their government has sent them into a struggle among Vietnamese, and the more sophisticated troops surely realize that America is on the side of the wealthy and the secure while we create a hell for the poor. That's Martin Luther King. Yeah, well, it's like it's a lot like Jesus. People love to cherry pick the parts yes. that they want to talk about that are convenient for them, and they, you know, I mean, at that time there were people who were very mad at Martin Luther King. People who were saying, "Stick to your own problems. Mm-hmm. Don't don't talk about humanism. You're just supposed to talk about you know black and white relations." And there were even some examples of people who are angry at Martin Luther King for advocating for civil rights because Vietnam should have been the only thing we're talking about, which is sort of a problem we have now, where people always want to say, whatever you believe in, you shouldn't because there are other things that exist. Put it on the back burner. We got to defeat Trump. You can't have Medicare for all right now. We need to just defeat Trump. Why why are you trying to impeach him instead of building the roads? It's like it's just a it's such a fake disingenuous argument that people will use just against whatever they don't believe in without having to defend what their actual beliefs. Okay, last Um, question before you go. We're out of time. Who wins Iowa? Uh, I don't know. Who wins New Hampshire? uh, I mean, I I, I don't I don't have any confidence. in Who won Tuesday's debate? Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders? Uh, I think. I think Bernie had a very good debate. Um, I, uh, I like. I didn't watch it. I just read. Do you think uh, he ever said a woman can't get elected president to Elizabeth Warren? Yes, yes, I do. I think that the context probably matters, but I don't believe she made it up out of whole cloth. I don't okay. think that makes sense. I think that it very well could have been unfair out of context, but I find it extremely hard to believe that she just said, "I'm going to make up out of nowhere that he said this." She could have said it unfairly. She could have she could have not included context that he could have said it in a I don't agree with it either. But, you know, I think we but but at the end of the day, I find it extremely hard to believe that it was made up. I think I might agree with you. Not sure. But But the context could have been unfair. Yeah. Yeah. Dave Cyrus is a screenwriter, a comedian, a roast battle champion. How do you get followed on Twitter, Dave Cyrus? Dave Cyrus, S-A-R-U-S, like virus. Yes. And same as Instagram. Okay. Stay in line for one quick second, sir. Fine. Great job. Great job. 
It's time for our comedy virus. Let's all welcome Dave Cyrus. Let's go to Kenny Bunk, Maine, where Jim Earl is standing by. He's an Emmy Award winning, Peabody Award winning comedy writer, comedian, musician. His book is Morning Remembrance. It's a delightful look at dead people with a foreword by Rachel Maddow and also Mark Marin. Welcome back to the show, Jim Earl. Oh, thank you very much, Dave. It's a great uh, honor to be on your show once again. Is it a privilege? Is it a privilege? No, it's not a privilege. Uh, it, it is an honor. Okay. Uh, and you're living up in Maine, and I, I, you know, I sense when I talk to Susan Collins, Senator Susan Collins, earlier in the show, you really like the people of Maine. I think you're very happy up there in Maine, and you appreciate. I try it. to, I try to stay uh, isolated and away from them as much as possible. But that's pretty easy. There are only about five thousand people living in the whole state. And how would you characterize the people of Maine? Um, barn burners, <laughs> math addicts, you know, people who can only get erections by burning down things. Ah. Have uh, you met any? I mean, you really are. We're not joking around. Jim is currently residing in Maine. Yes. Have you met anybody who you like? Other oh, than Susan yes. Collins, have you met any people that you can go out and have a drink with and talk to? How, you know, there's a biker bar down the street, <laughs> but that's only open during the summer. But I haven't I, I really haven't had the nerve to go there yet. But I hear they have a good uh, happy hour. OK, so you are probably the only person in the history of this country who hates Maine. <laughs> no, I don't hate. I love Maine. I love the, it's a beautiful state with the wonderful beaches. Oh, the people of Maine. Yeah, people. No, I don't know anybody here. Actually, it's uh, it's uh, the people of Maine. I think you know it's encouraging that they they voted for to in, install ranked choice voting. So that's a good sign. They're they're more with it and hip than California is. And how does ranked choice voting work? That means that you can't. Uh, the De Democratic Party can't have an excuse uh, of the spoiler ever again. That you can choose your favorite candidate, no matter how what you think the odds are of them winning, and uh, and if they don't get enough votes, uh, then they go to your second choice, and then your third choice. It's like ordering Chinese food. You you know, hey, if you don't have the fried rice, you, I'd like the vegetarian fried rice. And if you don't have the vegetarian fried rice, all the uh, chicken dumplings. And then five minutes later, you want to vote again. Exactly. I see. So it's like a Chinese restaurant. A menu, yes. A little bit like that, yeah. MSG. Yeah. And can you get the uh, your politicians to go live someplace else? That was my Wendy yeah. Liebman joke. That's a web Wendy <laughs> Liebman style joke. <laughs> That's right. You're going to get somebody like Sue Collins who... Uh, it's primarily funded by people outside the state and who leaves the state often to go to Newport Beach and hold fundraisers or hunt fundraisers to. Well, uh, you know, she voted to not remove Bill Clinton from office during the impeachment trial. 
That was only due to a technicality, as you remember, that uh, she wanted to be able to have the Senate vote on each individual charge. Mm -hmm. And when that that was rejected, that's when she voted not to. uh, uh, Well, let me ask you about Susan Collins, because something tells me you don't like her. Is it possible she's representing Mainers? Is it possible that the senator from Maine mm-hmm. listens to her constituents and is doing their bidding? I mean, what is your sense of Mainers? Do they want Trump removed? What's the consensus? My consensus is uh, with Mainers is uh, they have very little knowledge of what's happening. So I've talked to. Okay, so isn't it Susan Collins's responsibility to represent the people of Maine by being an ignoramus? Or keeping the people of Maine ignoramuses. Okay. Uh, She hasn't held a town hall meeting in 20 years. So that's a that's a good record, I guess. Right. But maybe she feels that. Mainers don't care about what's going on in Washington, D.C., so they send her down there to be a moderate and leave us out of it. We don't care. She's a moderate with a lot of money. What does her husband Tom do? He is a, he's a defense industry lobbyist uh, for the most part, and they both hold uh, – own t- they both – both own stocks in the defense industry. So that's a conflict of interest there in, in most areas of the world. It would be, but not in Maine, certainly not the United States. Well, it's conflict, a conflict of interest. If you own defense stock and you work for the defense companies, you shouldn't be afraid of conflicts, especially of interest. So what's why are you being so hard on her? The defense industry keeps us safe. I can't argue with that. It keeps us safe from more more government spending on things we don't need. We spend money on defense, and that protects us from an interventionist Washington, D.C., dictating the size of our Cokes, and it gets government off our back. It's it's hard to tell since so many of these uh, defense... uh, organizations are secret or unregulated but i i i understand what you're saying david and i do trust in the judgment of people who are richer than i am to decide our fate in the world arena well they know better they're richer that makes sense yeah they go they have jets they fly from country to country they know more about russia than i do yeah we're a republic right that the in a republic we vote for people to do the, the the hard work of rolling up their sleeves and studying the situation and making the right decisions. You have to we have to delegate. They're called delegates for a reason. Yes. We've delegated the responsibility to them so we can sit back and be happy. And that's what we have delegated to Susan Collins. I'm I'm seeing your point now. Yeah. Susan Collins is is our duly elected representative, and, it, and we give her the authority to to delegate whether or not people with diabetes 
have access to affordable drugs mm-hmm. or even access to drugs at all. Why should diabetics have drugs? Right. Yeah. In all seriousness. Addicted to them or not? You know, yeah. that's wrong. You yeah. can get addicted to insulin. Insulin you know? addiction. That's a funny idea, Jim, for diabetic fury. <laughs> yes. That's insulin a great addiction. thing that you should write up. Do that for Jimmy Dore show. Like a commercial for insulin addiction. You yeah, know, might, yeah. You're like the evil the evil Sackler family. Everybody talks about how the evil Sackler family family from Purdue Pharma got the entire country addicted to opiates, but nobody ever talks about how Eli Lilly has gotten nearly twenty million diabetics <laughs> addicted <laughs> to insulin. Hooked on insulin. Hooked on insulin. And the, what about hooked on EpiPens, too? And hooked on EpiPens. There's an epidemic. It's even in the name, Epi. They want, it's like right there in the open. Here, Here's one addict. You know, uh, I can't live without my fix of insulin. <laughs> Thank you, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And all these, these people living in poverty, these poverty queens... Addicted to food? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a funny idea. Over the weekend, we were with some people and, and somebody got sick. And and uh, we were pondering the emergency room. There's somebody younger than we are. Really? Yeah. Mm. And all of a sudden, the conversation comes up. Can, what's your health insurance? And this person's getting yeah. sicker and sicker. And we're going, what's your health insurance? And instead of focusing on calling 911, getting this person to the hospital, we discussed and we waited. We didn't, we did not call an ambulance and the thing passed. This person felt better. But the conversation, there were two prongs to the conversation. One was, how are you feeling? What do you think this is? Has this happened before? And then there was another conversation. What's the insurance? What, you know, what does it cost to call an ambulance? And what's yeah. an emergency room visit? What's the deductible? We were weighing. I mean, I was part of a group. Uh, what ended up being the, the ailment? Of this well, I don't want to get I, I don't want to discuss it. I, uh. Well, is, is this sex on, game? Are we still, it was, it was this, a sex this isn't game. On the, this, this isn't going to be on the air, is it? Yes. Oh, this part? Oh. Yes. <laughs> it was a sex game that we had played many, many times before. <laughs> are you able to get the Coke bottle out of your ass? <laughs> and as it's going on, there's this little part of me that wants to get on a soapbox and start screaming about meta. You know, as this per, I mean, if this were... My version of Barton Fink, where, you know, I'm the self-righteous person who is ignoring what's going on around him. This, if this were a sketch, it would be this person's mm-hmm. dying. This person needs medical attention. And I am too busy screaming about Medicare for all and the plight of the uninsured to address. Well, I per- think I think between the two of us, we know at least three or four people who uh have come down with serious life-threatening diseases, among them cancer, and uh, 
and it is very, very hard for me not to mention what the hell is going with Bernie Sanders and Medicare for all and how they wouldn't have to worry about half of what they're worrying about mm-hmm. if single payer, payer existed. And some of these people, you know, were fucking Hillaryites and blue no matter who. And now they may be facing uh, medical debt and bankruptcy. Who knows, you know, what their deductible is and how it will, how much they'll have to pay at the beginning of each year and how long their treatments will last. And, and making decisions based on money as opposed to their health. Yes, and that's the first thing. Yes, and also basing decisions on where you live. You know, can I go on a vacation? Can I leave this fucking town for two weeks uh, and, and go see my girlfriend in, in Maine? You know, without do I have to worry about getting seriously ill in Maine? Yeah. Because I won't, be able, I won't be able to go see a doctor or the only way I'll be able to see a doctor is if I go to the emergency room outside right. of my county. Right. Or this job. I can't leave yeah, this, this job. Or this abusive relationship. Yeah. Or my parents. You know, I or can't leave parents. my, you know, I, yeah, I, I mean, it's a, we're a, a very sick country. It is a very, the system is making, to me, the system is like LSD. If you have mental illness lurking, underneath it can go undetected until you die but when there's uh, a, 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 an, an an agent that activates the mental illness you can get really sick and that's why lsd is so dangerous if you know if you're mentally ill oh. but it's it's not showing and then suddenly you take the lsd and then all your problems come to light and you don't have access to a shrink you're going to freak out and I think our system is like LSD. I think it animates all the mental illness in this country. I think it's so toxic that it's bringing. I gotta agree with you. I agree, I agree with you, except on the LSD thing. Uh, I think uh, the system is like Adderall or or Lexapro or any kind of stimulant, like lawyers used to uh, focus and riddling and things like that. That brings out the worst in people and brings out your personal defects and your, your psychological demons. LSD, when used properly, will open up your mind and relax you, just like uh, ecstasy will. That's why they're trying to bring it back in many psychological uh, treatments. All right. I, I don't want to have that discussion, but I just think that this is a, a toxic toxic country anytime you have this kind of income inequality where the richest the richest one percent have to be among themselves because when they're with us we not only are depressing but we we're suffering and and they and so we we want their money hey take care of us and they don't want that. They want us to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and be individual. We're not, al- yeah. We're not allowed to even say we're suffering. Right. America is suffering. And I mentioned this on the show last week, and then we'll move on. But Frederick Douglass, I believe it was Frederick Douglass, African-American, 
who during the lead up to the Civil War said, slavery is not only bad for the slaves, I mean, it's really bad for the slaves, but it's also bad for the slaveholders because it, it creates a really diseased, sick culture. Yes. And yeah. you, you, when you're living in that kind of denial, what does that do to you? What does that do to your relationships and your children? It's not healthy for the richest 1% to, to live this way. There was an old uh, a study on uh, antebellum South and, and the psychological damages of of slave owners and slaveholding and, and what it did to the wives of large slave owners. And, oh, they got meaner. The wives got meaner. Well, they also suffered from uh, a lot of psychological damage because – you know, while they're while they were being put up on a pedestal in their white purity and their virtue is in their virtues and and, and and virginity and all that by their husbands, their husbands were going, you know, walking out in the backyard and raping their his slaves. Right. And right. fathering slaves. And, yeah. you know, paging Dr. Freud, what does that do to Thomas Jefferson's kids, his white kids, when he's, I mean, how do you, the, the amount of denial that you're living in when you see that, that just makes you effing sick. It's toxic. Yeah. It's yeah. toxic. By the way, they, the, the, a new book out came out last year. They, they studied the women who ran plantations after their husbands died. And they mm -hmm. discovered that the women were more vicious with the slaves than the husbands. But that wouldn't wow. surprise somebody like Jim Earl that women can be more vicious. <laughs> well, what a shock. Yeah, well, that's surprising. So I guess uh, since we have to look at what slavery, how slavery is damaging the slaveholders, I guess the answer is to blame the slaves. Look at the damage that... <laughs> Or we should, you know, we're both suffering from this. That that would be the conversation now. Yeah. If we still had slavery. Is, well, a lot we, of damage. Not only did they uh, help start a war, but just uh, they they left every. They just left the South in a complete mess. They left the South and went north. Yeah, a lot of trash laying around everywhere. Nothing yeah. was cleaned up. That would be the argument now with the current. Demo well, OK, let, let's just say the Democratic Party. People are going to say, no, the Democrats were forced. Let, let's yeah, OK. The current yeah. Democratic Party and the current Republican Party, Joe Biden would be saying, I get it. I get it. Slavery is hurting all of us. I get it. But we have, a, you know, do you want to put these slaves out of work? Do you want to put these plantations out of business? Let's figure out a way to transition to a free society. We got to do it slowly. Yeah. Let's transition it in a way where slaves can, could <laughs> choose to be free. White people will have the white slave owners choose which uh, of their slaves they want to set free, meaning the more educated ones who can earn them more money. Mm -hmm. And then... Then we'll vote on it. 
we'll still have we'll still have a lower class of of slaves. You know, do we'll do the bidding of the higher class of slaves who yeah. do the bidding of the higher class of white people. It's a, it's all about paternalism, and the the gift of Trump. And there is a gift if you're a kid in a cage. Uh, this sounds glib, and I apologize. You know, and if you've got asthma because you live in uh, in a toxic waste dump that the EPA is ignoring, I apologize. But writ large, Donald Trump is lancing the boil that is America. There are, there are some things that have been festering in the Democratic Party where these entitled liberals who say, I think, I think Michael Bloomberg can save the Democratic Party. And you say, then you're a piece of shit. Wait, aren't you a Democrat? Uh, let's define Democrat by getting you the F out of the party. What? Don't we have to defeat Trump? No, I want to defeat you. I want to defeat you. I don't want you in my party. I don't want Michael Bloomberg in my party. And I don't want you in my party. I don't want Hillary Clinton anywhere near the party anymore. Yeah. She's the one who ran on the phrase, uh, America's already great. Yeah. Against Trump. Wow. So that's, you know. Wow. That's horrible. I mean, this was, that was her response to Donald Trump, make America great again. We're already great. How about America sucks and it's always sucked and let's fix it the right way. Yeah, that was Jeb Bush's. <laughs> that was Jeb Bush's campaign slogan. Jeb can fix it. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. But, so, he, so, but he didn't. So let's talk about the handshake that never was Bernie versus Elizabeth Warren. Oh, yeah. You uh, say that. That Joy Reid. From MSNBC. A habitual, habitual liar, anti-Semitic uh, homophobe. Well, that's based on her writings, Jim. <laughs> if you're going to go by what she's written for 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 years at her blog before she went over to MSNBC. Right. I do agree with her on one aspect of uh, that guest she had. on. Well, let's just remind people who Joe jo Joy Reid is. She is. A, a reporter for MSNBC and on air, on air personality, uh, news personality. Yeah. She does a show called AM Joy over the weekends and she's a never Trumper and she is a favorite of Rachel Maddow's. And she got into a little trouble about two years ago when they uncovered her, her blog, which was incredibly homophobic, where she said something to the effect Admit it, the thought of two men kissing is repulsive and not worth fighting for. That kind of stuff. Yeah. And then she insisted that she didn't write this. So she lied and said, I didn't write this. And then she went to the FBI and had them investigate. She said she was hacked into. And the FBI. That was a lie. That was a lie, by the way. She said that her. Uh, Lawyer, I believe I, th I, th I believe that she said her lawyer uh, looked into whether or not the FBI could investigate it. And that was the last we heard of that little. And then lie. it dis and then it disappeared. Suddenly, N NBC 
just disappears the story. Yeah. It just disappears the same way Matt Lauer's rapes disappeared. Tom Brokaw's sexual harassment accusations right. disappear. And Reed did blame it on Russian bots. She said Russian bots hacked in to her blog 10 years ago <laughs> and planted that 10 years ago. And is that true? To incriminate her 10 years later. That's what she said, basically. And is that true? Was there an investigation? Well, did they ever resolve this? Or did they hope that we would forget? Uh, no one has investigated this because MSNBC isn't known for their investigative journalism. Yeah. But I do believe that Vladimir Putin does have access to a time machine. Yes, of course. Of course. So, OK, so MSNBC, which is sponsored by the pharmaceutical industry. Yes. You cannot and escape commercials for Levitron and Pusanon. And they're owned by Comcast, who, of course, uh, lobbies against uh, net neutrality and yes. gives contributions to Joe Biden. Yes. Okay, so what happened with Joy Reid? There was this Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders dust-up Tuesday's debate. Re refresh our memory. Well, MSNBC and CNN both claimed that Bernie Sanders was lying. You remember this leading question uh, asked him on at the last debate, when did you stop beating your wife? That kind of question uh, with the assumption that, uh, you know, how did you, you know, Elizabeth Warren, how did you feel when Bernie lied about? <laughs> and that literally was how that reporter Yes. State of the question. I mean, that's not a joke. She literally said, yes. said that. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they've been repeating. They've been doubling down on this, except CNN occasionally will have a counter to that. Even uh, Anderson Cooper uh, was uh, awake enough during the debate, after the debate, to counter that, saying there's no proof that he said that. Mm -hmm. There are only four sources to the story, and each one uh, was uh, based on what uh, Ellen, uh, Ellen DeGeneres, what, uh, what uh, Elizabeth Warren told those four sources after the meeting right. with Sanders. Right. The long and short of it, it is they're both networks are doubling down on it. Joy, so Joy Reid Reed did something really smart. She had a really important, impressive guest to get to the bottom of this because MSNBC is known for its investigative journalist. How did she dig to how did she dig to the bottom of this? He said, she said she had a uh, Janine driver on. Yeah. Quote, uh, expert in body language. Ah, there Which we go. all know is admissible in court. It's, uh, it's not a pseudoscience at all. It's, it's used in court left and right. Of course. And she and, she and uh, Joy Reid went back and forth describing basically uh, what they thought of Jewish people. So, so you're able to divine what a person is really saying through reading their body language properly. This is better yeah. than sodium pentothal. This is better than a lie detector. What is this woman's yes. name? Janine Driver. 
Okay. And MSNBC, which has been investigating the Russia hacking since the beginning, MSNBC, what, what, did, what did she say, Ms. Driver? Well, uh, well Janine Driver, uh, she backed up uh, Joy Reid's opinion that through, you know, Bernie uses hand gestures to dismiss women and it's a sign that he's lying ah. and then he's hunched over and then Driver uh, – said he's uh, he's turtling. He's got this hunched over uh, kind of posture as a turtle. He's, he's avoiding eye contact. And he's uh, and uh, this is great kinda, journalism. Thank you, Joy Reid. <laughs> turtling. OK, turtling. You know, you like a lot of Jewish people. They have that kind of that waddle that the flat footed waddle. And well, I, they, call, uh, I think of turtling as having to do number two and you can't find a bathroom. And like the head is sticking out, and you're trying to keep it in the shell. Oh, I see. yes, that's a good term. I'm turtling. You be, you better pull over and find sure. a restroom. I'm turtling. Go ahead. Yeah, well, that 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 was their back and forth. She driver could tell specifically through his hand gestures and the way his uh, facial expression looked and his turtling that he was lying about. The meeting he had with Elizabeth Warren. Well, there you go. That is state of the art journalism. Thank you, MSNBC, because why waste the viewer's time delineating the precise difference between health care and health insurance? And why discuss Elizabeth Warren's Medicare for all plan, which is a love letter to the health insurance companies and Bernie's? Medicare for all, which is to put health insurance companies out of business. Why waste voters time on policy when we should be focusing on whether or not Bernie is a turtler? Turtler. Tur tur turtler. He's a turtler. I'm turtling. OK, we yeah, are. Next, short Go ahead. Next week. Uh, next week, uh, Joy is going to have on a head bump specialist. From the third <laughs> what? What? A head bump specialist from the Third Reich. Oh, okay. oh, phrenology. Yes, phrenologist. Oh. Yes, yes. Hey, before you, were you in the go, phrenology. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Talk to me about phrenology. I, I'm a scrotologist. I'm in the scrotology. Yes, because you're from San Francisco. We started in the San Francisco comedy scene, <laughs> and you. I could tell if you're lying by the bumps on your scrotum. Yes, but first you have to shave it first. Well, yes. Well, I have my assistant do that. And and you don't use your hands when you're examining the bumps on a man's scrotum. No, I want to get c close up and personal. That's the only way you can do it. Yes. OK, let us now turn to Joe Biden. I'm going to play you a clip of Joe Biden in Iowa. He is still the front runner and Elizabeth Warren is sinking fast in the polls. And Joe Biden is calling Bernie a liar. No. Yes. Oh, geez. So, well, I, I suppose if Joe Biden says he's a liar, I got to really take this seriously. Yeah, let's listen. To, he's at a town hall meeting in Iowa, Vice President Joe, and he's asked about Social Security. So let's hear the question. This is Joe Biden at a town hall meeting in Iowa. There's been, you know, I've had phone calls, people asking me, what do you take about 
does it concern you? What are you taking about Joe's stance about what's going to happen to Social Security? So I'm going to ask you, what is your stance on Social Security? Well, my stance on Social Security is, let's get the record straight. I'm not going to blame anybody, but, well, let me just say the facts. There, there's a little doctored video going around saying that, put out by, should I just, anyway, put out by one, one of Bernie's people. No, I'm serious. And I don't know if my staff has that video here, but uh, saying that I agreed with Paul Ryan. Okay, so the Bernie camp, the Bernie camp apparently is running videos in Iowa saying that Joe Biden is a deficit hawk. He calls himself a, a, a Democrat, but he's always been a deficit hawk. He's always proposed cutting entitlements and that he's going to smile while not increasing your Social Security to keep up with inflation. And I guess Joe says this, that the video has been doctored, yeah. that he's never said that he's willing to cut Social Security. Well, I, you know, Politico and the New York Times says that's completely off base and untrue that he did say those things. And that oh, so, is not so, 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 so even though Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden said he never said it, mm -hmm. who's saying that? So are they calling him a liar? New York Times and Politico say that uh, it's, it's a lie, basically, that Bernie Sanders doctored that video. There's no proof of that at all. And and Joe Biden has been saying that kind of thing for the last since 1983, 1983. Right. But isn't this another isn't this like Elizabeth Warren where it's he said he said now? I mean, Bernie Sanders says that Joe Biden says he wants to cut Social Security and he says he has a long record of one. Yeah. So sorry. That's what Bernie says. That's what The New York Times says. That's what Politico says. But Joe Biden says. That's not true. And nobody was in the meeting with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie when Bernie said allegedly that a woman can't be president or can't win. And we don't have any, you know, nobody was wearing a wire. So there's no actual evidence of Joe Biden saying he wants to cut Social Security other than a couple of hundred clips that I have at my disposal like right. this one, Joe Biden, 1995. We should freeze federal spending. I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans. I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice. I tried it a third time and I tried it a fourth time. OK, I'll, th this is an example of how... And pay attention to this, Jim. This is an example right. of how the the Sanders campaign doctored that audio. OK, this is what he says. Now, listen, this is how it's doctored. We should freeze federal spending. I meant Social Security as well. And they stop there. Right. They only play okay. that clip. They don't include. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans. I meant every single solitary thing. In the government. So it's unfair because Joe Biden, they're trying to present Joe Biden as somebody who wants to cut Social Security. 
That's unfair. Joe Biden wants to cut Medicaid and Medicare and everything of the government. Right. He wants to cut a lot more than all those five, four or five things that you just yeah. uh, mentioned as well. I, you know, I have a tape of my own that I came across. Oh, you do? Should I play that? Yeah, I wish you would. Because it, oh, you will. Well, let me, this let me just play a few more clips before. Okay, go ahead. You have some clips. Let me just play. This is Joe Biden in 1996. I'm one of those Democrats who voted for the constitutional amendment to balance the budget. I have introduced on four occasions, four occasions, entire plans to balance the budget, knowing I'm not president and I'm not the leader, but for illustrative purposes. I tried with Senator Grassley back in the 80s to freeze all government spending, including Social Security, including everything. Wow. Wow. So that's bad. That's real bad. Yeah, that's I mean, he said that he wants to freeze Social Security, which means no cost of living adjustment for your grandparents. That's what Bernie Sanders is focusing on. But he also said, including everything. And Bernie left that out, that including everything. But he also and he also during his time with Barack Obama offered up the so-called grand bargain to the GOP to slash Medicare and uh, slash Social Security. And that would be that that would be uh, Paul Ryan, who was both. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Who was speaker and also at one time chairman of the budget committee, uh, a banking. Okay, uh, here's another clip of Joe Biden with Tim Russert, 1997 on Meet the Press. People on Social Security Medicare is now 40 million people. It's going to be 80 million in 15 years. Would you consider looking at those programs, age of eligibility, absolutely. cost of living, put it all on the table? The answer is absolutely you have to. Well, there you go. Another example, that, that, that's another doctored... Now you have uh, you say you have you found uh, that you you think that stuff is bad. Well, it's pretty wait bad. Till, wait, wait, till, wait till you listen to this. OK, I thought that was doctored. But you have some you say you have found some doctored audio of Joe. Yes, Biden. I sent it. I sent it to your intern. OK. And this is so this is obviously doctored audio that the, the Sanders camp is sending out to humiliate Joe Biden and win dirty in Iowa. I introduced an amendment, notwithstanding, quote, my liberal credentials of no Social Security, no Medicare, no Medicaid, no Veterans, no Bob Dole, no Bernie's people, no education, no Head Start, no food stamps. I don't know. Is that doctored? I don't know if it's doctored or not, but it really sounds bad. He's saying no. I know he, yeah. I know he has one one tape. I uh, caught him saying no blowjobs. Hmm. No more oral sex for Americans. I'm at, I'm at every single solitary thing. <laughs> <laughs> Let me, everything. Is, everything. That means everything. I I I don't know. Let me play. You're, you, this is a clip that Jim Merle has found. That the, the Sanders camp is sending out. I, I have to say, to me, Jim, it sounds doctored. You say it doesn't sound doctored. Let me, let, let me listen to it again. All right, yeah. I introduced an amendment, notwithstanding, quote, my liberal credentials 
of no Social Security, no Medicare, no Medicaid, no Veterans Benefit, no Bob Dole, no Bernie's people, no education, no Head Start, no food stamps. I don't know, Jim. That's I. That's, you think that sounds that you think that sounds fixed up? I I think it sounds fixed. I do. I I I, I think the Bernie camp is I don't think they're on the up and up. Anyway, Jim Earl, always great to have you on the show. Great job. Oh, hey, we, thank you very much. I hope uh, we can talk to you next week. How do people follow you on Twitter? Well, that would be Jim Earl 666. Okay. That's my handle. Yeah. And you can you can uh, reach my uh my book, buy my book on uh, morningremembrance.com and uh press on the donate button and I'll send you an autographed copy of that uh, 143 pages of pure delight. Mocking the dead. Mocking the dead. Yes. Buy before you die. Yes. With a forward by Rachel Maddow. And then afterward by Mark Marin. Two people I don't ever want to speak to again. <laughs> and what else are we plugging of yours? Oh, the Clutter Family. How do people buy oh, yes. these? Clutter Family is available on iTunes, I believe, until iTunes goes defunct. Is, are they going to pull that out from underneath me, too? What, iTunes is going to go out of business? I don't think you can. I don't think Apple's going. I think Apple's going to get rid of iTunes. That's what I heard. Oh, well, they are struggling. I do know that Apple. The labor costs in in China, those suicide nets, suicide nets, and cleaning up the the first floor. <laughs> <laughs> Stay on the line for one second, Jim Earl. Great job. Great job. See you in court. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Tonight in New York City, Kevin Bartini will be at the Broadway Comedy Club. If you're not lucky enough to be in the New York City vicinity, you can buy his two comedy CDs showing the horses who's boss or the unintentionally white album. We got a lot to go over there, Mr. Kevin Bartini. There's some news coming out of India. David, yes, there is. There is great feel-good news coming out of India. We need and I that. think it's important that we share some feel-good news today on our segment good. because we need it. You're right. So uh, in India, um, a man was, well, you're familiar with cockfighting, of course, which of course. is uh, a horrible, abusive, terrible. That's where you and I it, go into the sauna butt naked. We right. <laughs> And, and we wrestle. We, we wrestle right. until we're erect, and then we kind of have a duel, right? On guard, right? Yeah, yeah. Gets into some stabbing. It's it's a little different. I remember this you gave is, me uh... a Heidelberg scar <laughs> with with yours. 
So <laughs> the cockfights are actually a, a, a lot uh, less fun than they sound. So this is, of course, the horrific practice of pitting two roosters that you have raised on protein-rich diets filled with uh, steroids, uh, and then you attach razor blades to their claws uh, or their talons. And they and, compete uh, to see who can shave they, somebody better? Is that how it works? No, no. They oh. fight to the death. These animals fight to the death uh, for our, our amusement. And it's, of course, it's something that's illegal. It's unethical. It's terrible. Uh, it's so It's so bad and so cruel to the animals that India made it illegal in 1960. So if you figure, yeah, in India, that shit, you know, that's the, that's how you know this is bad. So here we are well, in India. Well, they believe in reincarnation. They do. And I often, I, you know, what you always say to me when we're drinking, mm-hmm. I'd like to die and come back as your cock. Is that what you were talking about? Yeah. Yes, that's exactly what I mean. I want, I want to be your trained cock. Killer cock. Well, anyway, David, you know, we, I feel like you're mocking this and it's very, it's a I'm very, sorry. very, something that's very serious. Yes. It's, it's cruelty to animals. Is yes, it is. By far worse than cruelty to humans. And these, yes. these barbaric people who force these animals to do this. And now, of course, it's all underground. Uh, it's illegal everywhere. And, and it's still happening. And it happened again in, in India and this just this past weekend. And so you're probably thinking, well, I thought we were going to talk about a feel good story, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Like I just promised feel good stories. And now I'm like, Hey, David, uh, over in India, they were abusing animals this weekend. Isn't right. that great? Well, no, that's not the feel good part. Here's what happened. One of these. Uh, these roosters that has been raised in captivity and filled with, uh, hormones and steroids and had, uh, razor blades attached to his talons, uh, wiggled loose from his battle to the death with another, uh, rooster and actually turned on a human being and slashed him in the belly and the man died. And so are you saying he, f- he felt good from that? I'm just saying, I'm saying I feel good. That just this one time, uh, some animal abusing piece of shit, uh, took, uh, he, 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 he died doing what he loved, which was, uh, taking a cock. <laughs> That's <laughs> taking a cock to his belly. <laughs> Who hasn't done that? Yeah. <laughs> Who hasn't done that? <laughs> <laughs> And so what was it a rusty was there a one could hope and dull I I I got it I don't know if it was rusty or not I I just know that uh it's a the victim is 50 uh the victim that's interesting yeah this in this article just said the victim was I, the, 55. for me the razor blade the razor blade is the victim in the story <laughs> no. no I was going to say I didn't know roosters lived 55 years ah right Yes, you see how I turned it around? Because yes. the, the animal is the victim here. Yes. So yeah. uh, the animal abuser, not really a victim, was 55 years old. Uh, his name is tough to pronounce here, Sarah Polly Venef, uh, Michael Vick. Okay. So, Michael Vick. Uh, ah. Basically, yes, it's the Indian version of Michael Vick. Oh, good. Uh, who is on NFL's all-time 100 team. So he made that cut. Uh, this fella uh, dead uh, in an animal death match. 
One of the birds jerked free from a handler and slashed him in the stomach with a razor. He died uh, in a in uh, yeah almost immediately. Hmm. And uh, so I, I looked this up, and this is actually not the first time that this happened. This has actually happened once before in um, California back in 2011, where a rooster got loose and slashed a guy. But that guy only took it to the leg. So on that one, I'm guessing that was definitely a rusty blade. Because if you take a <laughs> slash to your leg with a razor, it's got to be dead on hitting your, you know, the perfect artery. Otherwise, that's some infection and shit. Uh, Gillette, so, should, anyway. Gillette should sell a blade for cockfights. I think so. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> should just, yeah. With you like know, three blades. The first one kind of pulls at the rooster's feathers. The second, okay, we're getting, it's cockfighting. Don't do yeah. it. It's bad. Yes, don't do cockfighting. And, and you know, it's in, in, in today, in, as we talk about the cock so much, I want to balance the show in my segment. And so I want to have equal time talking about the opposite of cock. And, uh, what I want to tell you about is well. Before you get to that, I have a. I, I read a story. Okay. I, I, I know you want to talk about bear baiting because I know you support uh, bear baiting. I am. And, yeah. I, am I don't know if you saw uh, Gwyneth Paltrow has what? this company called Goop, and I hate yes. to bring this up, but there's a story, and I'm not making this up, Kevin. Mm-hmm. You're not. Uh, did you read that she is selling a candle? I'm not making this up, and it's not a joke. Uh-huh. She's selling a candle that you can buy. And I'm not, I swear to you, Kevin, it, it, and it's, yeah. she says it smells like her vagina. I, 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 I am familiar. Uh, yes, I did see this. Uh, it's, it's a candle that is, is called, literally, it smells like my vagina. Uh, would you be interested, David? Take a guess. What ingredients would go into a candle to create a a bouquet that uh, Gwyneth Paltrow of Goop would sniff and say, you know what this smells like? My vagina. What do you think it's made of? Chris Martin's sperm? (laughs) Oh, they broke up. They did. They did. Do you think she sent him one? Uh, I think that's why they broke up, quite frankly. So no, I don't think he would like that candle. Right? Yeah. Uh, the other guys in Coldplay was still like, I don't understand how you could have ever divorced Gwyneth Paltrow. And then finally, he walks in and lights the candle, and they're like, Now I get it. She seems to be very concerned about how her vagina smells. Like she steam cleans her vagina. She martinizes yeah. it. Right? She martinizes it. Didn't? Wasn't she also one of the celebrities that was doing the uh, spread eagle to the sun to get a little sun on the old paint? Get, I think get, that yes, was, she was sunning. Yes. Yeah, she was sunning. Yeah, she's yeah. very into this. Uh, Gwyneth I'm putting Paltrow. a wasp nest up there. Uh huh. <laughs> did you know that? <laughs> she put a wasp wasp nest up there. Yeah. No, I did not know. But that. I'm well, being serious. If you read Goop, she uh, puts heated rocks up her vagina. Yeah. She says there's some That's healing benefit. She'll put a wasp nest up her vagina, and yet she still won't she put our penises up her vagina. Gwyneth <laughs> Paltrow would rather put 
a wasp <laughs> nest up her vagina than let Kevin Bartini or David Feldman <laughs> in there. What does that say about our, who we are? What does that say about our, yeah. So, <laughs> but seriously, she has a candle that she, she is selling that says, if you want, you light the wick mm-hmm. and, and the entire room will smell like, like, uh, one of like my vagina. It's it's a wonderful product, and it's or the I mean, fault it, in fish market, depending on your point of view. <laughs> well, damn it! First of all, can we just say first of all what a it sold out? You know, it sold out. That's no. the whole thing. It sold out right away. How much Huge is news. it? Seventy five dollars. Seventy five dollar candles, and they sold out. Uh, and which is, let me just tell you, that's the genius of marketing, right? Because you got a candle, they sold it for $75, and they sold these candles overnight when they told us that it smelled like Gwyneth Paltrow's vagina for $75, right? This is the marketing genius. Those exact same candles just sat on the shelves and never even sold a single one when it was the same candle, and they marketed it as Harvey Weinstein's finger. <laughs> Now it's seventy five dollars. It's seventy five. Isn't isn't even the first celebrity to create an overpriced candle that smells like her own vagina. It was originally done on a very limited Father's Day run from Ivanka Trump's company. <laughs> Just for him. Yeah. In fact, the uh, the name "This Smells Like My Vagina" has been so popular and successful with Gwyneth Paltrow that uh, now she's selling a line of bicycle seats, uh, soft cheeses, <laughs> soft cheeses, <laughs> you say, popcorn and flavored popcorn. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. But of course, with with success, David comes the knockoffs. I mean, every yes, celebrity out there is rushing to create candles with mm-hmm. their own personal essence. You know, mm-hmm. like Jennifer Lawrence of Alabia. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Marie Osmond's My Mormon Muff. Oh, and, yes. Uh, it's not It's not just candles. Yeah. I mean, everybody's getting in on it. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Now they're yeah. looking like, like uh, they're looking for new financial avenues. So they will be bottling up perfume that smells of the Duchess's lady parts and calling mm-hmm. it her royal finest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it doesn't end there, David. Oh, Nike really? Up, Nike has teamed up with Serena Williams for a new crotch scented sneaker inserts called Grunt. <laughs> Grunt. <laughs> And grunt, and uh, that's and, that you know, part of Chris Christie's body that falls over his <laughs> penis is grunt, right? <laughs> and then uh, finally, uh, the, the other celebrity to take the name and run with it, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders took the name. This smells like my vagina, and slapped the label on a meat rendering plant. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> wow! So you did read about the vagina candle. I, I, I was familiar with that story. Yeah, that's a story I've, I've enjoyed reading the last half hour. Well, you know what would be good? You know what they should do? Well, you know, she's half Jewish, Gwyneth Paltrow. Is she? She should make uh, candles for Hanukkah, and mm-hmm. you would light a labia menorah. <laughs> that, would that work? I don't that's know. That's a great one. Yeah. That's a great one. Well, yeah. I bought I bought the vagina candle, and it cost yeah, seventy five, cost seventy five dollars. But that doesn't 
include the uh, price of the emergency room visit for the third degree <laughs> burns after I went down on it. That's do not. Let me just. They don't put a warning. Do not go down on the no. Gwyneth Paltrow vagina candle. They they should tell you that. It should be there, but they're, but it's they're not. not. Where is the no. Federal Trade Commission in all this? Well, speaking of <laughs> delicious cavities with wicks, yes. Tell me about this dentist, the hoverboard dentist. Oh my God! This okay. So this dentist uh, in Alaska, which did you even know they had dentists in Alaska? I didn't know I they had teeth up there. What? Yeah, <laughs> we just said the same punchline at the oh. same time. Okay, so I'm sorry. Um, no, it's okay. The uh there is a dentist up there. Yes. Uh and he was um filmed extracting a patient's tooth while he stood on a hoverboard. Okay. So you know like uh you know the hoverboard those things uh, that you just kind of lean forward and it moves you around or whatever. It doesn't it you know being on a hoverboard isn't great for your balance. Um but uh, and of course you you've got pointy instruments in somebody's head and you're ripping a tooth out mm-hmm. you want to be grounded i think is what people felt um so this dr seth lookhart uh was convinced convicted on 46 felony and misdemeanor counts uh as part of a larger investigation which found uh, a lot of uh, medicare fraud insurance fraud and then this video surfaced of him on a hoverboard yanking a tooth uh, out of a person's head uh, and people in Alaska, when this news broke, people in Alaska were enraged, uh, that they have to live in Alaska. And, <laughs> and now he's going to prison and somebody else is going to drill his cavity and say, spit. Mm-hmm. Okay. that's the old, he's going yeah, to prison a- material. That's right. Before yeah. this is great, great job, Kevin Bartini. I understand. You know, Bernie mm-hmm. is talking about uh, free tuition at all public universities, mm-hmm. and that's a good uh-huh. thing. There's no waste on college campuses, right? Uh, there's no waste on college campuses. Uh, no, there's there's never. They any watch waste. every dollar, academia. Every right? every penny. They're you so to, tight, which is why. That's why don't comics you, don't like playing colleges because they're not lucrative. Because they're so tight. Right. But speaking, we just, I thought we, we moved off the vagina candle. But <laughs> <laughs> this is we're getting dirty. Uh, so explain yeah. to me the uh, what is. Did going you hear on? about the candle that Prince Andrew is putting out called "This Smells Like Homeroom"? Mm, nice, nice. <laughs> Thank you. What a sick family. What a sick family. Of course Harry and Meghan won out. Of course they do. That was he was he you know, he looked at Prince Andrew and said, This is this is my future. If yeah. I'm lucky, this is my future. I yeah, well I think more he looked at what happened to his mom and he's like, That's our fucking future if I don't do something about it and he did the exact right thing. Wait a minute, become I, a become a pain in the ass? Yeah. She's a pain <laughs> yeah, in the no, ass. Hey, of course she was, but yeah. she, you know, she was, I always call her Paris Hilton with a tiara, you know, <laughs> it's what she was, but still yeah. at the end of the day, she did get, you know, run down by the paparazzi. Yeah, and but you know, they're running a bit, you're running a business, it's the firm yeah. and she, right. you know, she was trying to destroy Prince Charles and Buckingham Palace. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, there oh, was, yeah. you know, she went up against the, the Queen of England. Mm-hmm. Right. Where is she? I'm not belt? saying Where what the Queen belt? did was wrong. I'm saying. <laughs> 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 uh, anyway, um, yeah, what were Meghan Merkel? No, we were talking about this. Uh, this professor. This, co- this professor, right. And, but let me, uh, just, let me just say something. Okay. Uh, you know, it's. I happen to love Diana, and uh-huh. I do, and uh, I love the royal family. I am a sucker for the royal family. Are you really? Yes, I am. I, uh-huh. uh, I'm a sucker for the royal family. That means I uh, visit Prince Edward in the can, but uh, <laughs> I don't know what that means. There were rumors. No, I like I like uh, the royal family. I think they're necessary. I think it's really tough. I think it's. Re- I think. You can't say no. If somebody said to you, Kevin Bartini, would you marry into the royal family? You say yes, of course. And it just becomes a, a, a Twilight Zone episode. There's no yeah. way out. But that being said, it's hard work to to it be is. these people. And Princess sure. Di did some great work. She really did. Yeah. Yes. So. Uh. Anyway, just wanted to... <laughs> So people, because we have listeners in London, and they encourage uh-huh. me to shit on the royal family. So, uh, yeah, they don't. But okay, so tell me about this professor who right. was given grant money. Yeah, he was he was given research grant money, which, I mean, uh, from what I understand, when you're given research grant money, there's to get that money, you have to have some pretty you know, pretty well-defined parameters of what you're trying to research or what you're trying to accomplish. And, and, uh, this, this, this fella got a hundred and he got at least $185,000 in research grant money. That's um, cool. That's good. He got at least that. So he must've been doing something, something important. Yeah. Well, I know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, he had, uh, of that money, the 185,000 we know of, was uh spent on iTunes Good. uh meal purchases Good. and uh adult attain- uh, entertainment uh to the tune of almost $200,000 at strip clubs hmm. uh and so he's in all sorts of trouble with this but wait wait he I mean, spent $200,000 at strip clubs yes that's yes. like two dances in New York City isn't right. it right Exactly. It's very expensive. And, and I don't, you know, they're saying, oh, that's not legitimate research expense. Well, first of all, he's a professor at a university. So maybe chances are his research assistant was working at that strip club mm-hmm. to pay for college. And that's the only place that they could get where he could talk. And, and yeah, so that's like two cocktails at one of those places. Yeah. I think this guy's getting railroaded for creative ways of doing his job. And, you know, I don't know what kind of research he's doing, but certainly with drought spreading throughout mm-hmm. the planet, he was learning how to make it rain. He was learning, exactly. He was learning how to make it rain. Yeah. And uh, I actually do knew, do know what uh, kind of research uh, he was doing, he, he had a study, um, where he was comparing the smell of Gwyneth Paltrow's <laughs> vagina candle to the real thing. <laughs> I mean, where else would you go for that <laughs> research analysis? 
uh, some a body waxing place, perhaps. <laughs> sure, sure. That would smell like uh, a candle, wouldn't it? Yes. The one thing that I really find strange is uh, he spent eighty nine thousand dollars on <laughs> iTunes purchases. <laughs> How the fuck? Do you, that's not even like it's not even like old days where you could rent a movie at Blockbuster and never return it and eventually owe eighty. How the fuck do you spend eighty nine grand on iTunes when you can spend nine dollars a month to stream every song ever on Spotify? I guess How the fuck apps. Does that I guess he. I guess he bought AR? every app. Jesus Christ! Or is there some way that Apple is set up? <laughs> There's some sort of a pay for a prostitute type thing. Like you get to the strip club and then you legally pay for it through. I don't know what I'm doing on that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, the, I guess what raised the red flags were that uh, a lot of his pro, uh, charges from 2017 uh, showed no receipt purchases where he was just, you'll have to take my word for it. This is what I spent it on. Um, And then he tried to pass off the expenses at strip clubs uh, as catering and food costs, it said. So, um, you know, at, at worst, this guy is a guy who eats the food at a strip club, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. I mean, that's the worst thing you can say about him. He's that weird, dirty bastard. Now, when you go to a strip club, you offer uh-huh. the stripper something to eat. Well, yes, and a Bible. But that's how I... <laughs> Kevin Bartini... That's how I convert people to Jesus. <laughs> yes. Kevin Bartini will be at the Broadway Comedy Club tonight. And if you don't live in New York City, then you can afford to buy his two comedy albums, the Unintentionally White album and Showing the Horses Who's Boss. What is your Twitter handle, sir? My Twitter handle is at Kevin Bartini. And can I just say I hope that that prick at least $11 out of that 89 grand on iTunes was my album. Can I just hope that? Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, sir. All right, buddy. Next time. Uh, we'll see you next week, and when we start, so. and you'll say, "Let's light this candle before we let's light this candle." Let's light this candle. That, that's going to be our new <laughs> buzzword. Buzzword, buzzwords, right. or whatever. Thank you. Stand line for one second. Great job. Okay. You're listening to the David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. 